could use a brand new coat That's not allowed, I'd warn you don't That guy is crapping on the ground It happens, wait, how's that even allowed? Because you're living in a clown world A cool to pull your pants on down a world There's only one you can paint brown world You'll never guess which one in clown world The cost of rent is getting dear We should build our new neighborhood here Zoning forbids new housing builds We were actually just gonna throw up some tents and, you know, do some heroin Well, that's acceptable in clown world Hey, can't let children walk downtown world They're playing hopscotch, look around world They're avoiding needles Oh, it's okay in clown world He saved that disabled lady Risked his life to save two babies And to his valor, we're in debt Wait Have you had your booster yet? Well, I've had COVID and I had an adverse skin for a new job in clown world. A risk your life so they don't drown world. A down is up and up is down world. Fired is dangerous, but from clown world. Oh, we're all living in a clown world. A common sense cannot be found world. Oh, you can paint the sidewalk brown world. We're living in a clown Clown World by Remy. Very funny song about uh, crazy stuff we're seeing these days. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff Wittellis. This is being broadcast live and recorded live on January 5th, 2023. The time right now, 9.09 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. This is actually the 12th calendar year that Poker Fraud Alert Radio is broadcasting. We began in March of 2012. And now it is 2023, and you might say, wait, that's 11 years. No, it's actually 12 different calendar years. If you count them up from 2012 to 2023, you'll see it's 12 different calendar years, even though we haven't been on for 11 full years yet. It's the way the calendars work. But we have been broadcasting in at least part of 12 different calendar years, so we've been around for a long time. To my knowledge, we are the second longest running poker radio show or podcast in existence, only behind the Bernard Lee show, which I think has been going for about 15 or 16 years. So if Bernard Lee ever decides to hang it up, we will have the title of longest running show, unless we've already hung it up, but I don't plan to do that anytime soon. So welcome back. And as I said on our last show that was right before Christmas, that would be the last one for 2023. And this is when I found the time to do it, I know it's, uh, again, a few days longer than I preferred. It's been 13 days since we were last on. Again, I'll try to improve upon that. Somehow I've just got to, gotten in the habit of doing the shows once every 10 to 13 days. But really, I, sh- I should be doing it closer to once a week. So we'll try for that. I know you guys are starving for content. And a lot of people are disappointed that the show hasn't been running as often as it used to. But at least I was putting out long shows. Give me that. These have been very long episodes I've been doing. Whether I've been splitting them in two in the archives or not, they were long shows, including last week. Now, I don't know if this week's going to be long, but 
last week was. And, you know, I got some comments on last week's show, and a number of people really like last week's show, which I don't know if I want to say I'm surprised, but when I completed last week's show, I didn't walk away saying, oh, that was a great show. I just kind of thought it was uh, a typical show, an okay show, but a lot of people liked it. So I'm glad that some of you did, and I know not every episode is going to be as good as other episodes. There will always be some variants, but I do try to put out quality material here and talk about topics you'd like to hear about and do so in a clear and fair fashion and an entertaining fashion if that is warranted as well so you guys can enjoy it but i'm glad that i got some positive feedback about the final show of 2022 if you'd like to call the show as always our phone number is 775 775-372-8355 is the number You can also call the Mount Charleston line. Mount Charleston is a mountain that is near Las Vegas. It's about 45 minutes away by car. Has plenty of snow now due to the recent storms in the western U.S. In fact, the road to Mount Charleston was closed for a little while. I believe you can get up there now. But we have an old 70s rotary phone which sits on top of Mount Charleston in a cabin there and forwards to me wherever I go. That phone number is 702-430-1808. In fact, I've posted a picture of that phone before. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. You can reach me on that as a secondary number to call the show. You can always call or text the main number, 775-372-8355, which is 775-455. Remember, you can text me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It does not have to be during the live show. However, don't call me unless it's during the live show because I turn off the calls for the show except when we're on live. But text is always on 24-7. It's never too late or early to text me, so don't worry about that. And I typically will respond to you if you send me a text message. There's also the call to listen line. It's very simple. You call up and you listen. Presently, it's located in upstate New York, where Calwatt's located. It's not him who's running it, but it's not too far from where he lives. The phone number is 518-931-1189. 518-931-1189. It's very simple. You just call up and you listen. It is not a way to reach me. You can't speak to me, but you can listen to me. 518-931-1189. The good thing about it is it does not require a smartphone. does not require a data plan does not require the internet, does not require a good cell phone signal. No, 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 none of that stuff. doesn't need an app. No. All you need to do is pick up any phone that can dial and call the number and just listen. It will never buffer. It will never freeze. It won't use any of your data. And it will not cost you any money if you can call the U.S. for free, unless you have T-Mobile, in which case it will be one cent per minute. We have a free roll tonight, and the free roll is just about to start, just about, in one minute, at 9.15 p.m., the first free roll of 2023 on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. We are giving away $50, 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third. The $50 came from Seabock Cockshot at $10 that he handed us for that. Not Joe Seabock, but just Seabock Cockshot gave it $20, or $10, and then uh, owner involuntarily gave us $40 because way back in March of 2021, owner finished in first, but he never collected it. He never asked to collect it. So as I've mentioned before, if six months have passed since you won and you didn't attempt to claim your prize, then I will 
possibly take it away and roll it into future free rolls. I will not keep it myself, but I may roll it into future free rolls like I'm doing with owner's money tonight. I think that almost two years is quite long enough. So thank you to him for not collecting. So we had some money for this week's free roll, $50 total. I'm probably going to be doing a batch of payouts soon, so if you haven't been paid in a few months, then you can expect the money, provided you ask for it. If you haven't, please PM me on the forum, Dan Space Druff. That's Dan Druff with a space in between. Or you can email dandruff at pokerfraudler.com, or you can text me, 775-372-8355, to claim past winnings. I can pay you by Zelle, by Cash App, by bank transfer, by various cryptocurrencies, and by other methods you might be able to think of where money can be sent on the internet. We have a chat room. If you'd like to go in there and chat with anyone listening to the live show, you can do so. If you're not listening live, don't bother because nobody will be in there. I do read the chat room every so often, but I'm not interacting in there because I'm doing the show. But feel free to type comments in there. I'll get to them eventually. I do prefer comments via text, though. I do check that several times per show. And, of course, you can call in. But if you do call in, please do so in between topics or right as we're winding down a topic because otherwise it'll kind of interrupt my whole progress and I don't like to do that. But I do like receiving phone calls and don't feel embarrassed to call in. And you know what? I'm going to tell you guys a secret. I don't think I've ever revealed this, but I'm going to tell you guys a secret that you guys know I edit the show. You know the show you hear in the archives is a little bit different than the one that's live because I edit out any kind of fail on my part where I'm taking time to bring up an article or whatever it might be, something that doesn't make the show sound good. So I go through it, and it takes some time. It's a very long show. It takes a while to edit, but I go through it, and I edit it to sound better. I don't really take out content, though. So the content you're hearing is all the same, but it just is presented a bit better. However, when I get phone calls, sometimes I will edit the phone calls to make the listeners sound better. So if a listener calls in and if he seems to pause a lot or if he seems kind of to ramble or sounds a bit confused, rather than just leave it, I will sometimes, but not always, go through the call and edit it so it sounds more coherent. So I actually make the callers sound better. So if you're one of those callers, you can call in and know that I might very well edit you to sound better. I never make someone sound worse through editing. I never make you say something you didn't. So nothing like that. I don't play games along those lines. But I will take out stuff that doesn't make for good radio or doesn't make the caller sound as coherent. So I make the callers sound clearer and more concise than sometimes they otherwise do. Now, some callers, they don't have to do this. Some of them automatically sound very good when they call the radio. Other ones just aren't used to it. And uh, so I give give a bit of assistance there, both for the listener's benefit and for the caller's benefit. It's one of the things I do in the editing process. So if you've noticed the calls flow pretty well and don't have a lot of pauses and things like that, that's, that's because of the editing. If you listen in the archives, as most of you do. I got a text from the 734 asking, is your site running slow or am I imagining it? And they said they're slow, it's slow basically doing everything. I haven't noticed that today. So either you're imagining it or it's on your end or it's just temporary. I don't like getting texts like that because... Often it means something has happened. Either the server's acting up or the Russians got in again. I never like to read things like that, but sometimes it's just temporary. And sometimes the system is running some background processes that slow it down a bit. So it could have been something like that. The text was a little while ago. All right. 
So here's the agenda, and then we will get going. I really hate talking about deaths on this show, but I have to. When something happens that's notable, especially if it's related to Poker Fraud Alert, I have to mention deaths that occur, and one has occurred again. Some of you may remember Dave Lerman. He appeared on the show a number of times, especially in the earlier days of the show. And he is a friend of mine, a personal friend, dating back about 12 years or so. And he disappeared in October from social media where he was very active. And I knew he was having health problems. So even though he wasn't that old, I got concerned. At first, I couldn't find anything, but I gave it another shot. And unfortunately, I found that Dave Lehrman did indeed pass away. So I'll tell you about that. And I'll tell you where you can find... Dave Lehrman on Poker Fraud Alert Radio if you want to hear what the guy was like. And I'll tell you about his very interesting career, which is quite unique. Jeremy Osmus, who's been doing really well in poker lately, you probably first heard of him when he made the November 9 at the main event, but he's done a lot more recently. He's really been killing it in recent years in the tournament scene. Because even after he won the million bucks or whatever he won for finishing ninth place in the main event, he went back to grinding mid-stakes. And then more recently, he's been playing higher-stakes tournaments and just doing great and winning bracelets. I mean, this guy has really, really been on the way up in recent years, even though poker has been getting more difficult. He almost won a bracelet in October at the $7,777 online event, which did have a World Series bracelet attached to it. But he lost heads up against an unknown player named Jared Strauss. And at the time, he accused Jared Strauss of cheating in some way. And he was implying very strongly that Strauss had been ghosted by a better player to beat him. And I talked about this on the show back then, but we have an update. We have a pretty big update to that story. And I will tell you about it. This has been a controversial topic on Twitter this week. Daniel Negranu posted his overall tournament results for the past 10 years. Year by year, he listed how he did in tournaments. Because when you look at someone's tournament results, you see a number representing their total caches, but you don't get to see how much they bought in for. So some people that are supposedly millions of dollars in winnings ahead really aren't. They're actually losing because they spent more buying in than they cashed. So you can't just look at caches. Anyway, Daniel was very transparent, as he was also about five years ago. He did the same thing. And you can take a look right on his Twitter at his self-reported results, which I think are honest and accurate. I didn't verify it, and it would be a lot of work to verify it, but I believe he's being honest about it. So he posted his overall tournament results for the past 10 years. And then he got into a bizarre battle with a very unhinged guy named Jordan Christos, who is a poker pro himself. So I'll tell you about all that stuff and that weird Twitter pissing contest with Negranu versus Christos. I have another update for you with the BetMGM Global Pay bank theft situation where 50 or more poker pros had money directly stolen from their bank account, as much as 10K each, including me, if you remember. $10,000 got jacked from my bank account. And I was far from the only victim, so I've been aggressively investigating this the whole way, as you guys probably know. 
I have another update for you. I promised you I will release information about this as I feel appropriate for reasons you can probably guess. I can't just dump everything I know as I learn it, but I'm releasing things as I choose to. I'm not under any restriction, but I'm under a self-restriction of what I think is appropriate to release, and I'm going to release another piece of information tonight. Then we're going to talk about a show in Las Vegas, which is known to be one of the worst shows, and yet you wouldn't picture that it would be one of the worst shows. And that would be David Copperfield's show. David Copperfield has a great reputation and has been around for many decades. So how can he have one of the worst shows in the Las Vegas Strip? I'll tell you about Copperfield's show and the problem with it, and we'll discuss why he's even bothering to do it. Next, we will talk about an alleged scammer who is a bit unusual because just about every scammer I talk about on this show is male. I don't remember the last time we talked about a female scammer. Sometimes there will be a female accomplice to a male scammer, but I don't remember the last time I talked about a female scammer. But this is alleged to be one. Vanessa Alvarez, a.k.a. Mamacita, is accused of scamming a 2 plus 2 member of $17,000. So I'll tell you what this guy is claiming happened, and then I'll give you my analysis. Jamie LaFay is a female poker player who lives in Las Vegas, and she's a bit on the emotional and strange side, to say the least. You can find her on Twitter. Her name is spelled J-A-M-I and last name L-A-F-A-Y, which, by the way, that's not her real last name. And I know her real last name. Not many people know it. I'm not going to reveal it because for whatever reason, she doesn't want it revealed, so I'm not going to be a jerk and reveal it. But I will tell you about the controversy she got into on, I believe, December 24th, or maybe a few days beforehand, but I think a few days before the last show, she was in this controversy, but I didn't see it till after the show, so it's going to be on this show. Anyway, she called out a smelly poker player, not on Twitter. She actually called out the smelly poker player at the poker room and had a confrontation with him about the fact that he smells. <laughs> and she posted about it on Twitter, and Twitter was very angry at her and said she was being mean. So I'm going to read you her tweets describing the situation and her commentary regarding the situation and her arguments with the people who were critical of her. And I'll tell you how I feel. By the way, in that whole thing, I got blocked. No hard feelings, but I got blocked for a stupid reason. At a Washington poker room, this is Washington State, not D.C., four people got stabbed in what appears to have been an unprovoked attack. A guy in this poker room just stabbed four people seemingly out of nowhere, two male, two female, so I'll tell you about that. The former site of the Stephen Paddock shooting near Mandalay Bay will likely become an Indian casino. And I say this because the land has been sold to Indian tribes. and Presumably they're buying that to build a casino there. So I'll tell you about that. And what will become of that site? Will there be any memory of the incident that happened there? Will there be any kind of memorial for the people? I'll tell you about that too. Then I have an update on the FTX scandal once again. 
And we have a COVID-19 topic. I've been cutting down the COVID-19 news because there's not that much to talk about these days. It's been pretty stable. But there is something that you all should know, and that's about new variant XBB 1.5, which is taking the country by storm. In fact, the world by storm. This is becoming the main variant of COVID. And it's another form of Omicron, but it is a new variant, and there's some things you need to know about it. In fact, Master Scaler currently has COVID, and I believe he has that variant. There's no way to know for sure, but he does definitely have COVID, and I think it is that variant. And I'll tell you why I think it's that variant, besides the fact that it's the dominant one. So, very important. Please listen to this segment. And I'll tell you right away, if you are an anti-vaxxer or someone who thinks COVID is completely over and really never was a big deal, you probably won't like the segment. And if you're one of these COVID isn't over, it's still very dangerous, everybody should mask up, and by not masking up, we're killing everybody, and by people not getting vaccines as often now, we're killing everybody. If you're one of those people, you're not going to like the segment either. So again, I'm going to approach that segment from a standpoint you're not going to hear very much in media or social media, because it seems like everybody's on one side or the other, that's vocal about it and you don't hear someone who is kind of in the middle on the COVID issue between left and right and analyzes it with just common sense without any kind of bias about it. And that's what I've done the whole way. And while I'm going to admit I'm biased politically, I am a right winger. I'm not a hard right winger, but I am a right winger. I'm a conservative. You guys know that. But as far as the whole COVID matter has gone, I've been very critical of some things the right has done, and I've been very critical of some things the left has done. I've been very centrist regarding COVID, and I think you guys all know that. That's why I've pissed off both sides with my COVID takes, which I think is kind of a compliment. It shows that I'm thinking for myself. Anyway, that's our show. Let's begin. Dave Lerman is someone who I got to know in 2010. I didn't meet him in person at first. I got to know him online, and then we became friends, and we did meet in person. In fact, I've met with him several times. Most of my interaction with him has been online or on the phone, but there's been uh, some in-person meetups too, especially because he lives in Vegas for a while. It turned out, however, that I had seen and heard Dave Lerman many times before I actually got to know him. And that's because he had appeared all over media. He was on the Howard Stern Show frequently. He was on the Wally George Hot Seat program, which aired in the 80s and 90s. He was on various game shows, talk shows, reality shows, you name it. He even appeared in some news broadcasts standing in for people who didn't want to appear, he basically took their place and told their story pretending to be them with the news knowing the case. You know, the news station knew this and put him there as a stand-in. I had seen him and heard him in a lot of places and just didn't realize it was the same guy until he told me. And I said, oh yeah, yeah, I remember you from this and this and that. So it turns out it was someone that I was familiar with. In fact, I hadn't put it together that he was the same guy in a lot of these spots. He was touring with Sam Kinison when Sam Kinison was doing his comedy act all over the country. He also had a comedy partner named Doug Beatty, 
who was a very unique comedian. So let me tell you about Dave Lehrman's career, and I'll tell you about some of Dave Lehrman's personal struggles, and then I'll tell you about the unfortunate news that I found out, which I already told you in the preview that he's passed away. So Dave always wanted to be famous. He always wanted to be in show business. He wanted to be someone in the spotlight. There's some people who don't like to be in the spotlight. There's even famous people who don't like to be in the spotlight. For example, Keanu Reeves, despite the fact that he is very famous and he is a major actor, he doesn't like being in the spotlight. He doesn't like being famous. He doesn't like being a celebrity. In fact, he lives a pretty Spartan lifestyle and he tries to stay out of the spotlight as much as he can. But Dave Lerman's the opposite of that. Dave Lerman loved getting attention. He loved being famous, or trying to be famous at least. He was never super famous, obviously. You may not know who he is. At the same time, he did achieve some level of notoriety, especially in the 80s and 90s. So he's about five years older than me. He's actually four and a half years older than me. And ever since he was about 16 years old, which was in the early to mid-80s, he was determined to make it in show business. Now, the problem was that Dave Lehrman didn't have any kind of standout talent. He wasn't a really good-looking guy. He wasn't athletic. He wasn't a great actor. He couldn't sing. So how do you become famous? If you want to be famous, okay, but how do you become famous in the early to mid-80s if you don't have any of those talents? Nowadays, you can do it if you're lucky enough through social media. You can put up an interesting YouTube channel, especially if you're young, and if it catches fire, you can become famous that way. And a lot of the famous young YouTube stars you see today are ones who would never have been famous had they lived like 30 years ago. So in that day, Dave Lerman really could have made a huge name for himself. I'm talking about today, but uh, back in the early 80s, there was no YouTube and people basically weren't online. So he had to find some kind of way to make a name for himself. And he worked very hard at it. So he got a show on local cable at the age of 16. He actually got a few major musicians at the time to come on to this show that he interviewed, especially rappers. They, uh, he somehow was able to talk a few of them into coming on there. And there were articles in the Detroit area newspapers about Dave Lerman, the 16-year-old with the cable show that was getting on major musicians to interview with him. I think maybe some of them came on just because they thought it was kind of a cool gimmick that a 16-year-old was running the show. So Dave was really, really hoping that he would get famous in some way, and that was the first thing he tried. However, it was a little bit after that when he realized that there was a gimmick that he could use, but it didn't involve him personally. There was a guy who I think was two years older than him, but went to his high school, named Doug Beatty. Doug Beatty was two feet six inches tall, like the height of a toddler two feet, six inches tall. And he had muscular dystrophy and he looked very pathetic. He couldn't walk. He was two and a half feet tall. He was bound to a wheelchair. 
the type of guy you look at and think, oh, wow, I really feel sorry for this guy. Even though Doug looked like he was very frail and needed to be pitied, his mind worked perfectly. He didn't have any kind of mental problem. He was a clever and sharp guy. So Dave befriended Doug, and the two of them got together and came up with a very interesting comedy act. And the comedy act would be that Dave would be the straight man, and he would push Doug around in the wheelchair, not to physically push him, but push him in the wheelchair around, and he'd be kind of seen as like Doug's uh, caretaker and friend. And Doug, who the audiences would assume is just some pathetic guy who they have up there just for purposes of being nice to a crippled guy, he'd get on the microphone and he'd be extremely foul-mouthed and he'd insult people and he'd spew profanity and talk about having sex and he would just bring up all the things you would never guess a guy who looked like that to bring up. Doug would act 180 degrees different from what you believed he would act from seeing him. And that was the gimmick. They even took it a step further. They had a little gimmick with uh, Howard Stern where Doug would be inside of a box. Remember, he's very small. He's two and a half feet tall. So they'd have him inside of a box and they'd leave the box on the streets of New York City and he'd be banging from the inside of the box saying, help, help me, I'm trapped in here. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. So then, of course, some nice bystander will open up the box and rescue him and see this guy with a... who's two and a half feet tall and crippled in there and be horrified, feel like they saved him. And then as soon as they open, he'll start cursing them out and say, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you opening this box? I was enjoying my time in here. What the fuck are you doing? Who told you to touch this thing? And, they, and then they would uh, film these reactions and play it on Howard Stern. So that was a lot of the act. And uh, they got to know Sam Kinison, comedian Sam Kinison, who, of course, was very uh, loud and boisterous in his act. So this went very well with Sam's act, where they'd bring Doug up there, and then Doug would shock everybody with the things he would say. And eventually they came up with a gimmick where Doug hated Jerry Lewis. And I don't know if he really did hate Jerry Lewis, but remember, Jerry Lewis had this famous telethon, the Muscular Dystrophy Association telethon that he had for years and years and years. So Doug would get on the microphone during uh, Sam's show, and Sam would pretend like they're calling him up from the audience, even though he was touring with the show. They'd bring Doug up there, and he'd say, yeah, Jerry Lewis, fuck him. I haven't seen dime fucking one from anything he's doing. That guy's a piece of shit. <laughs> People can't believe it because here's Jerry Lewis who's uh, dedicating so much, of his, so much of his being to raise money for muscular dystrophy. And instead of Doug being appreciative is yelling that he hasn't seen dime one and fuck Jerry. So th- that was the type of shock humor that Doug would do. And Dave told me that he actually wrote that whole act involving Jerry Lewis And that actually got a lot of publicity at the time. Dave then would appear in a separate separate segment on during Sam Kinison's show, where Sam would call him up again, supposedly as an audience member, and uh, pretend that he got dumped by his girlfriend after catching his girlfriend with another guy, and that he'd call this supposed girlfriend on speakerphone and curse her out, and then 
Sam would curse her out and everybody would cheer. And that got a very good reaction from the audience. Everybody loved it. Everything seemed to be going well in the 80s and early 90s for Dave Lerman and Doug Beatty, for that matter. Here they were touring with Sam Kinison, and everybody was enjoying what they were doing, and Sam was very happy with them, and who knows how long this would have gone on. But you probably know that Sam Kinison hasn't been around for a long time. Sam Kinison was killed in a car accident in 1992. Despite the fact that Sam Kinison did a lot of drinking and did a lot of drugs, the car accident was not his fault, nor was he on anything at the time of the fatal wreck. The car accident was completely the fault of the other driver, a 17-year-old who crossed the median and slammed head-on into Sam's car. And he wasn't instantly killed, but he was injured badly enough to where he died before they could even get into the hospital. This actually occurred as they were driving to Laughlin. They were... uh, I'm not sure if they were going from Las Vegas, but they were uh, probably not because they were on the 40. I would expect they'd have been on the 95 if they were going from Vegas. But Sam was driving a Pontiac Turbo Trans Am, and he was near Needles, California, which is pretty close to Laughlin. And uh, he got slammed into head-on by that 17-year-old driver, which killed him. And so he's fairly close to the destination Laughlin, He was planned to be performing at a show at uh, the Riverside Casino. I don't know if Doug and Dave were on their way there as well. They weren't in the same car. But anyway, that was the end of their touring with Sam Kinison because Sam Kinison was killed. Sam didn't let them go. Sam was very happy with them. He just died in that accident, and that was in April of 92. So that was the first setback that Dave Lerman had. And... I don't think that Dave was really close to Sam personally. I think that he and uh, Doug were just part of the act. So I don't think he was broken up from an emotional standpoint. I'm sure he was sad that Sam died. I mean, he had a good working relationship with him, but it was kind of like a co-worker that died in a way. But professionally, this really harmed him because he had finally gotten into show business, which he had been dreaming of since he was 16 years old. And now they had to go back and start fresh. However, he still had Doug Beatty, the comedy partner, and had this unique act of the foul-mouthed, muscular dystrophy crippled guy. So they continued with that, and they appeared on the Howard Stern show a number of times, and they were making do. They also appeared in a movie, not just appeared, they actually starred in a movie, a short film called Star Baby, which used to be on YouTube, but I can't find it anymore. I I never figured out what happened with that because Dave posted it himself on YouTube and it was there for years, then it just vanished. And then I asked him, okay, well, can he post it again? Can he send it to me and I'll post it? I never got a clear answer what happened with Star Baby. He kind of wanted it up there, but I never really got a clear answer as to why he wasn't reposting it. But anyway, it, it was an interesting short film. I kind of wished I could see more of it. And it was actually centered around Doug and Dave. It was not a true story, but it's kind of based on their lives living in Hollywood. It wasn't directly about them, but they were kind of the main and most featured characters 
in the movie. So they did that. They appeared on Howard Stern a bunch. They appeared on Wally George. They basically appeared wherever they could get work. And uh, also, if you follow Dave Learman on his Facebook, you can still go there. It's still open. Dave Learman, L-E-R-M-A-N. You'll see tons of pictures of Dave and Doug with major celebrities in the 80s and 90s. Tons of them. Very major celebrities. Well, the second tragedy that befell Dave was in 1996 when Doug Beatty died. Doug Beatty had muscular dystrophy and he died as a result of that disease. I don't know specifically what killed him, but that was why he died. And he was pretty young. I think he was 30 or something at the time. So he had a very short life, unfortunately. But this left Dave without the unique comedy partner that he had before. Remember, Dave was a straight man. Now, Dave wrote a lot of their material. Dave did a lot of the behind-the-scenes work to make all this happen. But as far as the presence on stage, the more interesting of the two was the little guy with muscular dystrophy with a foul mouth, not just the regular-looking partner who played the straight man. So, again... Dave had to reinvent himself, and also he had somewhat of a depression because Doug was a real-life close friend. Unlike Sam, who was just someone they worked with, Doug was a real-life close friend, and they lived together, and he he felt just uh, really, really depressed over the whole thing. This is before I knew him, but he told me about it. He told me about how much it hurt for when when, uh, Doug passed away, which he knew was a possibility to happen at any time because of Doug's condition. But this really harmed him both emotionally and professionally. So he had to reinvent himself, but he did. And while he never had the success again that he had in the 80s and early 90s, and through mid-90s, I guess, he was able to appear in a lot of different productions over the years. And so what he transitioned to, instead of going from the comedy standpoint, like he had been doing before with Doug, he became a character actor. And he was appearing everywhere. He was appearing on game shows. He was appearing on reality shows. He was appearing on court shows. He was appearing on radio shows. And a lot of times, he would not be himself. Sometimes he'd be playing some kind of role. Sometimes he didn't even use his real name. Sometimes he did use his real name, but was on TV with a completely phony story. And I learned from Dave something I had long suspected but never knew for sure. And that is, very little of what you see on television is real, and reality TV is definitely not real. Dave lied on camera all the time. Dave told stories on camera which were either completely made up or mostly made up. Dave sometimes even pretended to be other people on camera and adopted their stories as his own. But he wasn't a deceptive asshole or a liar. He did this with the full knowledge of the producers of these shows. Because all these shows want is good entertainment. They're not guaranteeing you that they're telling you the truth. They're not guaranteeing you that you're seeing something that is actually real. They just want you to think it's real. So all they want is ratings. All they want is good TV. So Dave was willing to be whatever they wanted and do whatever they wanted and made it very clear to them that he would be whatever they wanted and do whatever they wanted. So, for example, on some of these court shows, 
some of the people you see appearing are actors. Most of them are not, but sometimes they are. Sometimes they are actors who have filed a bogus court case against each other, and the producers are very aware of this, but the case seems interesting, and they put them on anyway. And it makes for good TV. He also appeared on various shows with supposed relationship problems where he and some girl would fight about their relationship. It was always fake. These weren't girls he was really dating. Or if he was, they didn't really have the problems they claimed to have. You can find a lot of this on YouTube. If you just type in Dave Lerman, L-E-R-M-A-N, you will find a number of these shows that he appeared on, especially the ones from after Doug Beatty had passed away. And you'll see what he was doing. And when you watch it, just keep in mind that all of it is BS. All of it is staged. All of it's made up. And I said, I always thought these reality shows were BS. And he said, oh, you have no idea. You have no idea how inauthentic almost everything you see on TV really is. And I mentioned the news. Even in a few instances, he appeared on news programs pretending that something happened to him that really didn't. Now, the story wasn't completely made up. What had happened was a real story had occurred, but the person it happened to didn't want to discuss it. So in some cases, they would put him on the news under his real name, and he would pretend it happened to him. He'd take the exact story and claim it happened to him instead of the real victim of whatever occurred who didn't want to appear on camera. So he even did that. Even the news will sometimes pull shenanigans like that. And he showed me some of the contracts for some of the stuff that he appeared. It was very interesting stuff. I wish I saved more of it. He would just kind of show me over time. So that's what he did. That's how he subsisted ever since Doug Beatty died. This is how he supported himself. So he, after that point, he wasn't a wild success or rich by any means. But this is how he supported himself over that period of time. This is what he was doing when I got to know him in 2010. Now, I mentioned there were three things that he went through in his life that were very traumatic for him. I already told you two of them. The third one happened just a few years ago, and that was his mom passed away. Now, of course, his mom was not young. Remember, Dave is older than me, and even a few years ago was older than me. His mom was in her 80s. His mom had a heart problem. He had gone back to live with his mom in what he thought were probably her final years. Dave did not have any children. He didn't have a steady girlfriend. So he decided he wants to go spend the remaining time his mom had on this earth. His dad passed away in, I believe, 2012. So his mom was all alone, and he came back to spend her final years with her and was both helping take care of her and, for whatever reason, his dad didn't like to travel too much. I, the family was doing fine financially, but they he just didn't really have a desire to travel. So his mom never really got to go anywhere. His mom just was living in Michigan, in the Detroit area, ever since she was born, and she didn't leave very often. And here she was in her 80s, and there were all these things she wished she could have done. So Dave took her around the country for bucket list items that she wanted to do. And they spent a lot of time doing it in her final years. And indeed, 
as I said a few years ago, her heart problems got worse and she died during one of her surgeries. And that really, really, really devastated him. But before she passed away, she did get to do a lot of the things she was always hoping she would do. For example, she really liked actor Kiefer Sutherland, and she always had wished she could meet him. And Dave actually arranged when uh, Kiefer was in Las Vegas for her to meet him and took a picture of them all together. And she was really thrilled to meet him. So that was very nice. He was a very nice son to do this for his mom in her final years. And I tried to tell him this after his mom passed away and he just became like a different person. Obviously, it's depressing when your mom passes away and a normal human being is going to be depressed about that. And it's something you never completely get over. Uh, Fortunately, my mom is still alive. My dad's still alive as well. And I'm uh, close to 51 years old. So I'm thankful for that. But on the day that inevitably happens, uh, I, I will feel the same way. But he was beyond that. This completely sent him over the edge. He just uh, wasn't able to handle it. And I, and I tried to tell him, you, you did some very nice things for your mom in her final years. You really made her happy. You helped her do all these things she wanted to do her whole life and never got to. You, you got her to meet Kiefer, Kiefer Sutherland. You, got, you brought her around to see all the sights she wanted to see and all the activities she wanted to do. He, he even introduced her to me in uh, Las Vegas. She, she wanted to meet a poker star, so he, he introduced her to me. And yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a, a D-list poker star, but you know, she didn't know the difference. She was very happy to meet me. But I told him, I said, you did a lot for her. You did a lot more for her than the typical adult child is going to do for their mom. So you should feel very good that she was very happy in her final years. And, you know, that's a fact of life that when people get old, they develop problems. It's very sad that she died, but she made it into her 80s and she had heart problems. And unfortunately, that's the way it goes. But you made her final years very happy. But that wasn't much consolation. He just couldn't get over it. So I was kind of watching him melt down in the upcoming years. And he inherited all the money that she had. She wasn't really rich, but she she had... Remember, his dad had uh, passed away in, uh, I think, 2012. So the money went to her and then to Dave. Dave had two sisters, one of whom, whom was estranged from the family and one whom had already passed away some years beforehand. So he got everything. So he had plenty of money. But I watched him spending the money very irresponsibly and just kind of being very difficult to talk to. In fact, sometimes incoherent. And he was drinking a lot. And I also noticed he was uh, getting worse health-wise where he kept having to go to the hospital for various surgeries. And eventually he was walking with a cane. And this is a guy only four and a half years older than me. And he told me that he was going to be dead within five years. And I said, no, 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 you don't, you don't have to make that your future. You're not that old. You don't have to be dead within five years. I know you've got some health problems, but you can turn this around. You, there's no reason you should be dead within five years. And I, I was trying to make him feel better. I, was, I, I did all I could to make him feel good about his, his life and himself and everything else. But uh, it was kind of falling on deaf ears. It, it was just, I think it was the three things combined 
and I think his mom passing away was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Even though it was many years after Doug Beatty passed and after Sam Kiniston died in that accident, I, I think these three deaths just together really broke him. And I watched him melt down both emotionally and physically. And he kept ending up in the hospital. And anyone who was following him on Facebook could see that he wasn't quite right for the last few years. And that's why he wasn't on radio. But he was still my friend, and I I was still trying to help, and I was still trying to get him to turn around. It just just didn't happen. So anyway, in mid-October, he vanished from Facebook, which was a bad sign because of the health problems plus the fact that he was on Facebook a lot. And for him to just be gone for weeks and not even warn that he's going to be going into the hospital, because he was telling people when he would be going into the hospital for this surgery or that surgery, so he didn't give any such warning here. He just posted something fairly mundane, and then just vanished. And that's never a good sign with someone who is either old or having existing health problems, and he was the latter. So after a few weeks had passed, I was discussing it with one of our mutual friends, and we both were concerned, but I, I couldn't find any information. We both couldn't reach him. We were worried that he had passed away. Well, it turned out he was still alive, but obviously in not very good shape. I, something must have happened. I still don't know what, and he was probably in the hospital. On November 25th, I tried again to find things out. I tried to search for any obituary or death records, but did not find any. So I still had some hope that he was alive. In fact, it had only been about six weeks since he had last posted on Facebook. So I thought, okay, maybe he's just been in the hospital and hasn't been able to access the internet or isn't in the condition to get on the internet. Maybe he'll pop back up and say, hey guys, I just had such and such major issue, but uh, I'm back from the hospital and everything's fine. But that didn't happen. And all of December then passed and he didn't appear anywhere. So on New Year's Eve, I decided to take another crack at this. I didn't go anywhere for New Year's Eve. So I was home. It was raining. And I decided to try again. And I checked the website of the county where he lived. And it wasn't all that easy to find, but I found a section of the website where I could search. I'd actually missed it the previous time. And I searched, and unfortunately, it showed that Dave Lerman had passed away on November 21st. I think it probably wouldn't have shown anyway, even if I had found it when I searched on the 25th of November. It was probably too soon for that website to be updated. But by December 31st, it was definitely updated, and I saw the bad news that confirmed that Dave Lerman had passed away at the age of 55. And whenever I see things like that, I always have like this sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. Just like, oh my God, I'm never going to speak to this person again. They're just gone. We'll never hear from them. I'll never see him again. He's just not here anymore. And he'll never be here. And it's weird. And it's sad. And I kind of just sat there staring at the screen showing date of death November 21st. It didn't list the cause. It just stated that he passed on November 21st. And it was definitely him. It was the exact city he lived in that it was listed there so it was definitely him there are other Dave Learmans in the country but not in that city which isn't very big 
And there was no obituary because his parents are both gone. One of his two sisters died before he did. And his other sister is estranged from him. And I think from the whole family. So there's really nobody to write an obituary. I'm not even sure who was aware that he had passed away. He was living, I believe, still in his mom's house in Michigan. So I'm not even sure among those who knew him personally if anyone was aware that he had passed away. I had not seen anything on the internet to indicate that. I had even messaged his sister who was estranged and asked if she had heard anything. She didn't respond to me. So I decided I should write an obituary. Not an official one that appears in a newspaper, but I wrote one on Poker Fraud Alert. And I also wrote one on his Facebook page because there were people showing up on his Facebook kind of searching for him when he hadn't uh, appeared in a while. So now they can see that. You can go take a look. It's right up there on his Facebook page. And now people who Google him can find this and they can read about his life. And you can also see a picture of me and Dave Learman taken on the high roller Ferris wheel in Las Vegas in 2013. And if you want to hear Dave Learman on Poker Fraud Alert Radio, he was on a number of episodes in 2012 and 2013. I think four or five. Let me give you the dates here if you want to. Unfortunately, they don't have timestamps, but the episodes were not as long back then, so it shouldn't be that hard to find if you just jump around. We had fairly long segments. Let me give you the exact dates you can search for in the radio archives if you want to hear Dave Lerman. Okay, so we had him four times on the show. One of the most entertaining ones is probably the first one on October 2nd, 2012. Then he was again on two weeks later on October 16th, 2012. He was again on the January 15th, 2013 show and then he was also on the april 30th 2013 show and i was surprised when i went back and looked i thought we had him on more recently than almost 10 years ago but i guess we didn't the last few years was intentional because he just wasn't in the mental state that i felt he should be on radio but i don't know why we didn't have him on during the years between like 2013 and 2018 I guess it just didn't happen. I've been friends with him the whole time, so there's no reason. He just wasn't, I guess. But you can find him on there, and you can hear pretty lengthy segments of him, and you'll get a very good idea of his personality. And he talks about some of the stuff I was referring to in Hollywood that he did over the years, both very old stories and more recent stories. One more story I want to tell you about Dave Lerman and that's about the Sirius XM 80s cruise in 2016, the inaugural 80s cruise, where Dave Lehrman almost got me a job on there, co-hosting the karaoke and 80s trivia activities on board, where we basically would get this free, fairly expensive 80s cruise in, a, in a exchange for running these activities on the ship. So let me tell you what happened and why you never heard about it. Sirius XM came up with the idea of doing an 80s cruise in 2015, and this cruise was to take place in early 2016. And this cruise would be a lot more expensive than the typical seven-day cruise, but they would have a lot of kind of has-been 80s music acts on there 
who would play concerts on the ship. So anyone who's very big on 80s nostalgia would really love it because not only is it an 80s-themed cruise where they have 80s trivia and 80s karaoke and a lot of 80s stuff on there, you actually have a lot of different 80s musicians who were very famous at the time appearing on the ship and performing for you. The original 80s cruise, again, was to take place in early 2016, in February, the planned acts to be here to be there originally were Huey Lewis in the News, Richard Marks, Starship, Cool and the Gang, A Flock of Seagulls, Modern English, Naked Eyes, Tiffany, Wang Chung, and then they had others that they brought on later, including someone who ended up being a big part of this story, Biz Marquis. I'll get to his part shortly. So this was the first 80 cruise, and they've had them every year. I'm not sure if they had one in 2021. They had one in 2020 during COVID, like right at the beginning of COVID. And I could tell the DJs really were not very happy about having to go on there because they would have all the 80s DJs from Sirius XM go on the cruise. And they really didn't want to because of COVID. It was in March of 2020, but it it happened. I don't know if anyone caught COVID on the cruise, but they had had it from 16 through 20. I'm not sure if they had it in 21, but I I know it's back. So you can do the 80s cruise again, but this is the very first one. And it's like thousands of dollars per person. It's a pretty expensive cruise. That's like even for the cheapest stateroom. Well, Dave got a gig through Biz Marquis, who he had befriended in the early 90s. Now, remember, Biz Marquis was the one who did that really weird novelty song called Just a Friend. Here's what Just a Friend sounded like. Then when I asked, do you have a man? She tried to pretend. She said, no, I don't. I only have a friend. Come on. I'm not even going for it. This is what I'm going to say. You, you got what I need. But you say he just a friend. And you say he just a friend. Oh, baby, you got what I need. Okay, so you get the point here. It's hard to picture this was a big hit in 89 and 90, but it was. I remember it. It was like all over radio. So remember, Dave was very big in Hollywood back then in the late 80s, early 90s. So he befriended Bismarck. I don't even know the story behind that, but he befriended him then and they kept in contact over the years. So in 2015, Dave was talking to Biz and said, you know, I'm really having a hard time getting work these days. If there's anything you know that you could get for me, I'd really appreciate it. Well, Biz told Dave that he had just signed to be an additional performer on the inaugural Sirius XM 80s cruise. Dave said, okay, uh, is there anything you can get me on there? And Biz said, well, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll see what I can do here. They're mainly trying to hire very recognizable names from those days, and you're not one of them, but we'll see if there's something I can get you to do on board there. So Biz talked to the directors of the cruise and they agreed to hire Dave to run the pop culture and trivia game shows as well as the karaoke on board. Dave had been on a game show called the World Series of Pop Culture, which is funny he'd put the WSOP and it was a different WSOP than what we know, but this is the World Series of Pop Culture, the WSOPC you might think is WSOP circuit, but no, it's the World Series of Poker 
uh, you know, I'm getting confused now, the World Series of Pop Culture. So he appeared on that. So Biz was able to sell this to the 80s cruise directors that this guy was an expert in 80s pop culture and would be great to run the trivia and karaoke activities on board. So they said, okay, we'll hire him. So they contacted him and told him the job was his. However, no paperwork had been signed yet. He was not formally promised the job. It was just informally told he'd get the job. Well, then Dave was bragging about this on Facebook and was talking about how he could bring a plus one on the cruise with him. Now, I think Dave was just kind of lonely. I think he just wanted a friend to come with him. He, he wasn't necessarily looking for a girl. Now, I gave it a little time before I spoke up because I, I think he would have preferred a girl came with him for obvious reasons. But when no girl spoke up about it, I said, you know, if you want to go with another guy, <laughs> I'll go with you here because uh, I like the idea of this whole 80s cruise, but I don't want to pay like 4000 bucks for it or whatever it costs. And he said, okay, sure. Yeah, you can be my plus one. I said, okay, sweet. So he said, okay, one question, though. Would you like to also have the same job on board as me? Would you like to help me out with it? And I said, yeah, sure. So he went to the people at uh, Sirius or whoever was running the cruise and and asked, uh, can I have my friend Todd help me out with these things? Can we both run the 80s trivia and the karaoke? And they said, yeah, sure, the more the merrier. So they not only said I could do it, but I was going to be given some kind of uh, small stipend uh, to pay me for doing this. So now I was not only going to be on the cruise, but I was also going to make some money there. Not big money, but I was actually going to be paid to be on there. And this was going to be easy to do. This wasn't going to be like a full-time job. It's not like they're going to hire me as a room steward or as a waiter. I'd never want that crap. But to run something like 80s trivia, that sounds fun. You know, like... I don't really consider that work at all, especially just to do for one week. So I I was very happy to do that. It seemed kind of fun. Then he talked to them more about what he'd be doing. And somehow he arranged that at some point they would put me and him on the 80s on 8 channel on Sirius XM live from the cruise maybe doing the trivia. I don't exactly know, but we were supposed to appear on air on 80s, 80s on 8, which is the most listened to channel on Sirius XM. So he had arranged that too. So this was pretty exciting that was coming up. However, I didn't have anything promising that I was going to get any of this. I didn't get anything promising I would have a free ticket to the cruise. I didn't get anything promising that I would have this job. It was all informal. And I was waiting for it. And I was bugging Dave saying, come on, when can I have something formal? Because I really wanted something concrete to know I really had it. I hadn't even talked to anyone directly at the 80s cruise. This is all coming through Dave. Well, here's the truth. Dave was not all that happy with his gig because he wasn't really looking to go on the cruise for fun. He, he needed to make money. And the little bit of money they were going to pay us for this was not really worth his while. So he wanted more. So he went back to them and said, look, you know, I, I do this for a living. I, this, it's nice to have this cruise, but that's not really what I'm here for. Can, can you give me a little bit more money here so at least I can support myself once I get home? So they said, all right, fine. Then he said, oh, well, wait a minute. You know, the cruise is not li- leaving from anywhere near me. I'm going to have to fly to the departure location round trip, and that's going to be expensive. Can you give me some plane tickets? 
to to and from the cruise departure location, you know, round trip from Vegas. And they said, okay. And he asked them, can they give me plane tickets as well? They said, okay. Then he said, oh, and you know, the stateroom, uh, you're giving us an inside cabin kind of around where the staff stays. And I'm really not that happy about this. Yeah, you know, it's kind of claustrophobic. It's very small, especially with my friend Todd coming, both of us in the same room. Can you give us a little more space. Can we have like a balcony stateroom? Well, they were already starting to really regret that they had told him they'd hire him because he's making demand after a demand. But they're like, oh, okay, fine, fine. We'll give you a balcony stateroom. But privately, they said, that's it. If this guy demands one more thing, we're going to tell him to go take a hike. The problem was Dave just couldn't leave well enough alone. He was convinced that with them backing down on every single request that he gets something more. So he comes to me and says, how tall are you? Now he'd met me before. He knew I was way taller than him. You can see in the picture of us in the thread I made about him, you can see I'm way taller than he is. So he wasn't sure exactly how tall I was. He could just see I was a lot taller than him. So I I told him I'm six foot two. And he said, well, could you pass for six foot five? And I said, no, there's no chance I could pass for six foot five. I said, if you want to say six, three, yeah, people could believe that. They're not going to believe six foot five. So I said, why does this even matter? Who cares how tall I am? He said, well, I want to get a bigger room. I said, I thought you did get a bigger room. He said, no, no, no. I want a suite. I go, okay, but how would me being six foot five get us a suite? <laughs> why, why would we not get a suite if I'm six foot two and I would if I'm six foot five? And he said, well, I want to tell them you're too tall for the bed in the room and that you need more room there. I go, yeah, but the beds aren't any bigger in the suites. He says, oh, I know that, but you know, we'll, we'll just say we'll put something you know, at the end of the bed so you can fit on it. We, I, we've just got to convince them you're six foot five and you're a really big guy and that you know, even in a balcony room, it's going to be a tight squeeze for you. So I'm going to tell them that and ask for a suite. <laughs> now, keep in mind, the suites are really expensive. Even the regular stateroom is expensive on this cruise, but the suites really expensive because there aren't that many of them. So... You have these people who have a lot of money, who did very well in life and are now middle-aged and have a soft spot for the 80s and love the 80s, and they love the idea of this cruise, but they want to be in a suite and can easily afford it. So there was no shortage of people who were going to pay huge money for these suites. They were never going to give that to us for free. The fact that he got a balcony room out of them was amazing. But he was going to come to them with his tail about me being six foot five to get a suite? Doesn't even make sense. So I tried to tell him this is going to make no sense. You're just going to piss him off. But he said, no, no, don't worry. You've seen me work magic before. I will get us the suite. So I said, okay, but you can say what you want. This is your thing, but I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to get on board and say I'm six foot five. And in fact, if they ask me, if they see I'm not six foot five, I'm not going to claim I'm six foot five. I'm going to tell them that I didn't know anything about this. And Dave just must have estimated my height as six foot five when I was really only six foot two. I said, I'm not going to lie to anyone. I'm not going to lie on the phone. I'm not going to lie in person. I'm not going to go along with the six foot five crap. But if he wants to say this without me saying it to them, fine. But I'm not going to back this up. So he said, okay, that's fine. He, he actually told me that uh, maybe it'd be helpful if once I get on board, I, I get some elevator shoes so I look six foot five. <laughs> I said no to that as well. I mean, I, I never thought I'd have to wear elevator shoes in my life. That's one thing I just wasn't ever going to need. And, and now he wanted me to get elevator shoes. Anyway, so I still said this wasn't a good idea. So we have a balcony room. Just let's leave it here. They're not going to give us a suite here. 
He also told me that they might believe me about the six and five thing is when I walk by the staff there, if I can stand up as tall as I can. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous thinking back to this. Anyway, I, I was really starting to regret even agreeing to go on this cruise. I, I didn't have to be like the fake six foot five guy. It was weird. Well, he called up the 80s cruise and he pitched the whole thing about me being six foot five and we need a suite. And as you can imagine... They said no. Yeah. Not only did they say no, they told him they're basically done with the whole thing. They said, you know, we've, we've given you so much and all you ever do is ask for more. We did this as a favor. We did this as a favor to Biz Marquis. All you've done since the beginning is squeeze more and more and more out of us and we're done. We gave you the balcony. We didn't want to really give you the balcony. We gave it to you as a final concession. And now you're trying to hit us for a suite. You're just never going to stop. Well, Dave realized he screwed up. He kept trying to beg them. Okay, we'll take the balcony. Forget we ever asked. They're like, no, no, we're done with you. Deal's over. Goodbye. Remember, he had nothing in writing. He had no actual legal promise that he would be hired for this. So there was no recourse. They could revoke this at any time because it was only an agreement in theory. Well, Dave was very embarrassed. He didn't know how to tell me this because I had told him not to go forward with the six foot five crap and this ruined the whole thing. So he was so ashamed he didn't know how to tell me and was delaying telling me. So the cruise was drawing closer and closer and he wasn't giving me any confirmation or any kind of cruise ticket or any confirmation number, or even a contact person that I could call and verify that I was going. He kept saying it's still on while he tried in the background to keep begging for the jobs back. So finally, within two weeks of when the cruise was coming and I had no confirmation, I realized he was full of crap and that this whole thing had fallen apart. So I called him and I told him, there's no 80s cruise for us. I said, I bet this is not happening. I bet you must have messed it up. And he said, okay, I will admit there was a bit of a problem when I called him and asked for the suite, but I'm still working on it. So we're, we're going to go. I'm just, I'm very, very close to convincing them to go forward with everything as we had before. It just, it just kind of delayed it. I go delayed it. It was two weeks away. How could we not have any of this arranged? He said, don't worry. We're going to be on that cruise. You'll see. Well, it took until the cruise leaving port without us for him to admit that this wasn't happening. <laughs> Even the day before, he was still saying that that he thought we were going to be able to be there. So I don't even know who they ultimately hired to do the trivia and the karaoke, or if they just assigned it to an existing employee, or if one of the VJs from MTV that do the DJing on Sirius XM these days, I, I don't know if they did it, maybe. I, I don't know. They gave it to somebody else. So that was that. It was a little bit annoying, but I, you know, I wasn't even mad at him. It was Dave Lehrman being Dave Lehrman. Would have been fun, but that was him. Oh, you know, I've got one more Dave Lehrman story. I'm sorry. I may have told this before on radio, but I've got one more story, then we'll uh, we'll move on. In 2012, I had told some people on the forum that I might have a terrestrial radio show. It'll be a pop culture show that I'll be doing with a partner. And the partner, and in fact, the person who was arranging the whole thing, was Dave Lehrman. If you've been to the Rio, I'm sure you have seen Kiss Monster Mini Golf. It's still there. It is an indoor mini golf course with the theme of the band Kiss. 
And Dave worked there for some time in the early 2010s. And he, I guess, got close enough to the owners of Kiss Monster Mini Golf, which, by the way, was not owned by the band Kiss. It was just licensed by them. And I, I guess they would occasionally make appearances there, but it was not a Kiss-owned business, which is a Kiss-associated business. So he convinced the owner of the business to be the sole sponsor of a terrestrial radio show where you're basically paying to be on the air. There's a number of these stations around. In fact, that guy Mark Hoke, when we talked about him, he's on one of those stations in Vegas. So one of these pay-for-a-time-slot stations in Southern California was uh, selling shows if you wanted to buy a slot on there. And Dave convinced Kiss Monster Mini Golf to pay for six months of a spot for us on the station, plus give us some kind of uh, small salary, something pretty small, but it was something, plus give away a uh, prize, a grand prize for two people to attend the Gene Simmons Rock and Roll Camp in October 2012. And if you Google it, you can still find like a flyer for that camp that actually took place. And apparently uh, Gene Simmons was even going to come on the air to promote it at one point. So this is going to be like a pop culture show that was completely sponsored by Kiss Monster Mini Golf. And that would be the only ad we would run would be for them. And then the grand prize for some kind of contest that we would hold would be these uh, two spots in the rock and roll camp that uh, Gene Simmons was one of the people running. It wasn't just Gene Simmons. It was like several rockers were getting together to hold this thing. So it was pretty cool. I was happy to do it. Just as we were about to sign the contract, Dave's dad passed away. So he went back to Michigan to go to the funeral. So Dave said, I can't do this right now. I'm Number one, I'm really sad about my dad passing away, and I can't even think about this show. And, and number two, I, I can't even be there to sign anything. So I'm going to tell the station owner, who is a very uh, suspicious guy in general. So he told this, the station owner that uh, we have to delay this because his dad just died. Well, the station owner didn't believe it. The station owner thought we were screwing with him. Because the station owner was skeptical of this thing the whole way, and he thought that this wasn't a real show, it wasn't really going to happen, we were wasting his time, and it was hard to convince the guy in the first place that this whole thing was for real, and then when Dave said, oh, no, 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 we can't, sell, we can't sign the contract, give it another week because my dad just died, he didn't believe it, he shut down. And he just told Dave, nope, the whole deal's off. So I contacted the guy, and I said, this is totally serious, Dave's dad really passed away, how about I send you a link to the obituary, you can see that the guy just passed away. It's right online. And Dave will be back in a week, and I promise we'll do it then. And if you really need to discuss anything further, you know, you can talk about it with me in the meantime. And the owner told me, no, the deal's with Dave, not with you. You're just a side person. I'm not talking with you. I had the deal with Dave. He said he's signing the contract by such and such day. I don't believe the thing about his dad. It's just an excuse. I've had a feeling he was messing with me the whole way. So either get Dave to sign and return that contract by the day we agree, or the show is not happening. And I tried and tried to reason with him, but the guy would not listen to me. 
and shut down the conversation and said, that's it. I'm not talking to you any further. Goodbye. So I went back to Dave and I said, well, what should we do? I don't want to pressure you when you're with your dad just having passed away and you being back in Michigan to go to his funeral. I, I don't want to pressure you to do this. So if, if you want to tell the guy to shove off, then I'll give them a message. And Dave said, yes, uh, tell him to shove off if he can't show some kind of respect for the fact that my dad just passed away. When we can prove it, then F him. And I said, you know what? I agree. So I passed the message along and there was no radio show. So that would have been interesting. Very bad timing. You know, if his dad hadn't passed away, we would have had that show sponsored by Kiss Monster Mini Golf. There's a lot of almosts here. Oh, well. Anyway, rest in peace, Dave Lehrman. I enjoyed knowing you even during the frustrating times, like with the 80s cruise that didn't occur. You're a very, very unique person. I'm glad I got to know you. And I'm sad that you left this earth as soon as you did at the age of 55. And thank you for coming on this show back in 2012 and 2013. I wish we had you on more recently than that. All right. I didn't expect the segment to be so long. It's an hour long, but because I had a lot to say, a lot of Dave Lerman stories. Let's get to the news in poker and gambling, which I'll be honest, was not a super heavy news week or the last two weeks, really. I think it's because of the holidays, just not that much happened. So just as well that I spent an hour talking about Dave. Oh, hold on. Matt the Rat, hello. Hey. Sorry about uh, reading about uh, Dave Learman there. Yeah, I know you followed him too. I know you didn't really know him personally, but I know you mentioned on Facebook you were following him and you were kind of witnessing his decline after his mom died. Yeah, I mean, it just, uh, a lot of his posts were just kind of weird. And uh, I mean, from not knowing him personally, it did seem like he was seeking a lot of attention. And whenever he said he was sick, you you never really knew how sick he was because it was kind of like the boy that cried wolf. You know what? I, I had someone in my life like that uh, many years ago that also did that. And then they died at age 31. So I, I wow. felt I, I never openly doubted them, but I would think this after I'd hang up the phone with them, that this person was uh, exaggerating. Uh, what was going on with them and then I got the news that they passed away at 31 of a heart attack so I felt pretty bad for even thinking that Thank thankfully I never told them I thought they were kind of exaggerating to me but yeah you know I, I understand I, I kind of was wondering that myself I mean I saw he was getting real surgeries and really going into the well, hospital yeah, he was so, in the hospital yeah. a lot he would take pictures of it too yeah. but you never knew he would never say what it was for yeah, though I, when I saw him walking with a cane, he did a video of himself walking with a cane, and it didn't seem to be staged or oh, anything. Oh, something about so, his hip or something. Yeah, too, so yeah. like I'm like, this guy is not that much older than me. He's walking with a cane now, and he keeps going to the hospital. So it really did look like there was some kind of real health thing going on. It was, he'd gained a lot of weight, so he was very overweight, too. So there was like, yeah, a lot of things happened. I didn't think it was going to lead to a death anytime soon, but I, I at the same time, I wasn't like, oh, my God, he's so healthy. How'd this happen? So... Uh, I, I think it was kind of a combination of just uh, deterioration mentally and also uh, physically at the same time from uh, yeah. maybe both ailments and, and just being depressed over his mom and, and other things. And and also, um, I, I read your post and listened to the podcast about the I am Greek situation. Um, you know, a, a funny thing about, I don't know, 
Like, he was a regular always in the chat, and he would always say Opa to me, right? Like, uh, you know, always. Yeah. Or, or like, if, if it was his wife, like you were, you know, thinking. And I remember one time, and I can't remember the specifics, but, you know, sometimes guys are chatting, and, oh, my wife wouldn't let me do this or something. And, and he made some kind of comment, and it was it was about his wife, but it was kind of weird. And now it kind of makes sense that if it was his wife, it's something that, she would say it was, it was just kind of strange and it kind of, kind of added up when, when you said that, I, I think you're right in your guess. Yeah. It seems like it. And especially because it doesn't appear that he was Greek. It appears that she was the one who was Greek. And this person was very into their Greek identity saying Opa and calling themselves. I am Greek. And it appears she's the one with the Greek heritage. And he looked like he had a, an Irish heritage from his name. So mm-hmm. I, I, I have a feeling that uh, this, this was her the whole time. And it, it is too bad that we didn't find this out until after she had passed away. Because I, I would have liked to say to her, yeah, just be yourself. Tell everybody you're a, yeah. woman, a woman. It'll be interesting. Well, I mean, I'm Greek was in the chat every single radio, like every time and always played the free role. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one other thing here is um, I was listening and I about that um, the D Lucky. Yeah. And and I I did watch just a couple of his YouTube videos and you know you know what's funny is like how he's always showing obviously always just the winners. But there there's a there's two things that really stand out. So he's showing these people that win and like yeah, they're doing the $250 spin. So of course like they win like 28,000 and stuff like that and and then the, but here's the funny thing. So at the end, well th- three things. They go Oh, are you going to book another session? And they've just won like 20 grand and they're like, "Oh yeah." And I'm just thinking, I don't care how much you won. The guy just basically showed you his strategy. Why are you going to pay him another like 2 grand or whatever just to meet him to spin again? Yeah, he he has them bring a lot of money there and and he, the expectation is that they're going to spin everything that they've brought. But when they win, though, he says, oh, are you going to book another experience? Meaning, like, oh. maybe tomorrow you're <laughs> going to... Yeah, on some of the videos. And everybody that's won is like, you know, when they win a lot, they're like, oh, yeah, like, this guy's really lucky or whatever. And it's, I'm just thinking, well, the guy just showed you what to do, even <laughs> though it was really nothing. Uh, why would you pay again? And then, if you notice, too, he always says, hey, I know the director of Louis Vuitton. Would you like to meet them? Of course, the guy's getting kickbacks. If somebody just won twenty grand and is going to meet, go over to Louis Vuitton and probably spend money because they think they're getting a deal, and then I'm sure he gets a kickback. Yeah, yeah. The, this guy is very slick, and uh, this whole thing is set up so he can make a lot of money, really not helping anybody do anything that's useful, but appear to be, and yet not doing anything illegal throughout the whole thing. Because his entire scheme, I can't point to anything that is either criminally illegal or even anything you could really sue him for and win. He's very, very careful with that. And by the way, he is very careful, but you would just think sooner or later, like people are going to start to do research on him. And like, I know people sign an NDA, but you know what? That thing is worthless. uh, That NDA in this situation. It might be uh, definitely an NDA doesn't apply if there's about something illegal uh, this one, he could try to claim there's nothing illegal here, but they could claim back that uh, this isn't what he portrayed it to be, 
and that uh, he wants to, they want to warn other people because they, they think this is something misleading that's that's ripping people off and they want people it, to know it so, is it's, yeah. yeah like you said it's not illegal but it's it's misleading and implied that you're going to win a lot of money and so you see these guys, like um, the research, uh, you know, the guy was doing the research on it. And then he's posting these TikTok videos of people that lost. He's like, as I was leaving, you know, there was like, you know, whatever, how many, five, six people in line or that had just done it. And like, did you win? No. Did you win? No. Did you? Everybody's saying no. It's just a sheer numbers game that one out of 50 people are going to win. And because they're doing $250 a spin, they're going to win big. Yeah, and and what uh, D. Lucky does, by the way, he's always got this big Samoan bodyguard with him. Because D. Lucky is not a very big or intimidating guy, so he's probably afraid that if people get pissed off, that they'll start making a big deal, and and maybe you'll even get punched by somebody. So he has this really big Samoan guy, this big scary Samoan guy as a bodyguard that basically chases anybody off who either gives D. Lucky a hard time or is doing something that D. Lucky doesn't like, like trying to take a picture of him that's unauthorized. So... Uh, anyway, if you guys want to see more about D. Lucky, I actually posted his name and picture on Poker Fraud Alert on the thread on uh, the Scam Scandals and Shadiness Forum. You'll find the thread oh, there. Cool. And uh, his name is David Fan, not David Pham. David Pham is a poker player. This is not the same guy. This is David Fan with an N. And you'll see two pictures of him, one which was published by Vegas Dave, of all people, because he's friends with Vegas Dave. And before D. Lucky got to be known... Vegas Dave posted a picture of them at a Lakers game in December 2019. And in fact, uh, it's on Getty Images. I don't know how this got on Getty Images, but uh, it's there with him and uh, Vegas Dave's then girlfriend named Holly Saunders, who is a golfer. It looks like D. Lucky is with Holly Saunders. She's holding him kind of like a girlfriend would, but but this is actually Dave's girlfriend at the time. But anyway... You can oh, see. Wow. A, I, I'm just looking at the picture right now. That guy's got a big forehead. Yeah, he does have a very big forehead. So the, the girl with it's him, huge. Yeah. So the hot girl with him is not his girlfriend. That was Vegas Dave's girlfriend. And oh, she yeah. looks like a model. Yeah. Well, she's actually a golfer, but she does look like a model. But yeah, she she uh, was with him in the picture. Was not his girlfriend. You can see a clear picture of him, and then a picture of him in action, which was an unauthorized picture taken of him secretly by a poker fraudulent radio listener. So this picture, yeah. the other picture of him in action with some woman at a slot machine that you won't find that picture anywhere else on the web because that was given to me taken by a listener and you can see him as he's working there so uh, anyway you can also see i have a link to the nevada registry of his business called d lucky inc which was registered in august 2020 and he is all of the officers. There's like 10 officers listed, but they're all him, <laughs> except except one, Vanessa Fan, which might be his wife, someone related to him or his wife, is also one of the officers, but every other position is him. So it's definitely him. You can even see an address there. I don't know if it's his address, but uh, you can see all the info there. It's it's public record, so I'm not doxing or anything. It's uh, right there, Nevada public records that I have a link to. You know, you know, I mean, the guy's totally shady and stuff, but the one thing I will give him props for, he has set up a pretty slick business where the guy is making a lot of money. Oh, he is. He's making a lot of money. And that, that's what I've been hearing from everybody that's been discussing him with me behind the scenes. And in fact, uh, people have been asking me for a long time, not super long, but for a little while before I actually did the segment, to do a segment on him because apparently he's been 
racking up a lot of money with these D-Lucky experiences at various casinos. And some casinos care more than others. I've noticed, as I said last time, he doesn't do these at Caesars property. So it's possible he either got banned from Caesars or was just told not to. I'm not sure which one it was, but he's clearly not doing it at Caesars properties from what I can see from his own list. But he is doing it at some MGM properties. He he was doing it at the Wynn. And then he also does it downtown, including El Cortez, as someone mentioned in that uh, TikTok video I played last time. Yeah, they were all pissed but, off that uh, it got changed. Uh, apparently, El Cortez doesn't give a crap at all. You can complain all you want to El Cortez, and they're not going to give a crap. And that doesn't surprise me because it's a, a trash casino downtown, and they are they, they don't hold very high standards for anything. So it, it depends how much the casino cares about its reputation, whether the, or not they're going to allow something like this to go on. And I'm surprised the win is still allowing it. I, I was shocked the win was willing to have a D-Lucky tournament, which fortunately was terminated before it could exist, thanks to a listener here. But Yeah, I mean, that just goes to show you how these big corporations do no research. Yeah, they don't. They they just quickly must have looked and saw he had a YouTube channel. I'm like, oh, okay, it's a slot He's machine got a player. Lot of followers. You yeah, got followers. Yeah, yeah like it's a, like they have this Brian Christopher guy who has a slots channel, and there's a Brian Christopher actual slot machine that's been made, and, and he does promotions within casinos. They probably saw him as another Brian Christopher, but he's very different. You know, Brian Christopher doesn't have these these meetups where you pay him big money to to have a slot machine run the, with him. So it's two different things. And Brian Christopher has a bigger following and makes a lot of money through his YouTube anyway. But uh, I think they were seeing him as like another Brian Christopher, which he's not. Yeah. Anyway, oh, one last thing before I I. Um get out of here is um have you noticed on twitter like i don't have a large following at all like i think i had like 550 people but after elon took over and got rid of the bots i'm down to like 250 it's very interesting how like just a joe blow guy can have so many bots yeah following him. you know it's funny because i made this comment that when they started to show the twitter views of each tweet I said, first of all, it's kind of sad that I had some very high engagement tweets with thousands of, with not thousands, with hundreds of thousands of views. And I know this because you can look at your own views. It just doesn't show yes. it in the public. And then they, uh, they've they changed it now to everybody can see it. But I had some with 300K or more views this fall based upon some high profile things that I was mentioning or calling out. And... You can't see that because they're not showing views until uh, yeah, maybe two weeks ago or whenever it started. So I was saying that's kind of sad that I had some very high-profile <laughs> tweets and, and I don't get credit for it. But uh, I did say in that same series of tweets that I did notice that at least on my typical tweet, I get a decent number of views, which makes me think that most of my followers are real. Whereas there's some people with tens of thousands of followers. I have like 4,000-something. That there's people who with like 15,000, 20,000, 25,000, sometimes even like 80,000 that don't get any more views than I do typically. So I think, wow, these are either a lot of inactive people or more likely bots. And then the question is, were these bots that just followed them without them making it happen? Or did they actually buy followers or both? So it was interesting. So I was bragging, hey, most of my followers are probably real and active, only to have someone respond with some kind of tool, some kind of third-party tool that supposedly analyzes your Twitter to see if 
you have uh, a lot of bot followers or not, and that tool showed that I had more than average bot followers, either bot or inactive followers, compared to people on Twitter, that I actually was, was worse off as far as having a lot of bot followers and, and inactive followers, which surprised me. Now, maybe that tool is wrong. It's also possible that my tweets just get enough engagement that get a lot of views, or at least decent views anyway, that aren't always necessarily my followers. Because if someone likes my tweet or responds to my tweet, then others see it who don't follow me. So maybe that's what's happening. But I do notice it's interesting that when I tweet something, I I tend to get about the equivalent number of views as a lot of people who have way more followers than I do. So I thought, okay, that's kind of cool. But I didn't lose followers when Elon took over and they did this bot purge. In fact, I've gained followers in the past few months because of these higher profile things that I've been involved with uh, calling out. So I've probably gone from about 3,700 to 4,300 for that reason. Wow. I, I have noticed too, like on a lot of the tweets though, and you see the, like the, the number stats thing on the left, but most of the time you click it and it says views are not count, view counts are not available for this tweet. It's on like, is there like a threshold they have to have like a thousand views or something? Do you know, yeah, I or? don't understand how that works. Yeah. I don't understand why sometimes it's showing, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Anyway, that's uh yeah, sad to hear about uh, Dave there was kind of and when you when I read that post I was like yeah I haven't seen him post cuz he used to post a lot right, right? that's that's why I felt too yeah that's why yeah. I got very concerned when like 3 weeks passed and there's nothing from him and then three, wor- 3 more weeks passed and there was nothing from him and I'm like oh no this is very unlike him so he's either laying somewhere in the hospital or he's gone and yeah unfortunately he was gone yeah anyway well the good news of the day is the um Canadians won the World Junior Hockey Championships today, so that's good for us. Okay. <laughs> okay. See you later. All right. Thank Bye. you, Matt. Goodbye. I'm going to mention Matt later during the COVID segment. Matt listens to the whole show every week anyway, so he will hear it. He will hear that uh, he's a small part of the COVID segment. Jeremy Osmus has been very successful in poker in the last few years. This is someone who has caught fire. He's been around poker for a long time, but he really, really has taken it to another level in recent years. Jeremy Osmus's breakthrough was at the World Series of Poker main event. I said he finished ninth. He was actually fifth. He made the November 9, which is when they would delay the main event final table for a few months until November. And he made it to fifth place at the final table of the 2012 WSOP main event. He got $2.1 million. So that was his breakthrough. Prior to that, he did have a win at the bike in a 5K event in 2011 for, uh, actually, he got third place, didn't win, but he got 190K, so that was pretty good. But nothing compared to fifth at the main event where he got $2.1 million. Prior to his main event breakthrough, people didn't really know him. He wasn't a well-known player at all. But this got people's attention. And he was a very nice guy. He was a very soft-spoken and nice guy. He's really the type of person in poker that everyone would like. There's a lot of people in poker who are polarizing. I am a person in poker who is polarizing. Not everybody likes me, for sure. 
But Jeremy Osmith is someone who's just very likable to everyone. And that was something people noticed as well, even back then. In 2017, I actually played with him and uh, Jonathan Duhamel, who, of course, has been in a lot of controversy in recent years, but he was uh, the 2010 main event winner. So I had both of them at my table, and we actually appeared on the secondary TV table, but we never really got much airtime. None of us cashed in that one, (laughs) but I think it was in day two. None of us cashed, but I got the furthest of the three of us. Anyway, uh, Jeremy Osmus, despite his success in 2012 with a $2.1 million score, and despite another nice score to finish second in uh, 2014 at the 10K Six Max event, which is a very tough event, very, very tough event, and he finished second there for 414K. He was still subsisting as a mid-stakes grinder in Vegas. And this shows you how somebody with a lot of scores can still be kind of struggling to get by because the buy-ins and the travel fees just add up. And he was entering a lot of big buy-in events. For example, even though he cashed in this one, he entered the 25000 500 euro event in Monte Carlo for the EPT. He finished seventh for $209,000 or 188,000 euro. So that was nice, but he's obviously entering a lot of those type of events and not cashing as well. So the buy-ins I'm sure were adding up big time. So he also was subsisting as a mid-stakes grinder when he wasn't on the tournament scene. If you look at his results in the years after that, 2015, 2016, you'll see he's mainly entering four-figure buy-in events, mainly around 1,000, 3,000, 1,500, sometimes three or 5,000, occasionally 10,000. But the, the days of entering the high rollers were kind of behind him. So he, he wasn't going back down to low-stakes tournaments. He wasn't busto, but he developed a more conservative approach to bankroll management, which made sense. He probably realized that entering these high rollers are very expensive. When you go through a dry spell, you just uh, lose a fortune. So that's the way I knew him as a poker player for a number of years, was that this is the guy who made the main event final table, but was back to being kind of a mid-stakes cash and tournament grinder. Well, things started to change in the last few years. He got a second place at one of the PCA events, the Poker Stars PCA, at the $5,300 No Limit event and got two hundred thirteen k in January 2019. He also got a 19th place at the WPT main event, the Five Diamond, in uh, December 2018, a few weeks before, for seventy k. so that probably helped. And then two weeks later, he did enter a high roller, the 25K high roller at Commerce and got third for 127K. So he was starting to enter the world of high rollers again. And then he really caught fire in uh, 2019 in the mid and later half of the year. So this started with a fourth place finish at the 10K PLO event on uh, June 22nd, 2019. He got 325K for that finish. Then, in 2021 and 2022 is really when the breakout happened. He won the 50K PLO event at the World Series, so he won the bracelet and $1.189 million. He won uh, a Poker Go event 
for 263K in February of 2022. He won the 3K Limit Hold'em event in June 2022 for 142K. He won the $525 No Limit event at the uh, WSOP Circuit in August of 2022. Got a ring there. And he got a bracelet for a $365 online event in September 2022. So a lot of different strong finishes here, as you've heard, and as you saw, it got better over the last few years. But the one we're going to talk about here was a second place finish on October 11th, 2022 at the $7,777 No Limit Hold'em High Roller event online. So this is an online bracelet event, which was this weird buy-in of 7777. It's considered a high roller because it's online. And it was open to anyone playing online who was physically standing in New Jersey or Nevada at the time. He was in Nevada. So this is part of the online bracelet series. This is after the main World Series of 2022 was long over, but they had this online bracelet series, and he played it in October of 22. So he finished second. The person who beat him was an unknown player named Jared Strauss. This is what Jeremy Osmus tweeted on October 12th after he finished second. He was really hoping for that bracelet. He was just looking for yet another bracelet, and he didn't get it. And he was suspicious. He said, came up short in second in the WSOP 7777. Grats, meaning congratulations, to Jared Strauss, who I never heard of. He definitely played the best at the final table. I look forward to battling him in the live high rollers, as it's obvious that's where he belongs, despite most of his live results being in $60 South Point birds. <laughs> Very sarcastic. You can feel the sarcasm dripping from Jeremy Osmus's lips here. That obviously he belongs to these high rollers, even though most of his caches were at $60 South Point events. Ugh. Now, keep in mind, Jeremy Osmus is not someone who likes to start drama. This is not someone who would typically post that sort of thing. He was pretty certain that something happened there that shouldn't have happened. He felt that he wasn't really playing against Jared Strauss, the unknown player. He felt that someone was taking over for, or at least helping, Jared Strauss at that final table and playing really well and beat him. So he was very suspicious. And when he looked up Jared Strauss, he didn't like what he saw in Jared Strauss's Hinden Mob tournament results and felt that he was cheated in some way. Remember, this took place on WSOP.com. This was for a real bracelet, even though it was for it was an online event, which I don't agree should be real bracelets, but they are, so that's the way it is. Some people responded negatively. Some people thought Osmus was just being a sore loser. Someone said back to him, so you didn't see the multiple online results from this summer that were listed before his most recent score, which occurred in February? And someone just wrote, wah, like imitating him crying. Another person wrote, somebody is butthurt. And then another person defended Jared without insulting Jeremy by saying, I know Jared. He's been spending the past year crushing blackjack and small tournaments just to beat you heads up, bud. Congrats, it's also his birthday today, which, by the way, was true. It was his birthday on October 12th. Jared's, that is. The poker world was kind of mixed on this. Some people thought that Jeremy was being a sore loser and making allegations against someone that may not have deserved it. So what if 
Jared was an unknown player, did this necessarily mean that he was being ghosted and that he was cheating? Couldn't this just be someone he didn't know who either was taking a shot or maybe got staked and managed to beat him by playing well? Isn't that possible? And the answer is yes. So it is true that Jeremy was jumping to conclusions a bit, but I do feel that Jeremy had the right to question it. So let's talk about Jared Strauss's Hendon Mob results, which lists all of his tournament results. So if you look at Jared Strauss's Hendon Mob, his first tournament cash was in 2015. And what you see from 2015 through 2020 was a guy entering mostly three and low four-figure buy-in events, anywhere from like 200 bucks all the way up to like 1500 So, okay, that's fine. That's not a low-stakes player, but that's someone who's not taking shots at high-stakes events. Even $7,777 would seem to be out of this guy's range. But here's the part that Osmus found suspicious. Starting August 29th, 2020, you see a series of caches at very small events at the South Point in Las Vegas. All of them are $60 buy-in events, except for one, which was a whopping $130 buy-in. And that's all you see from August 2020 through February 2021, and then you see no caches all the way until June 2nd, 2022. All of a sudden, on June 2nd, 2022... He has entered the $500 housewarming event, which was the one of the first real events at the World Series. It was actually event number five, but I think it was the first uh, No Limit Hold'em event of that uh, 2022 World Series. So he finished uh, 787th to min cash there for 1840, or close to min cash. I guess it wasn't quite min cash, but something, yeah, not a big cash, 1840. But then you start seeing something that he hadn't been doing before. Three days after that $1,840 small cash, you see him enter a $5,300 No Limit Hold'em High Roller Freeze-Out event online and finish 17th for almost 11 k Then 15 days later, he goes back to playing a $240 event, which is kind of curious because why are you playing a $240 event that's not even at the World Series in between these, these high rollers? That, that's also a little bit weird. So he plays a $240 event and finishes 44th for a whopping $442. But then a few weeks later on July 10th, he's entering this uh, $7,777 high roller event, a different one than the one where he finished first. This is one he finished. He played in July and finished 29th for 13 k Then again, a week later, plays a $240 live. Then he plays a whole series of online events. Some of them are small. The first three are small, under $1,000. But then on August 27th... Uh, he enters a bike event, not online, for 5K and catches 64th for uh, 11K. Then a whole series of WSP online events for anywhere between uh, 400 and 1500. And then he enters a 5K GG WSP online event and catches uh, 158th for 26K. Then he's back to a, a $600 no limit event at the win where he cashes uh, 87th. And that's when he had, uh, five days later, that one against Osmus, which he won for 181K with an almost 8K buy-in. So Osmus was very suspicious. Osmus is thinking, 
why is he entering these $60 events and then jumping from that to entering these high four-figure events for 5300 and 7777 How does this make any sense? And he didn't say, but I'm wondering, why in between these big buy-in events is he playing these small field, no-limit hold'em events for $240 during the World Series? Not at the World Series, but during the World Series. So instead of playing World Series live events, he's showing up playing $240 small field events where, uh, where there's not even a very big prize for the whole thing. So why is he playing those? And then jumping right back into these higher stakes online events. So I will admit this is a weird pattern. Is this conclusive that there's any kind of cheating or ghosting? No. But it is a little bit of a weird pattern. So I, I will say, based upon this Hendon mob, that... At the very least, Jeremy Osmus had a right to question this. He had a right to put it out there like, what's this? Now, I will say he was misleading when he said that most of his caches were at $60 events. That's not true. Most of his caches were not at $60 events, if you go back from October 12th, 2022 and beforehand. Most of his caches were at higher events than that. But it is true that his buy-in pattern is weird. And... Yeah, sometimes people like to enter small stakes events just for fun when they're playing much bigger events. I've even done that. Like if you're with friends or whatever and you just enter it with them. But this guy was regularly playing these $60 South Point events to be cashing multiple times between August 2020 and February 2021 and wasn't entering anything else. That's a little bit strange. So the guy definitely has a strange pattern of entering events regarding the buy-ins and the type of events he's entering. I I will grant Jeremy that. But does that mean that Jared cheated? No. But that doesn't mean that Jeremy can't bring this up because there is an issue. There is definitely an issue on WSB.com with ghosting and multi-accounting. And we've talked about that before. We don't know if this is one of them, but there has been a problem with that, and we know it. In fact, there's a rumor that Mark Herm won a phantom bracelet under somebody else's account. That came out during the whole Bryn Kenny scandal. Joey Ingram asked Jeremy, has the WSOP rep reached out to communicate with the players on this common issue that seems to be taking place in their events? Jeremy said back, not that I'm aware, and it sounds like no one ever hears from them. Also, I was not aware this happens often on high rollers on WSOP. I guess I've been off Twitter when these things happened. So I pointed out to Jeremy that WSOP Online doesn't even have a customer-facing manager. And it's true. Remember, I've talked about that many times, that ever since Bill Reaney left, that a decision was apparently made that they're not going to have a public-facing manager of WSOP.com, which is insane. It is insane that WSOP.com does not have a visible public-facing manager. How could they not? And I don't know this for sure, but I believe the reason is that Bill Reaney was very, very effective by what he felt was the trolling, which wasn't trolling, it was just constructive criticism of WSB.com. And he took it personally, and he went into his shell, and he blocked people on Twitter, and he made his tweets private, and he stopped answering people. He did a shitty job there. So finally he left. He's not the poker room manager anymore. But I think on the way out, he scared everybody at WSB.com saying, you don't want this job. You do not want to be the public-facing manager because the Twitter trolls will eat you up. They're going to be awful to you. You're going to hate it, and you don't want the job. I I recommend we have no public-facing manager. 
That, that's my guess. I don't know for sure that he said that. That's my guess because that's the only thing I could think of of why there's no public-facing manager and has not been. I was sure after he left there would be a public-facing manager who could deal with things like this, but there is not. There is no one at WSB.com online that you can go to and ask questions to. You can send a support email, but you can't go to any kind of visible manager, which is awful. It's, it's crazy. I have no, it's the only site like this. I don't understand it. But if you ask them who is the manager, you never get a clear answer. Anyway, it turns out we have an update here, and Jeremy was possibly right because something was revealed on social media a few weeks later that uh, nobody, nobody really caught or paid attention to, but Jeremy brought our attention to it now. So this is one of these things that was actually a late October story, but nobody was made aware of it until now, so now it's a January 2023 story. This is what Jeremy tweeted on January 4th just yesterday. Little late in giving an update here, but a few months back, I tweeted that I was suspicious of an account that won the $7,707 WSOP event. I ended up getting an email from WSOP saying they were investigating the final table. The account that won, Jay Strizza, which is Jared Strauss, was permanently banned. Wow. Permanently banned. Number two, WSOP states their policy is not to disclose any of the findings of their investigation, so I'm not sure what they found. But to ban an account, they surely found something very concrete, whether it was a tool, meaning like real-time assistance, or team viewer, meaning someone is actually operating his mouse through team viewer, which is like a remote access to a computer desktop. I've never heard them doing such a thing. Number three, no extra money nor bracelet was awarded to anyone else. Strizza, referring to Strauss, claims he received them. I've been told it's a much bigger deal to take money from players because of gaming, etc., meaning Nevada gaming wouldn't allow it. So possibly that's why he was paid. I really don't know much about this area. Number four, a deceitful top player playing other accounts or taking them over when deep and or using RTA, real-time assistance, are massive threats to online poker, and it's too easy to do. Hence why I said anything in the first place. Bravo to WSOP.com for looking into it and doing something about it. Well, I read that to mean that he just found out that Jared was banned. But it turned out that wasn't the way it happened. When I wrote an article up about this and then tweeted it, Jeremy responded to me and said that he was banned within days of that final table. Well, that makes it even more clear. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing if he got banned three months later where maybe he did something else wrong but had nothing to do with any kind of malfeasance at that final table. But Jeremy is saying that he was banned within days of that final table. But how does Jeremy know that? Remember, they're not supposed to discuss anything with Jeremy about that account. So how does Jeremy know that? Well, he further clarified. It turned out that it came from none other than Jared Strass himself. Jared Strauss is not a social media guy. He's really not on social media very much, but he does have a Twitter account that is at jstrizza, J-S-T-R-I-Z-Z-A, jstrizza. So listen to what jstrizza tweeted on October 29th, 2022. It's all right out there. Hi, Twitter world. So a lot of you people heard my name by now. I'm Jared Strauss, and I have some things to say. 
I recently won event number 24, the $7,777 high roller in the WSP online bracelet series. You may not have heard of me before because I don't often play a lot in-person events. I've played a handful of online high rollers, though, and some others over 3K buy-in level, so it's not my first rodeo. And yes, also WSP online final table not too far back. Let's get that clear first of all. I got beat up this past summer during WSOP and took a step back to work on my game. I watched countless hours of poker for months as well as getting personal one-on-one private coaching. I felt it was time to get back in when WSOP had their what now seems to be an annual online bracelet series. Okay, let's stop right there. This is October 29th. This was 17 days after Jeremy had just lost to Jared and accused him indirectly of cheating in some way. So this is his response 17 days later on his Twitter that he doesn't really use very often, Jared. So he's saying here that he had a very bad summer at the WSOP and that he took a step back to work on his game. Okay, let's take a look at that. Is that really true? Well, it did appear that he may have had some hard times in 2020 because he suddenly dropped down to the $60 events and didn't play another event that wasn't 60 or $120 until June 2022. So you had almost a two-year span where you had no caches at anything above $130, most of which being 60 But he's not talking about that. He's talking about how he had a hard time at the WSOP in the summer of 2022. Well, looking at this, it doesn't look like he did badly. I don't know what he entered, but he did cash in the housewarming. He cashed in the 5300 high roller event online. He cashed in the $7777 event that was in July prior to the one that he won. So he didn't have any huge scores. And maybe he entered a number of events at the World Series that were adding up to be a lot of money that these caches didn't cover. I could believe that. But it doesn't sound like he had an awful summer. And he's not even claiming like, oh, I entered five different 10Ks in the summer and bricked them all. He's not even saying that. He's just saying, I got beaten up this summer. But looking at his results here, I don't see him getting beaten up. In fact, in August, which I, I don't know if he considers the summer, technically it's the summer, maybe he just means the mainline World Series, but he had a lot of online caches at WSOP online events on GG Poker and also had that min cash at the bike 5K event. So this is not a guy who struggled during the summer. He even had a cash as high as uh, 27000 online in September. That's a weird explanation. I'm not sure if I buy that he bricked everything in the summer and then hunkered down and watched all these training videos and became a great player. It's a little suspicious because his results don't really say that. Let's go on. After making a deep run in the GG series main event and having other caches, I felt super confident and continued to the WSB.com series. I reached what most poker players strive and dream for, and that is conquering and winning the coveted gold bracelet trophy. On, on top of that, it was my birthday. I couldn't ask for a better gift than that win. It was the most surreal and elated feeling I've had in my entire life. Then what happens? I wake up the next morning to see Jeremy Osmus alluding that I must have cheated, used RTA, or that my account was ghosted, nonetheless by people I've never even spoken a word to. Because why? He's never heard of me? Firstly, I'm not a big social media guy, so left me completely overwhelmed, for I've never dealt with a situation or allegation like that before, which instilled anger, frustration, and defamation to my name. I had a time set to be interviewed by Norman Chad in two days and was super pumped for it, With everything that's transpiring on Twitter, I felt like I needed to see where this was going to play out 
so I didn't receive my bracelet or fund for the win yet. So let me stop here. He's not very clear. He writes kind of like Sean Deeb. But it looks like he was saying that Norman Chad was going to interview him about his win, but that he kind of put it off because he hadn't even gotten his bracelet or money yet from the win. Which I, I don't understand how he didn't get his money because I would think the online tournament pays him right away, but maybe he means he hasn't uh, cashed it out yet. So I, I think he was trying to say he didn't want to do the interview with Norman Chad and throw fuel on this fire until he got all this in his hands, both the bracelet and the cash out of the account. I think that's what he's trying to say. The next day I played event number 25, a $2,000 buy-in, and continued my heater, finishing in 13th. However, the next afternoon, I logged in to play event number 26, the $3,200 six max, which I was super stoked for, only to see my account was locked and suspended. I immediately called WSOP to find out what the hell was going on, and they didn't tell me anything or give me a reason as to why it was banned. I received a phone call the very next morning from WSOP, and they asked me a ton of questions, including hand history. I answered and recollected most of what was asked and gave the best answers I could, however many days it was after the win. Keep in mind, I played a ton of hands, multi-tabling, and playing other tournaments different days. I waited a week, and they have now determined to permanently ban my account without reason. Okay, let me stop right here. So he's claiming that they suspended him. He called up and said, why am I suspended? That they said, we'll get back to you. That he got a call from someone at WSOP.com, and that they started hitting him with all these questions about, do you remember this hand? Can you tell me why you played it this way? Can you remember this hand? Why did you play it this way? So they they were trying to see if he really knew what he was doing, or if he was just uh, letting someone else play, or following a bot's advice. They wanted to see if he could coherently explain his plays. And so he claimed that he answered, but he couldn't remember them all because he plays so many different hands, which is a little suspicious, because when you win a bracelet... You remember key hands. Now, maybe many years later, you don't. Like, if you ask me about my bracelet win now from 2005, there's a lot of hands I wouldn't remember anymore. I remember the final hands, but uh, like, like hands kind of uh, near the end. There's some I remember well and some I don't remember well at all. So if someone were to ask me with every hand I played in that event today to explain my thinking, I may have a hard time. However, if someone asked me two weeks later, I could explain everything. So it's a little suspicious. But anyway, going on, he said that he got banned without reason. And he said, other than the pressure of the high roller community not knowing who I am, influencing the WSOP business decision in this matter. So he's basically saying that Jeremy Osmus and his friends have enough pull to just get him banned even though he didn't do anything wrong. He said, this is complete and utter BS. I played my heart out in that tournament. I had Dan Smith give me all his chips, which, which sounds bad. It makes it sound like he's accusing Dan Smith of chip dumping. But what he's meaning is that Dan Smith lost a big hand to him. And that's how he got a lot of chips. He said, I, I had Dan Smith give me all his chips holding a boat early in the early stages of the tournament. And from that point, I got blessed with the deck holding with aces and huge pots every time I got them dealt to me which is more than a handful of times, owning people with ace-king, which I got more times than I could count, etc. From the beginning, after getting a hold of the chip lead, I never looked back, almost going wire to wire with little setback in the final table. Not to mention Jeremy Osmus bluffing away his chips to me, heads up. Another thing I would like to clear up, I've spent countless hours at various local casinos playing some table games or poker. South Point was one of them. For, giving me, for those giving me shit... For playing at the point, referring to South Point, let's firstly look at the timestamps of when most of those tourneys took place. 
it was basically peak COVID when most t- casinos weren't running any tournaments. Okay, let's stop there. That's a good point. Okay, Jared, you know what? I didn't think of it either, but when I was looking at your results after reading what you just wrote, yeah, your $60 and $130 tournament results at the South Point were between August 2020 and February 2021. So is it possible that there really just wasn't anything else to play in Vegas? So he was itching to do something. Remember, this is all during the period when someone his age couldn't get the vaccine. I don't know exactly how old he is, but he he isn't like much older than me. He's probably not even older than me. I I saw a picture of him, but he's younger than me, it looks like. So he's definitely not an old guy. So he couldn't get the vaccine in the very early months of 2021. So presumably during this period of six months from August to February, from 2020 to 21, he's saying that basically very little was open and the South Point was all he had to play. So is that true? So I asked that. I asked on social media, is that true? Well, not so much. Matt Salzberg, who's very reliable, said that he remembers playing in January 2021 at the Venetian at a $1,600 event and that he fired off four bullets and lost. That is, Matt fired four bullets and lost. So it was memorable to him because he chunked off $6,400 in that event. So he's saying that there were events in Vegas at that time maybe not in 2020, but in early 21, and somehow you still have Strauss playing at the $60 events, even when there's other things to play. In addition, what about during the remainder of 2021? Because once we got to the summer of 2021, everything was reopened. So there were tons of tournaments. So why wasn't he entering the tournaments then that were bigger? Why did we not see him in these live tournaments again until mid-2022? And how come all of a sudden he can afford to play high rollers again? So we went from $60 tournaments, and then over a year passes after his last $60 tournament cash, over a year passes, all of a sudden he's back in these $5,300 and $7,777 events without any kind of mid-stage in between or without any kind of score that would explain it. So I don't really buy that. I don't really buy that he was just playing the South Point because that was all that was open then. Because then why didn't we see him in the 2021 World Series in the fall? There's no indication he was there. There's no caches from then. And he doesn't claim he was there. So that's a little bit weird. I I don't believe his story there. So it it was basically peak COVID when most casinos weren't running any tournaments. I live basically within walking distance to the point, referring to South Point again, and would go there with my local friends just to kick it and have something to do. Playing at those stakes is just pure fun. So anyone who mocked my poker career because I played there, glad you had a kick by doing so. I hope you chuckled or at least smiled when thinking about it. All in all, though the experience was more than I dreamt of while actually doing it in real life, this Twitter poker realm the next day really put a damper on my name and it wasn't enjoyable, nor were the next coming days fun seeing the like of people defaming my name. On the plus side, I saw a lot of positive comments where people saw it from my point of view and sent over good vibes my way. For that, I say thank you very much. It was much needed for me during that time. The reason it took me so long to come out with a statement which I don't think was that long, it was 17 days, is because firstly, I wanted to see where Twitter was talking, taking this whole situation. And more importantly, I wanted to wait to receive my much warranted gold bracelet and attain the money that came with it. Watch out, Poker World. I'm here for the long haul and coming for every first place. Okay, well, is he though? Has he come for every first place? This is in October 2022. Well, since then, 
We've seen him cash in a $400 event at the win, a $1,600 event at the MSPT in Las Vegas, a $400 event uh, at the same MSPT, a $520 at the win, at the WPT win, and a $1,100 at the WPT win. So it looks like he's kind of back to his entering the three and four low four-figure buy-in events like he was from 2015 to 2020. Hmm. So what do I think here? Do I believe his story? Uh, There's a lot of it I don't believe. That doesn't mean he's cheating. That doesn't mean he was being ghosted. I just think that he was telling some tall tales in that whole thing, like especially the reason he was at the South Point because it doesn't explain what was going on for the rest of 2021 because remember... After the vaccines were released and COVID dropped way down and the deaths dropped way down and we were not yet aware that the vaccines would wear off, everybody was out doing everything that summer. People were very, very happy to get back to life in the summer of 2021, as I'm sure you remember. You may have been one of those people who was cautious prior to getting the vaccine and then going out and living life. That's what I did. So why wasn't he at the WSOP in 2021? Why wasn't he at other tournaments that were running throughout 2021? How come he did not cash in a single tournament in 2021 that was not one of those little tournaments at the South Point? So it wasn't just because of COVID. He's hiding behind COVID there. There's more to that story. I'm just about sure. I don't know with 100% certainty, but it doesn't make any sense to me. Nor does his sudden entry again into high rollers when he came back. So there's weird patterns here that he's not really explaining. And some of these excuses are not really flying. However, that doesn't mean he was cheating. That might mean that he's just telling a story to fit the narrative he wants you to believe because he's afraid if he tells the truth, it's going to sound bad. Now, you may ask what would sound bad if he's not cheating? If you're not doing anything wrong, why not come out with a whole story? Well, if he really did legitimately win that without any help and without any kind of real-time assistance, there is a possibility that he was backed and doesn't want to admit it because he's afraid if he admits he was backed that people will then really, really suspect that there was ghosting going on, especially because of all the publicity regarding the Bryn Kenny stable last year. Because... Remember, Bryn Kenny was backing a ton of people, and it turned out that there was a lot of ghosting going on in that stable, even among good players. In fact, Martin Zamani told a very interesting story that sometimes he was the ghoster, and sometimes he was the ghostee. Sometimes they would bring in a better player than him to ghost him in big events, and sometimes they would bring him to ghost for worse players than him at smaller events. So that was very interesting. So it's possible that Jared could be in one of those type of stables. I don't mean Bryn's stable, but one of those types. Or it's possible that he didn't have any ghosting going on at all, but is afraid to admit that he's part of a stable now because people will suspect that and immediately go to, oh yeah, Jeremy was right. So instead he crafted this tale, possibly, that, oh, I was just playing at the South Point because I had nothing else to enter, and uh, you just haven't heard of me much because uh, I, I'm not on social media much, and I, I've i entered bigger ones before, but 
like, like he's telling stories here which when you take a look at his hendon mob results just don't really add up oh i had a terrible summer in 2022 no you didn't i can see right there in your hendon mob no you didn't so it really sounds like he's shaping a narrative that he wants you to believe. He's kind of taking what he thinks you can see about him and working backwards from that to come up with a story that makes it sound like he's 100% completely independent and that he's being unfairly blamed. I think it's very possible this is what happened. And by the way, before I get to what happened, someone contacted me when this whole thing came out yesterday and I was commenting on it. Someone came out to me privately and said they played with Jared Strauss in a live event. And they said they noticed that he was a good player, that they were impressed by his play, and that they're not surprised at all that he could win something like that high roller. They're not saying he was the best player they ever saw, but they said he was a very good player and that he could easily hold his own in that field so that I should take that for what it's worth, that this is not a fish or a mediocre player that they observed him and thought he was very good. And this is someone who's a good player themselves, so it's not some fish telling me this. However, what did we learn in 2022? What we learned is that some good and even great players are willing to cheat if it will give them an edge. Ali Imstravik is a great player, and he cheated. Jake Schindler is a great player, and he cheated. Bryn Kenny is a great player, and he cheated. And the people under Bryn Kenny, like Martin Zamani and David CSM Mizikowski, those are good players. I wouldn't say they're great, but they're good. And Zamani's insisting that they cheated. Zamani's admitting he cheated. So just because someone is good enough to win doesn't mean that they also won't cheat. Now, of course, you can't just assume anyone who wins is cheating. But at the same time, you can't just say, well, they're a good player, so I believe they didn't cheat. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. But if he is a good player, why would he have anybody ghosting him? Well, why would Martin Zamani have anybody ghosting him if he's a good player? Bryn decided that in that stable, they're going to bring in an even better player to ghost in big spots. And that makes sense. It's cheating. It's not right, but it makes sense. I have a feeling that Jared is backed. I have no information on this, but just from what I'm observing, this looks like a backed player. In fact, maybe Jared was playing live and impressed somebody who backs players. That's a lot of times how this comes about, is you enter a tournament, you get next to a guy who has deep pockets and backs people, and they notice that you're good. And they say to you, you know what? You're good. Would you like a backing deal? And then if the guy doesn't have much money, he says yes, and then they enter the stable. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's completely fine to be backed. If that's what happened, if Jared Strauss is backed and he won that event while being backed, there's nothing to be ashamed of. If he really played on his own the entire way and didn't use real-time assistance. If he won it fair and square and he was backed, there's no problem. But he really does appear to be someone backed. Let me tell you why it appears this way. Remember, he was playing low to low four-figure events and three-figure events for about five years. And then all of a sudden, he's in these $60 events. And then we don't even see him for the remainder of 2021. So we see him playing very small events for six months, and then for over a year, 
No caches at all. So this really has the appearance of a player who is busto or near busto, but might also be pretty good. Just ran through a bad streak and was out of money or nearly out of money. And then maybe around that time when he came to the 2022 World Series, he found a backer. Maybe a backer who was at a table with him at some point and was impressed with his play. So maybe he joined a stable and that the stable was putting him in these 5,300 and 7K, 8K online events. And then maybe he was playing on his own dime at other events. So like this $240 buy-in event that he played on June 20th. Why would you play a $240 buy-in event that's not even at the World Series when you just played a 5,300 two weeks before that was a World Series event? Why would you go off property? Why would you leave the World Series right in the heart of the World Series to go play some crap $240 event if you can afford these $5,300 high rollers online? It doesn't make any sense. It's not like the guy was just bored during the off season when there's no World Series and there's nothing really going on in Vegas and he just tosses $240 to play an event for fun. He left the World Series to go play this shit. Why? I rarely see anybody playing a $240 event during the World Series that has nothing to do with the World Series. This wasn't even like a Rio Deep Stacks. This was just a totally separate series. Why would he go do that during the World Series if he could afford to play $5,300 high rollers two weeks earlier? It doesn't make any sense. It's not like he lost the high roller. He he cashed for 11K. That's not huge money, but this doesn't make any sense. And then just in case you think, well, maybe he was busto. No, then uh, two weeks later again, he's entering the 777 event that he cashed 29th in. So it's, and then back again to another $240 event. It just doesn't make any sense. This is not what people do. And I know this because while I'm not a regular tournament player, I am a World Series tournament player. And I see what people play. I don't recall a single person that's sitting in a mid four-figure event with me where I ask him what he's doing for the summer or what he's doing next. Oh, you know, uh, next week I'm going to go play a $240 event uh, that's not at the World Series. Like, No one's going to ever tell me that. And not because they're hiding it, because no one does it. So I think these were on his own dime, the $240 events he was entering. And I think the online events, he was backed. And again, that's fine. That's fine. But admit it. Don't tell us the story that sounds the best. Tell us the real story if you have nothing to hide. So to me, his story is very suspicious. But it doesn't mean he cheated. I think it means he's backed. But it doesn't mean he cheated. Now, if he's backed, that does raise questions. Who is backing him? And is this a person who has a history of ghosting? So, for example, let's say we heard that Mark Herm was backing him. Let's say we heard that Bryn Kenny was backing him. Well, then I would say it's highly suspicious. I would say there's a very good chance that he cheated there. But if I heard that somebody was backing him who has a good reputation and that is not known to ghost, then I would say, okay, there's a very good chance this is very legitimate. So I'd have to know more. I'd have to know about who's backing him. I'd be pretty surprised looking at all this if he were not backed. But let's get back to the ban. We're just talking about theory regarding his Hindenmob results. We're not even talking about the ban yet. He got banned by his own admission. He got banned. So there's no question. Apparently, they confirmed to Jeremy that they banned him. 
And also, he's admitting he got banned. In fact, he's complaining that he got banned and describing what happened and said that it was shortly after his win there. So would they actually ban a bracelet winner because another bracelet winner says, oh, that guy is ghosting because I don't know him? Does Jeremy Osmus really have that pull? Because he's not Phil Helmuth. You know, Jeremy Osmus probably has a little influence at the World Series, but he's not a major, major name in poker. So would Jeremy Osmus really have the pull to do this? I don't know. I don't think so. That's pretty big to actually ban someone just because you suspect that they were cheating or being ghosted. However, remember, they can ban you at any time for any reason. So it is possible that Jeremy Osmus, who lives in Las Vegas, who has friends in Las Vegas, who's very well liked in the community, was able to get the ear of somebody who either was in power at WorldSeriesOfPoker.com or was friends with someone in power there who at the very least was willing to ban the guy. Like, we can't prove anything, but let's just get rid of this guy because it looks suspicious. And they can do it. Keep in mind, WSOP.com banned their points leader, their player of the year leader, Mike Holtz. We had him on the show, remember? In 2021, they banned Mike Holtz for suspicion of money laundering, which he wasn't doing, and the whole suspicion was stupid, and they handled it very poorly. And we had him on here in part to try to publicize the situation and shame WSB.com into doing the right thing. Because by the time he came on here, he was unbanned from WSB.com and they admitted he did nothing wrong, but he was still banned from all Caesars properties as a result. So it was weird. He could play on WSB.com again, but if he tried to enter Caesars properties, he'd be arrested. It's bizarre. And they wouldn't help him. He kept going to WSP.com saying, okay, guys, can you now undo the Caesars ban for this? Because he was banned over this. He says, look, you've seen I didn't do anything wrong. The thing you were suspecting I didn't do. So can you now get regular Caesars to unban me, which you had them do? And they weren't helping him. So that's why we had him on this show. And he also complained on social media. And, and thanks to all that pressure, they ended up unbanning him. And sure enough, he won player of the year. So it was a really, really bad treatment of their likely, and it turned out, actual player of the year of 2021, actually banning him and then uh, leaving him banned from all Caesars properties even after they cleared him. He was treated horribly there. So with a situation like that occurring at WCB.com, is it impossible to believe that because of rumors about ghosting that they might ban an unknown like Jared Strauss? And the answer is yes. But let's look at all this together. He has a weird tournament buy-in history, as we can see from his hand and mob. His explanation he posted on October 29th is full of holes. Doesn't make a lot of sense. And he was banned. He claims not to know why. Now, it's possible they didn't tell him why. It's possible they looked into it and saw that uh, they felt he was cheating, maybe not enough to do anything to him legally, maybe to where they couldn't take any money or have him arrested, but just to where something looked very suspicious and it was enough to where they just didn't want him there anymore. So they didn't want to give him any info. They're just, nope, we don't want you, goodbye. And in fact, that's sometimes what brick-and-mortar casinos will do when they ban you. You'll, you'll just get told to leave and told you can't come back there and trespassed, meaning that uh, you are read a statement that if you come back there, you'll be arrested. And if you ask them, why did you ban me? They don't have to tell you. They often won't tell you. We just don't want your business anymore. They'll often tell you. So maybe that is what happened here. Maybe they would not tell him why they banned him. Keep in mind, when people get banned from anything, they will often plead innocence to the public to try to get the social media apparatus behind them. 
or the forum apparatus behind them. I see this all the time on 2 Plus 2. People come and whine about, oh, this online poker site banned me and took all my money, blah, blah, blah. And you, you read all this sob story about how their money got stolen from them by the site and they're totally innocent. And then you ask them a few questions and they ask, act really, really evasive or they give very suspicious answers or you find out details before they didn't originally admit and you realize this person's full of crap and they just took a last ditch shot at shaming the company into getting their money and then when the forum doesn't believe them they leave i've seen that so many times we've even talked about it on this show so it is possible that when osmus said something about this on october 12th let's say hypothetically that jared did have ghosting going on or did something else that was against terms and he's like oh shit jeremy's on to me what do i do said nothing maybe he really did wait to get paid and then he made sure to get all his money off and receive the bracelet in his hands and then he's like okay i'm gonna go try to put out a defense let me write this defense for myself okay this sounds good here it is puts it out there and then hopes that uh, people just believe jeremy was a sore loser he did say sorry it took this long and 17 days isn't really long but it is a good point you know why did he take 17 days but you know i will give him okay fine if he was worried about getting his money off there and didn't want to inflame the situation, if the most important thing was getting his six-figure score off the site and receiving the bracelet in his hands before entering the social media fray and maybe changing WSOP's mind, fine. Especially because he was banned there, so he, he didn't want to rock the boat further. Okay, I can believe that. I probably would have done the same thing. His story's full of holes. I'm sorry. So, Jared, if you're listening to this, I'm not against you. It's very possible that you're being falsely accused here. I'll admit there's no concrete evidence against you here. It's very possible this was a completely legitimate win, and it's also possible it was not. But we need to hear the real story here regarding your buy-ins, because that does not make sense. I don't believe this crap about the South Point was the only thing open. I don't understand why you're playing 240s right after you're playing 5300s and 7K events, and why you're leaving the World Series to do it. It doesn't make any sense to me. I think you're backed. I think you're not being honest about the whole thing. Or you're, you're omitting things at the very least. So you've got to come out with the full truth and then let us judge from there. Don't tell us a partial truth or a story that sounds the best. I agree that there's much less suspicion upon you if you appear not to be backed than if you appear backed. Like, I am not backed. I'll sometimes sell pieces, like small pieces of myself, to people who listen to this show, but I don't have any backer. So I would not have any ghoster. I don't play these online tournaments. But let's say I did. Let's say I entered a WSP online tournament and won. I would be able to honestly say that I don't have a backer. I'm not part of any stable. This is my own money. And there was no ghoster. And people would probably believe me. If I said, oh, yeah, I have such and such backer. And it turned out to be someone who was known for doing ghosting, then it would look really bad. Or if I said I have a backer, but I won't say who it is, it would look bad. Then they suspect maybe it is a ghosting backer. So right now, it's kind of inconclusive. Definitely, Osmus has a right to question this, especially knowing that the guy got banned right after it happened. That's very suspicious. Now, if they got banned because Osmus was lobbying behind the scenes to make this happen, then that doesn't mean much. But if, honestly, Osmus did not try to lobby behind the scenes and it just happened, then I understand why he's especially suspicious that right after the guy beats him, the guy gets banned. So all this together, the banning, the holes in the story, the weird buy-in pattern, something ain't right here, in my opinion. But Jared, if you're listening, I'm happy to hear your side of it. If you'd like to tell me, you'd like to come on this show, you'd like to make a statement to me, to read here, whatever, 
just understand that I'm not going to believe bullshit. It's, it's got to all make sense, and your, your statement doesn't make sense. WSB.com should not have online bracelets. I don't like the idea of an online bracelet. We already have different WSOP grade tournaments that award rings instead of bracelets. So these circuit events are not giving bracelets. You get a ring. It's a different trophy. It's considered lower than a bracelet, but it's still considered something that's semi-prestigious. I'd like to win a ring. I, I attempt every so often to win one. The closest I've come was 10th place. Maybe one day I'll win a ring. I don't know. I'm not trying too hard. The rings are kind of cool. But I, I like the fact that rings exist rather than bracelets. Bracelets should only be for Las Vegas World Series of Poker events. I don't even like the fact that they hand them out for Europe events. Because you have a huge swath of good players that just don't make it out to Europe because it's very, very far. So I really like the bracelets only being in Las Vegas, but it's especially bad when they have online. It's exactly for this reason. Because you never know who's really playing. You know, you don't know if there's ghosting, coaching. You don't know if it's a bunch of guys in the room during the final table advising each other. You don't know. You can't tell. Some of this is completely undetectable. So if you are part of a stable and you're in Las Vegas and you're at a final table of a major event and then someone else in the stable who's better than you knocks on your door and comes over and stands behind your shoulder and tells you what to do, there is no way to tell that has happened unless someone's lips get very loose and admit it, like what happened with Martin Zamani. But short of that, short of an insider confessing, there's no way to detect it. So that's why online bracelets are just not the same as regular bracelets, because regular bracelets cannot be won that way. There can't be any ghosting in live tournaments. And the fact that there's even a story, which is probably credible, that Mark Herm ghosted his way to a bracelet in somebody else's name, I mean, that's just really disturbing. Though it'd be kind of awesome if it turned out Mark Herm was the winner here, too. Like, what if Mark Herm won this one? What if he's like like 10 ghosted bracelets? What if he's like the all-time ghost bracelet winner? What if Mark Herm has so many bracelets that are not in his name that if you add those all up, he actually has more bracelets than Helmuth? What if Mark Herm is the all-time bracelet leader? We don't even know it. <laughs> he was actually on this show before. And you know what? When he was on this show, it was a great segment. We got along really well. We had good chemistry. Some people even commented afterwards, oh, it's too bad you, can't, you guys can't do a show together because you two sounded great together. And now here I am joking about him ghosting. But that's been his rep recently. Again, no concrete proof, but... Uh, he hasn't been denying it. When people confront him about it, he just gives sarcastic answers and won't deny it, which isn't a good sign. So yeah, definitely Ostmus has reason to be suspicious here. People should not be hating on him for this. A lot of weirdness here. A lot of weirdness, and Ostmus is not a stupid guy. And yeah, you probably was sore about this, and you probably would be too if you finished second to an unknown player, and then you look at his handed mob and you see something weird, and you think maybe he was being ghosted, you'd be pissed too. You'd say, well, that's not who I was supposed to be playing. I, you may think I was, I was playing a great player, heads up, when I should have been playing someone not nearly as good. It's a good point. So we don't know for sure that Ausmus got cheated, but he very well might have been. At the very least, he has a right to bring this up, and he has a right, again, to update us that this guy's been banned, especially because this guy said it himself on his own Twitter. 775 Fraud 55, 775-372-8355 is the number to call or to text. 
Daniel Negranu has posted something that I wish a lot of other tournament players would post. And that is a true accounting of their actual results. Because all you get to see on the Hendon Mob and similar sites is when they've cashed. But you don't see when they enter and don't cash. So it's very hard to tell who's winning and losing. To be fair, Daniel Negranu has been reporting his own results. And there's no one certifying it's correct. But he's not known to be a liar. So I don't think he's making this up. I guess it's possible he had some record-keeping mistakes. But it's also very possible this is completely accurate. I think at the very least, it's close to accurate. Either way, I'm happy to see this posted. Because this is transparent, and this is giving people a real look at what a good tournament pro really is clearing playing these high-stakes events. Because you see these eye-popping cash numbers, and you think, wow, this guy's making gigantic money, but then you think about it after that, you go, wait a minute, are they even really winning? And if so, how much? So it can be hard to tell. But Negreanu was open about this, and I think that's good. He's done it before, too. This is not the first time he's done it. If you remember, he had a horrible 2022 World Series. He lost over a million bucks. He was bricking pretty much everything. He played a ton of events, just wasn't cashing anything. When he was, he was insignificant. Bricking the high rollers, bricking all these 10Ks. He even broke a piece of equipment, a piece of camera equipment, which got some minor controversy when he took a bad beat, which I, I thought was a stupid controversy. If he wants to break his camera equipment, let him. But he had some success at the end of the year. And that led him to have a profitable year. I will say that if he hadn't had this big score at the end of the year in a high roller event, he probably would have been less motivated to post his record. But that's human nature. Human nature is to want to present your record when you're doing well or when you've done well. However, I will say that the last time that he presented his record was in a year when he lost, when from everything you could view from his Hendon mob, it looked like he had a great year, and that was 2017. And I thought that was very transparent of him in 2017 when he did this, because he could have not done this, and people would have pictured, oh, wow, Negroni really kicked ass. So it was really harming his own brand in a way for him to say, hey, guys, I've cashed seven figures this year, but I've lost. That's what he did in 2017, and I gave a lot of respect for that. So he did something similar here in 2022, though, as I said, he ended up winning seven figures in 2022 thanks to that big score towards the end of the year, despite the very bad World Series. This is what he tweeted on December 26th. 2022 in the books. 170 events, 23 caches for 21.5% caches. Average buy-in, 30K. Total buy-ins, 3.2 million. Caches, 4.875 million. Profit, 1,625,545. Now, again, that doesn't tell the whole story because this was mostly from a very big score at the end of 2022. So very disproportionate to the rest of the year. But at the same time, that's how tournaments work. You're going to 
be generally losing until you hit some big scores to make up for all the times you lose. So you can't just say, well, if we take out that one big win, that's not how tournaments work. It is true it was a $300,000 event and that uh, only four people cashed and it had 24 entries. But still, he won it against a tough field and it netted him $3.3 million. So yes, without that, he would have lost $1.7 million for the year. I get that, but you can't do that. You can't just say, well, without that big win, well, you could say that for any tournament player and they'd be a loser. So anyway, let's go through his years. He goes back 10 years. 2013, he won $1.963 million. 2014, $7.1 million. 2015, $952,000 plus. Then some tough years. 2016, he lost $1.246 million. 2017, minus 86,140. Now that's relatively close to even given the buy-ins of the stuff he plays, obviously. But I remember that year. I remember he came out and posted a big list of everything he entered and what he cashed and what he didn't cash. And I thought that was really, really transparent because it looked like he had a good year. He cashed a lot of money in that year. So I thought that was really good to see that he put that out there. I'm looking at it right now. He cashed $2.7 million in 2017. With him cashing $2.7 million, would you have guessed that he lost in one year? But he did. He slightly lost. He lost 86 k even though he cashed $2.7 million. So I thought that was very interesting and very honest to put that out. I know Negreanu has his haters, And I have sometimes criticized him here. I've sometimes backed him here. I go by what I see. I'm not a fanboy. I'm not a hater. I'm right in the middle. I'm very unbiased when it comes to Negreanu. But as far as this, I think this deserves respect, especially the 2017 thing. This year, okay, you know, like he's kind of taking a victory lap because he got beaten up during the World Series on social media. People who didn't like him were mocking him when he was losing and mocking him when he threw that tripod and broke it. So everyone was mocking him. Ah, Negreanu, ah, you, you can't handle the players these days. Ah, you're losing a million dollars in the World Series. Ah, so he's showing everybody, okay, look, not only did I win $1.6 million this year, I, I've won just about every year since 2013. That, that's basically what he's showing people. But he showed everyone in 2017 when everyone assumed he had a great year that he actually had a losing year. Okay, so he's been transparent. 2018. Plus 1.4 million. 2019, plus 831,000. 2020, he just wrote COVID. He presumably didn't play. 2021, plus 584,000. And 2022, as I mentioned, plus 1.625 million. Total, plus 13.137 million. That's very good. It's very impressive. So Negreanu, in the last 10 years, is up over 13 million in tournaments. That's including all the rake, including all the buy-ins. It is not including the expenses, which he does accumulate by traveling. I know Poker Stars and GG have probably paid a lot of that. And to be honest, Poker Stars and GG probably paid some of his buy-ins as well. It is easier to fire in these high roller events when another entity is paying or partially paying for the buy-in. However, you still have to win. Just because you get bought in doesn't mean you're going to win. So when he's saying plus, he's actually including what the buy-in was regardless of who paid for it. 
So doesn't matter who actually put the money up. In these events he played, he's up over $13 million total according to these records that he's presenting, which I think are probably accurate or close to, the ac- to, close to accurate. So very good. I'm very impressed by this. And that's a lot of consistency, too. He hasn't had a horrible year. The only really big losing year he had was 2016 of minus 1.2 million. But then all these other years, he's winning close to a million for the most part or more. It's very good. I will say that there might be some luck involved here since there are some high rollers like the one he just won in late 2022, where he happens to end up on the right side of variance in the right spots and wins a very large event. But he's entering so many of these over the years, you would think that kind of evens out. What about all the high rollers he enters where he doesn't cash, where he has bad luck? There have been a number of times where he could have cashed much bigger and didn't. We've seen it. So I can't just say, oh, he got lucky in a few high rollers, otherwise he's a losing player. That's not the case here. So what this shows is that he's been consistently winning in tournament poker for the past 10 years. And I believe it. He writes, these numbers are strictly results and do not include any swaps, selling to fans, taxes, or expenses. He also leaves out uh, anything that was paid for by GG or poker stars, but okay, whatever, that doesn't matter. So I think this is good. I want to see more of this. I want to see other pros doing this because we just don't know. We see all these other pros and their eye-popping overall numbers, and yet we don't know if they're winning or losing. Negreanu is just short, I mean, really, really close to $50 million in lifetime caches. Most of that did come in the last 10 years. Some of it was before, like in 04, he won uh, $4.465 million in caches. I don't know what his profit was, but that was pretty big. But the majority of this, the vast majority was in the last 10 years. And it is interesting that when you add that all together with his buy-ins, that he was really up $13 million, not counting the expenses of having to travel. I really wish that there was a way to track how people are really doing in tournaments. It's nice for these poker pros that people just look up and see how well they're doing. Hell, if you look me up, you'll see I'm almost up a million bucks, it appears. I'm not, but it shows on my hand in mob, I have like uh, $980,000 worth of caches. So anyone who doesn't know better looks it up and goes, oh, cool, yeah, Todd's a great poker pro. Look at this. He's a million dollars up in tournaments. I'm not, but it appears that way. So if you're a poker player, then this is something that benefits your image, but it's not honest. It's not telling the whole story. And I really wish we could see the whole story. Then we could see who really wins, who really loses. Not that it's totally our business, but in a way it kind of is because we're seeing who the winners are. Why can't we see who the losers are? So it's nice when someone puts this out there. Now, let's say Daniel was getting his butt kicked in for the last several years. Would he have posted this? Maybe not. But Daniel Negron is still a human being. Human beings tend to want to show when they're successful and tend not to like to discuss it when they're not successful. So that's fine. But he did show in 2017 that everyone thought he was winning when he was really losing. So maybe he would have shown it. Who knows? But, of course, Negreanu has his haters, which he didn't used to have. Negreanu having haters is kind of a newer thing. It kind of started around the time that 
Poker Stars took away the Supernova Elite abruptly and unfairly, and Negranu was a spokesman there, and he was semi-defending it, and the problem was at first he was outraged too and said that he'll help, and then he ended up not helping much, and people got really, really pissed and really, really raked him over the coals, and I thought he could have handled it a little bit better, but I, I understood. I understood there's only so much he could do. It wasn't his decision. He didn't have any power over the matter. And yeah, he could say, okay, yeah, I'm getting up and leaving goodbye, but he had a lucrative deal with them. It's hard to just walk away over something like that. Now, if they outright ripped off the players and just wouldn't pay them or something, I, then he should walk away. But this was something which was unethical, but it wasn't like direct theft. It was kind of, a, it was kind of like a mid-level scandal. And it's hard to give away a lucrative sponsorship like that and just throw it in the trash because of something like that, which is kind of unfair, but not outright stealing or scamming. So he was in a very bad spot there. He definitely wanted this to be changed and be more fair to the players, but there was only so much he could do. And some other ways I thought he didn't handle it the best. But he was nowhere near as bad as a lot of people were saying. And a lot of people were really, really viciously attacking him for it. And that was kind of around the time he started to develop his haters. Then Doug Polk started to troll him. And so he he started to get trolls and other people that were looking to hassle him. And as we even heard during the summer, he had some stalkers as well, including that really weird guy who thought that Negreanu had like a secret life in Arizona that he walked away from, which was completely bullshit. Anyway, uh, one of the said haters popped up in that thread. And it wasn't just a random troll. It was actually another poker pro named Jordan Christos, who I was kind of aware of but didn't know much about. And this guy is really strange. And if you look at his Twitter, you'll see how strange he is. It's a really, really odd guy. But he and Negreanu really got into it pretty hard. So you can take a look at Jordan Christos's Twitter at JCIN Blue. It's like JC in blue. JCIN Blue, Jordan Christos. And you'll see he tweets just a lot of bizarre stuff. Even the description in his Twitter profile is weird. He writes, King of the World Poker Tour, The Secret Goat, Dynasty Dad, Ashtangi, whatever that is. And he says he's from Neverland, which I kind of believe. So if you scroll down in his Twitter, you'll just see a lot of odd things that he tweets and a lot of very cocky and arrogant things he tweets. But it was the Negranu stuff that really got a lot of people's attention because he was not a big fan of uh, what Negranu was putting out there. And then this gave rise to a lot of other fights and other arguments between people and uh, Jordan Christos. But let's focus right now on him versus Negranu. He says, I want to publicly congratulate Daniel Negranu on his two PLO titles from 1999 in the $300 Bicycle Casino High-Low events. His only PLO heads-up finish his lifetime are in $300 Burge from 1999, no wonder he has triggers with me commenting on his PLO game and Darwin-esque No Limit Hold'em results. Now, the Darwin-esque No Limit Hold'em results, that's in reference to Darwin Moon, 
who finished second in the World Series of Poker main event. Most of his billions in caches was from one thing. So he's basically saying that Negranu is uh, really only successful because he's had a few huge scores, but otherwise is, is not a winning tournament player, which isn't true, but that's what he's trying to imply. He also wrote, he has not been beating the highest stakes in more than one game for years. That's false. He can't even beat PLO, the second most popular game. He said to Daniel Strelitz, who was defending Negranu, stop dick riding his losing PLO results and losing online results. It's been 23 years online, and at PLO, he doesn't win it either. And so he was just basically going off on Negranu and mocking him for these results here. Finally, Negranu had enough and decided to explain a little of the history he had with Jordan Christos, who turned out not to be a random troll. So Negranu said that the reason Jordan Christos is trolling him is because Jordan had been asking him for buy-ins all the time, which Negranu was always refusing, and this guy's bitter about it. So that was Negranu's story. I don't have that exact tweet in front of me, but it's something along those lines that Negranu was saying that Christos was someone who was always bugging him for stakes, and Negranu was saying, nope, I'm not giving it to you, sorry, and now Christos is bitter. So Christos responded by saying, it turns out Daniel Negranu is also a pathological compulsive liar on top of his other mental health issues. For example, he just commented, I ask him for buy-ins all the time. This simply isn't true. I tried selling at face, meaning face value, to a 50K, and I think one to two series over the years. This guy gets first or second in two tiny field MTTs over the last decade and wants to be recognized as the goat of goats. And then he posted these screenshots of him talking with Negranu. So I guess he's been harassing Negranu for a while. So back on December 2nd, I guess they were discussing uh, privately in DM where Jordan had posted that Negranu was a losing PLO MTT player. And Negranu screenshotted that and said to him privately, ha ha, you are such a fish cake. You will never have money by tearing others down. You're a minor leaguer, son. Stick to the micros. You aren't ready for the big leagues and you never can be. Then he shows himself saying back to Negranu privately, PLO and online MTTs, I got you botched. Live, no limit, hold them, we'll see. The other two are irrefutable at this point. Unless you show me winning high stakes MTT results online, which I doubt you have. Negranu says back, you are clueless. I keep records and post them publicly. You would be a welcome sight in the high rollers if you get money, but people would be foolish to buy a piece of you. Ain't, you ain't good at all. Christo said back, to be fair, Chidwick is probably the best. If you can't beat PLO MTTs at Aria, you're just not that good at poker, and you've been there for 10 years losing in PLO to everyone there. Daniel says back, I am your fucking king on your knees and bow to your master, son. I would leave you homeless. <laughs> Ooh, it's getting pretty heated. Okay, so then it goes on. Daniel writes, are you on your knees? If not, get on your knees and worship your master. <laughs> oh. So Christos comes back with, if we played 15 to 20 tables of internet poker MTTs every Sunday for a year straight, you would lose, just like you lost to Doug, referring to his heads-up match with Doug Polk. The only variation you have any chance in beating me is live No Limit Hold'em. 
Negreanu says back, you come at me, you fucking peasant, and you will end up on the street corner selling pieces of your ass for food stamps. Punk ass bitch you are. Ha ha. Then Christo says back, I appreciate that I struck a nerve with so many of you. I'm going to sick Johnny vibes on this Sean Deep cross book. And for you, I would happily cross book 30,000 buy-ins per Sunday across 20 tables and spot you some profit if you want to play 52 Sundays and see if you can beat me at online poker. So basically he's saying that he wants a competition with Negranu where they each play 52 Sundays worth of online poker in tournaments. And whoever comes out ahead has to pay that amount that they're ahead of the other as additional payment to the other person. So let's say Negranu broke even, and let's say that Christos won 150000 then Negranu would owe of 150000 because that's the difference of, of who won. So then Negranu says back, are you off your meds right now? You need to stay on that stuff, kiddo. Otherwise, delusion and hysteria sets in fast. Be careful with those. Now, let's stop right here. Why would Negranu not say, okay, let's do it? If he's really confident he's better than this guy, why would he not say, okay, let's cross book? Well, because I don't think Negranu wants to be chained to the computer every Sunday for every Sunday a year for the next 52 weeks. Like, why would he want that? Like, let's say someone came to me and said, you know what? I think you suck at Limit Hold'em, Todd. So let's play $2, $4 Limit Hold'em for 20 hours a week and we'll cross book. And at the end of the year, after we've played a minimum of 20 hours a week, uh, we'll cross book. And, and if you've won more than me, then I'll pay you. I, I would say, no, I'm not going to waste my time playing two, four limit hold'em. So it's it's kind of like that here, not to the quite same extreme, but the ground is saying, look, he didn't say it directly, but he, he doesn't want to be tied down to do this just because some guy is challenging him. There's nothing really in it for him. So then... Christo said back, okay, see, you're beating online tournaments lifetime. If the answer is no, that means you're inferior poker mind, and the answer is no. Well, no. As I said, it's just Negranu doesn't want to commit the time to this challenge. He was trying to refute that he never really asked for a lot of buy-ins from Negranu. That wasn't really happening. It was just once or twice. And this doesn't really refute that. That just shows a lot of trash talk back and forth. However, Negranu posted his own screenshots, which pretty much told the whole story. So here's what Negranu said. One, he doesn't have money. He begs me for money all the time, and I always say no. Two, I would book any bets on any live events he wanted, but he has to post, meaning he has to put the money beforehand, his money or borrowed money and begged for. Three, I would drive him to a homeless shelter when it's over. Jordan says back, Daniel blocked me, so I have to come in from here. There was... uh, some other Twitter account he has. He literally lies on here. I tried selling action to him twice, and I think one was right before a 50K. I was just trying to post 50% of 25K to play and keep the other 25K myself. Never asked him for $1 in my life, just selling half of 10K, 25K, 50Ks at face value. And then he puts the Pinocchio nose emoji. So Negranu says back, it only lets me do four screenshots at a time, but I got more. And then he posted this. Jordan saying, Daniel, I'm trying to get backing for the Masters. This is Friday, September 16th. If you want to put me in, I'm confident I could ship the jacket. I've done well in the tough 10K No Limit Hold'em events on GG and also Omaha Live and online I've beaten. I'll be selling action at face otherwise, 
but I'd rather play for one person to simplify things. Daniel, if you want to gamble and put me in the 50K PLO, it's 50 big bl- 30 big blinds at 11 p.m. I do great at that game online and live. Good luck. That was a separate one. Then also on July 12, 2021, if I can sell 60% of this 52K, I'll come down and play it right now. Who's the biggest boss in the game that can look at my results there and want this action? You know all the guys that play that million. I can beat these games, Poker Go games for sure. Around to selling the 25K and 50K USPO events at face. If anyone wants 20% and I win the series, they'll get 20% of the 50K too. I know there's no incentive for you to pass this to anyone, but if someone comes to mind that buys and you think they may like the added value, please give it to them. So he posted these four screenshots basically just showing different instances of Jordan asking for backing either from Negreanu or someone that Negreanu knew. So Jordan says back, yeah, that's twice, a 50K and a Masters USPO series. I said I tried selling Action Max three times. Where do you see me asking you for anything here other than what I could post on Pocket Fives or anyone else that bought it? Daniel says back, those are all different days, you turd. You brag to me how great you are, the best, and beg me to give you money for a piece over and over, and I say no because you're a train wreck. Jordan says back, those are three different accounts, two of them on the same day. One of them is overlapped. I was selling 60% of a 50K, posting 20K. It looks like I was asking you for the masters and leads for the others. I didn't ask you for anything, Pinocchio and Negranu. Yikes, man. Come on, grow up. Daniel says, look at the dates, you fish cake. Now grovel and beg for my forgiveness. You have just been busted again. <laughs> and then he shows... Monday, June 13th, and Friday, September 16th, to show they were three months apart. He says, look at the dates, separating it on three lines. That's four different dates on four different times, begging for stakes, and I got more, but this app only lets you post four at a time. On your knees, son. <laughs> so Jordan apparently did ask him multiple times for backing and never got it. It's not even like the Granu gave him backing at one point. He was asking for more. He was just like kind of randomly asking Negreanu, hey, I'm so good. Can you back me? And Negreanu never did. So then Negreanu is revealing it because Jordan's mocking him. So this kicked off a whole Twitter slap fight. And then when it kind of died down between him and Negreanu, then Jordan started arguing with another guy named Chris Hunichin, also known as Big Huni, over something that happened in the past. Because some people defended Negranu, and then Jordan's like fighting with anybody who's defending Negranu. And this Hunichen, I guess, who he had some history with, that kicked off a fight again with him and uh, Chris Hunichen. This started on December 28th when Chris Hunichen decided to throw in his two cents because he knew Jordan from before and had some issues with him. You were nothing like this as recent as like one to two years ago, referring to Jordan Christos and his erratic behavior. I don't know what sent you off the deep end, probably something to do with the situation with your kids. And I get that for sure. If someone tried to hold my kids away from me, I'd probably lose my shit too. Honestly, you should talk to a therapist. It will change your life. I can almost guarantee that. If you will agree, I'll even pay for the first couple of visits. You clearly need help. And I don't mean this in a demeaning way. I'm just being real. So I guess Jordan Christos is having some kind of custody battle and Chris Unichan is saying that that's probably what's making him act unhinged. Jordan said back, I had no beef with Huni until his friend scammed me at a 22K 
and Hunishin told me on Twitter that he'd beat my ass if I didn't stop talking about his friends scamming me. Deleted the comment, starts pretending like he didn't say that, pretends to be a good old boy, get the fuck out. Then Hunishin said back, LOL, I've never even met Joey Yoon, who I guess I think scammed him, in real life once. I told you he's bought my action for six years, he's never fucked me over and never took unreasonable time to pay. You then go ranting, I vouched for a scammer because y'all disagree on a situation that literally not one other person has agreed with you on. Even the one person that you thought agreed with you backtracked his stance literally within 24 hours after hearing more of the story. You were the smartest person on Twitter, the best poker player in history, the best pre-flop player in history, the reason the entire game has changed, the ultimate human being of the world, yet you don't have a single friend that will back you up on any of this. Start looking in the mirror and see what the common denominator is. What he's referring to is that Jordan has been bragging recently that he's the greatest pre-flop poker player ever. <laughs> and he claims they changed the rules. I'm not even sure what rule it was. But he claims they changed the rule of some tournament series because of his pre-flop play, that he was exploiting people pre-flop so well that they actually had to build a rule around him. So he thinks he's the greatest pre-flop player ever, which people thought was funny. He says, your behavior literally shows signs of mental problems. And again, I will pay for you to start seeing a therapist to get some help so you can get your mind right. Shit is sad to see. And knowing you for a long time, it's really sad seeing you get attacked by so many people. But you've really brought this on yourself. You even got me fired up, which is pretty pathetic because I'm one of like three or four people in the poker world that tried to help you over the years. Jordan said back, over the years, you haven't done anything. You act like you've done anything for me. And that's all insane. If anything, I've done more for you telling you to get into a yoga studio. Did I ask how to allocate 100K crypto and how to make a Poker Bros account? Gee, thanks, LOL. So nice of you. You're an idiot. You don't know me at all. We've never hung out for even 10 minutes anywhere. How could you possibly gauge anything? You haven't helped me not one shred my entire life. I don't know what you're talking about. And then you say three or four others have two. Where do you come up with this? So this becomes like a personal battle between the two of them about some stuff we didn't even know about before. Jordan then says, you offered to, quote, beat my ass just a few months ago. I oblige, then you delete your comments and backtrack and claim it's because of health issues. You shouldn't be offering to beat my ass if you can't step it up and follow through, man. If you can't, then don't chirp. And then Hunishin says back, LMAO, you're so delusional, it's hilarious. You only obliged once. You heard about my back issues, and I never once mentioned health issues. You did. Again, get some help. If you don't want to, that's on you. If you really want to fight after surgery and rehab, I'll happily oblige. This is kind of weird. So it does seem like Hunichen at some point did say he'd beat his ass. And then I guess Christos was asking around and found out that Hunichen was having back problems. It was like, okay, yeah, let's fight. And then Hunichen's like, oh, shit, he found out about my back problems. I didn't think he'd actually want to fight. So, okay, fine, I'll fight you, but... Let me wait to get my back in order. And once my back is better and I've gone through rehab, I can fight you. (laughs) I have to say, telling someone you're going to beat their ass on Twitter over some Twitter fight is stupid. Jordan Christos is a mess. I mean, I I think most of what Hunichen is saying here rings true. I, I don't even know either of these guys. I know of them. I don't really know either of them, but... It looks like Hunichen is by far the more sane person in this argument, but it does look like he threatened to beat him up and then actually had back problems and was hoping that Christos wouldn't realize that and be afraid of him. And then once he knew it, he's like, okay, let's fight. Oh, okay, hold on. Well, when my back gets better, we'll fight. (laughs) What a weird feud they have here. 
So then he says, once again, this is Jordan Christos, once again, you girls like talking about things and, quote, hearing things. And girls, he's saying derogatory, like calling men girls. I happen to be on the right end of a lawsuit that's going to yield me a minimum 22K attorney's fees against the scammer. Well, okay, but that's attorney's fees. It's not going to really help him. Who cares what you think or what the ladies say? It's what I know. It's what the truth is. Okay? Like, you're going to win a lawsuit where you win attorney's fees. I mean, congratulations. Also, good luck collecting. (laughs) I I know that situation. Postle still owes me the money for my attorney's fees. Christos went on to say, the difference between me and you, talking to Hunichen, is I'm peaking in life while your health and perception of reality decline. I'm healthier, happier, stronger, wiser, more experienced, and more ready than ever. What the hell? What you see is not the reality of me. Are you a doctor? No, but you desperately need one. Hunichen said back, we definitely have different visions of peaking in life, but you do you, man. Congrats on all your success. Christos goes back to the whole thing about how Hunichen didn't really try to help him. He said, nobody in the poker world tried to help me over the years. I've had 100% of my action as the exception of selling to a few people here and there. You were my poker bros agent collecting rake off me for six months and buying it face to some great birds. That's business and poker not help. Hunichen says back, LOL delusional. I not only had to read 88 paragraphs weekly of all your life problems, but even tried to mediate when you had issues with one of the other very few people in the poker world that tried to be friendly with you, who's also one of my close friends. Goons ring a bell? So basically, it looks like this is what was going on here from what I can gather of this whole argument between the two that only spawned because of the Negranu thing. It looks like that Christos and Hunichen were kind of semi-friends for a while, and that Hunichen got Christos onto that Poker Bros app, and he was his agent, meaning he's the one who handles all the money back and forth that goes in, and that he also gets a piece of uh, whatever rake Jordan generates. And so Jordan's saying, you weren't my friend, you weren't helping me, it was a business relationship where you got me onto Poker Bros and you got a percentage of my break, so don't act like you're helping me just because I won there. And Hunichen saying back, no, because in addition to all of that, you were writing me 88 paragraphs a week about all your different problems, and, and I politely read all of it and gave you advice, and even when you were having fights with like one of the few people in poker that was trying to be friends with you, and then you started having fights with them, I was trying to mediate, so I, I've tried to do a lot for you. I wasn't just your poker bros agent. That's what Hunichen was saying. So who knows what the truth is in all this, but I kind of see that it seems Hunichen, for the most part, was probably trying to legitimately help the guy. It looked like that Christos was probably unstable for whatever reason, and that Hunichen took a liking to him and tried to help him out and listened to his problems and tried to mediate when Christos would have issues with people, and... Now Hunichen is kind of regretting it because now Christos is turning on him and thinks that Hunichen never tried to help him in the first place. So I've had this before myself. I've had it where I've tried to help unstable people and then they end up turning on me and act like that I've done something bad to them and it's just completely delusional. They they are impossible to reason with 
and they invent something in their mind that I've done to harm them. And then when I try to bring up what I've done to be helpful, that just doesn't register with them. It's very hard to talk to people like that. And it makes me not really want to volunteer to help anyone who's having problems who might be a bit unstable because this is a possibility to happen. And it looks like that may have been what happened to Chris Unichin. Really, from reading this whole exchange, the only thing I can really criticize Chris Unichin with is the uh, threatening to beat his ass when he really wasn't going to want to go through with it. And then it turned out he had back problems and then had to back off of it once <laughs> Christos accepted because he knew he had back problems. What a mess. You definitely can see from this exchange, both with Hunichin and with Negranu, that Christos has emotional issues and probably does need some help. It does seem like he has some raw poker talent. It seems like this guy probably is a very good player if he can get his head on straight. But it kind of seems like Negranu was saying that he didn't even want to think about staking the guy because his head is not on straight. And I can understand that because part of winning in poker is not just raw talent. You've got to have consistency. You've got to have discipline. You've got to have your mind in the right place. Like look at Stewie Unger, who's one of the best players of all time. He died broke because he did not have his mind in the right place and he had a drug problem as well. I don't know if Jordan Christos does drugs or not. That hasn't been alleged here, so it's very possible he doesn't. But it does seem like he has some kind of uh, emotional problems. And he's very outspoken and he loves to just spout off on Twitter. So that's what got everybody's attention to him because he was talking trash to Negranu and then Negranu came back showing that he was asking for stakes on multiple occasions. But yeah, something's not quite right with this guy. So as the poker world turns, more drama on Twitter as we seem to have every week. Now I'm going to give you an update on the BetMGM situation once again. This is not going to be a long update, but I promise that whenever I have information to give you on the BetMGM and Global Pay bank theft scandal, that I will give you more. And I do have more to give you. This is something I've known for a little while, but I felt was not appropriate to release yet. But now I do feel it's okay to release, so I'm putting it out there. I do have some information on the perpetrators of the scheme to share with you. And that is the perpetrators of this scheme, which stole $10,000 from me and similar amounts from a lot of poker pros, probably more than 50 of them. And in fact, the number of 50 to 100 victims has been confirmed to me by law enforcement. But the perpetrators turned out to be an organized crime ring based out of San Diego County. It was not one person. It was a crime ring. And I've known this for a little time. And if you remember, the cell phone number that was used for my phony accounts that were created in my name that were used to steal from me, the cell number was a 619 San Diego number. Now, of course, these days, area codes don't mean that much. You can get an area code anywhere. I could make up a fake phone number today that I could receive calls on in New York, New Jersey, Florida, without ever leaving my home. So just because you have a 619 number doesn't mean that you are physically in San Diego. However, as soon as I heard something about San Diego, I did think, hmm, that's very interesting with a 619 number. The 
probably isn't a coincidence. In fact, when I saw the 619 number, I thought there was a decent chance it was in San Diego because there would be no reason otherwise to get a 619 number because nothing about my situation had to do with San Diego. San Diego, if you remember, was part of the scam against others because the Viejas Casino in San Diego County was used in addition to BetMGM. But I was not victimized by the Viejas Casino. I had the fake account created on BetMGM, West Virginia. So nothing about my situation was in San Diego, and yet they had a San Diego number that was used for the phone number there. So I thought that probably wasn't a coincidence, and there was a decent chance this was based out of San Diego. And sure enough, I have found out that indeed that's where it was based. Furthermore, the phone number that was used was not a burner phone number. I thought it might have been a phone number that was an app-based number. You can get these fake phone numbers that are usable. When I say fake, I mean they're not uh, registered to anybody and they're not impossible to trace, but they're basically free phone numbers you can sign up for through an app and get a phone number right away. So I thought it was one of those. That's the simplest way to get a number. However, when I looked into it further, I saw something weird. And that was the number was a T-Mobile cell phone number. So I thought, okay, this is either still a T-Mobile phone number or maybe T-Mobile released the number back into the phone number pool and then it ended up one of these voiceover IP numbers. But usually it doesn't happen that way. Usually T-Mobile keeps its own numbers unless they're ported out. So I did find who the previous owner of that number was, the one that was used for my accounts, and it didn't seem likely to be someone who was in on this whole thing. It was a woman in San Diego who was married. I, I went through her Facebook. She looked pretty normal. She had a normal job. She, it just didn't fit the profile of, of being part of this cheating ring. Like, it's possible. I'm not saying for sure that she couldn't be involved from what I had seen. By the way, I found out later she wasn't involved. But at the time, I thought, okay, she's probably not involved. But still, she had a T-Mobile phone for years. So either this was her number or she disconnected it and somebody else got the number on T-Mobile. So it turned out it was the latter. This had nothing to do with her. But someone did get a T-Mobile phone with that number that got recycled that she gave up when she disconnected her number. So it was still a T-Mobile phone, which means it wasn't one of these app-based phone numbers. And I've since learned that this phone was an actual prepaid cell phone that somebody bought in a physical store in San Diego County and automatically had a 619 number associated with it. So that's why it was 619, because one of the perpetrators in San Diego County went into a physical store and purchased this phone. So it kind of was a burner phone, but it was a physical phone that they purchased as a T-Mobile prepaid phone, and it got that old number that that woman had that I found when I was researching that number's history. So that means they were using physical prepaid phones that they actually bought in the store, which is interesting. I'm not sure why, but I can confirm that as well. I can also tell you that the IP address that I was very interested in, remember I was demanding this out of Global Payments, they wouldn't give it to me. I was demanding this out of BetMGM, they wouldn't give it to me. I really wanted the IP address that was used for all this the IP used to log into BetMGM, the IP that was used to log into that fake email account that they created for me, the IP address to log into Venmo, all of that. I wanted those IPs, but nobody would give it to me. 
Well, it was finally confirmed to me that the IP address was not useful, that they were using either proxies or VPNs to access whatever they're accessing. So it was kind of a dead end there for the IP address. Maybe if they really, really strongly looked into it, they could figure it out. But often it's impossible because these are based in other countries. So whatever it was, the IP address was not useful. And therefore, that wouldn't have helped me had I gotten it. So that's all I can give you right now. But it's definitely more than you knew before, right? The organized fraud ring out of San Diego County. The fake phone number that was used for my account was a T-Mobile burner phone that was purchased physically in San Diego County. And that the IP address was not useful because it was either a proxy or a VPN. That's all I can give you right now, but uh, there will be more coming. Don't worry. I do know more than this, but this is all I can give you right now. And when I say all I can give you, it means that that's all I feel I should give you. Nobody has told me I can't say anything. I'm just choosing what to say according to when I feel it is appropriate to say it. But I will give you further updates on this. Hopefully there will be arrests in this situation soon. Our next topic is about David Copperfield. This is someone I didn't expect to talk about on this show. I've been aware of him since I was a kid. He's been around for a long time. He's actually younger than I thought. I I assumed he'd be really old by now since I remember him, as I said, going back to when I was a kid. And since I'm over 50 now myself, I assumed that he would be a very old guy. He's actually not as old as I expected. He's only 66. But of course, 66 is not a young man. But we're not really here to talk about David Copperfield's age. We are here to talk about his pretty bad show in Las Vegas, which I just became aware of. I've actually developed a fascination recently with bad shows in Las Vegas. Not that I want to see them, but just the stories behind them. And I'm talking about bad major shows, not bad small shows that run in the afternoon or are off strip. That's not very interesting. I'm talking about major shows where it costs a lot of money to see them and where you have an expectation it's going to be good and then it sucks. Now, one of the best known bad major shows in Vegas is and has been Chris Angel's show. And I'm talking about the current Mind Freak show and the other incarnations of it that have existed since the late 2000s. I'm not talking about Amistica, which is now closed, which Chris Angel wasn't really part of. He just kind of narrated, probably a recording of him narrating it. But this segment's not going to be about Chris Angel. It's going to be about David Copperfield. Now, as I said, I was aware of him since I was a kid because he has been performing since I was a tiny baby. He actually started performing in 1972 at the age of either 15 or 16. So that's why by the time I was old enough to really pay attention and take notice of the names of magicians, because when, you know, when I was two years old, I wasn't, but by the time I was old enough to take notice, he was already a young adult and was already on the way to performing. David Copperfield is very, very rich. I can't emphasize that enough. In 2015, for example, Forbes listed his earnings as $63 million for just the past year alone. 
and said he was the 20th highest earning celebrity in the world. He also owns 11 resort islands in the Bahamas. There's actually a bay in the Bahamas called Copperfield Bay that he named where his islands are. This is a guy who is incredibly rich, incredibly. And he's also well-respected in the world of magic. In 1981, he was able to make a Learjet disappear. He made the Statue of Liberty disappear and reappear in 1983. He levitated over the Grand Canyon in 1984. He walked through the Great Wall of China in 1986. In 1987, he escaped from the inescapable Alcatraz prison. And he also disappeared from an Orient Express dining car in 1991, as well as flew on stage for several minutes in 1992. Of course, this is many years ago. He was much younger then to be able to do these stunts. But... He also didn't have the advantage of modern technology back in those days. It wasn't the Dark Ages, but it's nothing like now. As of 2006, which of course isn't very recent, he had already sold 33 million tickets and grossed over $4 billion in total ticket sales to see his shows. No other solo entertainer had ever grossed anywhere near that. I don't know about right now, 16 years later, I have to imagine he still holds the record. So this guy is not just successful, he's mega successful. He also has 11 Guinness Book World Records. He has a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He has a knighthood by the French government. And the U.S. Library of Congress has named him a living legend. Okay, so this this guy's accomplished a ton. This guy's done everything. He even married a uh, supermodel, Claudia Schiffer. In 1994, he's not married to her currently, but then again, she's not that young anymore. Uh, He's married to another woman who's younger since uh, 2006. So as far as the world of magic and monetizing that and getting respect for his illusions and for his feats of magic and illusion, I can't think of anybody better. And I'm sure he's the most famous magician in modern times. I can't think of anybody else. So, I mean, the guy's accomplished it all. So what would he have any use for a bad show in Vegas at this point? If you're 66 years old, as he is, the only reason to still be performing is because you either like performing or you need the money. Otherwise, why? Why? Even if he's getting paid a lot, why? He has so much money at this point, whatever he makes performing right now is going to be peanuts compared to what he already has. So you'd say, okay, well, he must love performing. It must just be the love of the game. He's not necessarily performing to make money. This is just something he likes doing, doesn't want to stop. I bet you're going to think that, right? I mean, the guy's been doing magic his whole life. Goes back to 72 when he was 15 years old. The problem is the show is not good. And the biggest criticism of the show is not so much the tricks, though there were some people criticizing that as well. 
But it's his attitude and his enthusiasm which are universally panned as lackluster and like he just doesn't want to be there. The way David Copperfield is behaving on stage these days, according to every Yelp review I read, basically, is portraying somebody who hates performing, who hates being there, and feels obligated to be there. Which you'd expect, again, of a celebrity who is very irresponsible, chunked off all their money, and is living on their past name and doing a performance they really don't like, but it's the only way to pay the bills. Not a guy with 11 islands he owns in the Bahamas and with probably the most money of any magician ever and probably one of the richest celebrities ever. So why would you ever do this? If this were a highly rated five-star show that everybody loved and he was kind of getting tired of it and losing a little bit of enthusiasm, but it's such a well-regarded show, he wants to keep doing it for the masses, I would understand. But this is considered the second worst major show on the Las Vegas Strip. Only thing that's considered worse is Chris Angel. And that's not saying a lot that you're better than Chris Angel. I could do a show on the Las Vegas Strip and be better than Chris Angel. I'm not even kidding. People actually boo Chris Angel at the end of every show. David Copperfield is doing a bad show, and I don't understand it. I haven't seen it, but the reviews all say the same thing. And by the way, Yelp reviews for shows tend to give them more credit than they deserve. There are some people who go to Vegas shows and are impressed by anything. Or they kind of feel obligated to like something just because they paid a lot of money for it. They don't want to feel like fools that they paid $150 per ticket for something that sucks, so they convince themselves to like it. They convince themselves to believe it's better than it was. Or they even sometimes believe that they're uncultured if they don't appreciate Vegas shows. So they'll actually post a good review and force themselves to have liked something that kind of sucks. So when you see a lot of bad reviews for a show that basically all say the same thing, then that's almost always the case. It it would be very rare that there's a ton of bad reviews for a show that have a similar theme to them, and then you watch the show and go, oh, you know what? This is actually pretty good. I don't know what these guys are talking about. Now, if you see a few outlier bad reviews when the vast, vast majority really like it, then you can often go there and like the show. But that's not the case here. If you take a look at David Copperfield's Yelp reviews, if you type in David Copperfield Las Vegas Yelp, you could find it. His show has a rating of 3.5 stars, which sounds like it's not bad out of five. It's not great, but that's not good for the reason I just said. Especially if you look at the distribution, there's a lot of five stars, which could be some shills and also could just be people who are convincing themselves to like it, as I said. But there's a lot of one-star reviews. The second highest number of reviews are one-star. So there's a good percentage of these one-star, and there's a number of these that are filtered, because Yelp, if it doesn't believe you're a real account, will filter your review. There's 353 reviews that are filtered, and almost all of them are one-star. And the reason Yelp filters happen, where they filter a review out, is because the bot that invalidates reviews is 
overly strict by a wide margin. So, like, let's say you've never posted a Yelp review before, and you go see David Copperfield. You go, wow, this show sucks. I want everyone to know. So you go create a new Yelp account. You post a one-star review. You put a lot of effort to the review. You write a pretty long review. You make sure it's good. You make sure everybody understands. You give it one star. And then within about two weeks, you're going to find it gone. You're going to find it filtered. It's going to be under what's called a not recommended reviews where people have to scroll way down and click on that link to see the not recommended reviews. And it does not count in the overall star rating. So if you add these 353 filter reviews to the 1,100 or so non-filtered reviews, given almost all these are one star, that brings the rating a good deal down from the three and a half stars also. But what, what ends up happening, why are these getting filtered, is because Yelp believes that if a new account is made and gives either a single five-star review or a single one-star review and then never logs in again, that it was probably either a shill or a competing business looking to trash them. And therefore, the review is not considered valid and it gets filtered. It's dumb. It shouldn't do that, but that's what it's been doing. There are ways to get around the Yelp filter, by the way, and not have that happen. If you want to learn how to do it, go to dandruffpoker.com and you can see an old blog I wrote about it that still applies today, even though it's more than 10 years old. But yeah, most of these get filtered where people just post a one-off review that they don't otherwise use Yelp. So these are valid reviews. I think very few are bogus. So really, you have to add another 300-some-odd one-star reviews to what you're already seeing here. So why so many? Why so many one-star reviews for a magician who has such a good reputation and so many accolades? Well, I will read you a few of these. One of them says, really dissatisfied with his presentation. He was just walking through the show. The magic was very good, but I would be ashamed of myself if I had his entertainment skills. Another one says, I'm sorry to say this is one of the worst shows I've ever seen. I know David Copperfield has been doing this show for a long time, and I wasn't expecting it to be the freshest, but he was so checked out and stale, I was immediately uncomfortable. He mumbled through an overwritten script as fast as he could, like he was trying to shave minutes off the show, which just meant we really didn't know what he was saying. Another disappointment were the illusions in the show. So many of them relied on technology, which I don't find as entertaining as more traditional magic, which is funny for a guy who did his stuff without technology back in the 80s and 90s. And I'm an enthusiastic audience member at magic shows. I even love simple things, but there wasn't much of that in this show. Most of the show was a very cheesy storyline with a talking puppet, and it seemed like David hated that puppet as much as we did. He, quote, talked to it while looking off to the side, once again racing through lines as if it couldn't be over fast enough. Absolutely not worth the price of the ticket. Pick anything else. Here's the third one. Noticing a pattern already? Please read before buying tickets, this this person types in all caps. My wife and I go to Vegas often, and we've seen numerous shows and have enjoyed them all. However, the David Copperfield show was a huge disappointment. Please don't go here. There's so much I can say, but I'll try to keep it brief. David Copperfield is one of the most original master magicians. I remember watching him as a kid, but he has passed his prime and it's time to hang up the magic wand. I hate to say that given all the great magic tricks I remember as a kid, but his passion for what he's doing has magically disappeared as well as my $300. 
He rambled on with his dialogue as if he didn't want to be there and needed to get off the stage ASAP. Most of the audience couldn't understand what he was saying because he sounds like he was reading from a script versus delivering a great performance. It was one big run-on sentence the entire show. Also, the show started late, about 7.10. It ended about 8.17, so just over an hour. Very disappointing in him and the MGM for promoting this show. Oh, and they need to update his photo on the marketing because it's borderline false advertising. He doesn't look the same anymore, so it actually took a minute to realize it was him when he first walked on stage. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed that, that a lot of these shows do this, where there's an aging performer and you're still seeing a picture of them from when they're like 35. I laugh now, but I sure wished I read all the other poor reviews. The show would be great for young kids, minus the crude, low-key sexual dialogue, and definitely a max charge of 50 per ticket. Hopefully his contract with MGM is up soon so he can find something to do that he's passionate about. So I'm sure you get the point. Everybody says that he mumbles his lines, it's very scripted, and he doesn't say it with any kind of passion. And in fact, it's like in a monotone where he says it very quickly and you could tell he doesn't mean what he's saying. It's one thing to have a scripted show, but it's another thing to say, okay, so we're going to do the next trick here. We're going to do a thing with so other, and we're going to make this disappear. And people are like, what? Then he does the trick. Okay, so I'm sure you really enjoy that. And what are we going to do next year? After this, we're going to do it. And they're like, what? They're like, this is not dialogue. Even if you can understand it, if he's just mumbling it in a monotone voice really quickly, that you could tell he memorized it and is trying to recite it as fast as possible to get the lines out. I, I don't think he's trying to get through the show quickly. I think he's just so not into it that he just wants to blurt these out because he doesn't enjoy reciting these lines. Someone even mentioned some puppet that he has to deal with there that he also mumbles to and has no passion when talking to. Well, I, I'm trying to understand, though, why. If he doesn't like the puppet, it's his show. Get rid of the freaking puppet. If he doesn't like the dialogue that's been written for him, throw it away and just improvise. I think people just want like an authentic David Copperfield who's interested in what he's doing and then do some good tricks and that's it. They don't need snappy dialogue if he's not going to be able to perform it. And I have to imagine that he's aware of what people think. I have to imagine people have read these reviews I have to imagine there have even been complaints, much like with Chris Angel, where people want their money back. So let's go back to why he is even doing this. Why doesn't he just hang it up, go live on his 11 islands? I mean, this guy has so much money at this point. How could this be worth it to him if he's not happy about being there? And if he's not happy about being there, why is he doing it? Maybe he was happy about being there and then just something has made him sour about the whole thing. Maybe he's mad at MGM for something. Maybe just he's suddenly burnt out and just can't wait for the contract to be over, but he can't breach it. Who knows? But I would think with how much money he has, if he was this miserable, he could go to MGM and say, okay, look, guys, how about I buy out my own contract? How about you replace him with somebody else? And I'll pay you such and such money to let me out of it. Uh, He has easily enough money to do that if he wants. So I don't understand it. I wish I had an answer for you. I don't even have a theory. But every review that's negative, and there's a ton of them, 
say the same thing, that he mumbles his lines, he says it super quickly, he has no expression in his voice, it's clearly a script, he isn't enjoying being there. So why would he ever do this? This this totally has all the hallmarks of someone who's broke and needs the money and resents the fact that they have to do a show they hate, but what do you got to do? You got to pay the bills. Except he's ridiculously rich. I'm not theorizing that maybe he lost all his money and he has to. No, no. The guy legitimately has a ton of money. So that's not it. So why is he there? So first of all, don't go to the show. But second, if any of you have any idea... What's going on with David Copperfield? Why is he even doing this show if it sucks so much? And I believe these reviews, by the way. There's just so many of them saying the same thing. Tons of them saying the same thing. And there's so many reviews saying the same thing from so many different people. It's the truth. That's the way it goes with this and everything. I'm looking at some of the filtered ones now. Horribly disappointed. My childhood dreams of seeing a Copperfield show were crushed. Such a lame show. We didn't expect a puppet show quality venue. David has jumped the shark. I wish I'd gotten backstage passes so I could ask him personally for my money back. Another person wrote, very boring, no energy. Everything felt rehearsed. It's the most boring show I've seen in Vegas. I recommend not to go. You'll be throwing away your money again and again. Don't go. You'll regret it. (laughs) Another person wrote, the show was actually embarrassing. Like, I'm embarrassed that I paid money to see this trash. The majority of the show was a setup with pre-selected audience members to pick random numbers. It was so obvious that the wrong person caught the Frisbee they were asked to pass it to, while the person who caught it stood there confused, wondering why they weren't asked to throw it. It was awkward and not impressive. I guess there's some trick where they're throwing a Frisbee and maybe he tells the person something about themselves. I think the wrong person caught it. Maybe if that was the one small trick, but it was featured heavily the whole show. I'd rather spend 110 on a roulette roll that's guaranteed to lose. <laughs> this person would rather spend the money they did on this show on a losing roulette bet, even if they knew beforehand it was going to lose. Wow. Someone else wrote, these are all reviews, by the way, from the summer of 2022. Disappointing, considering I grew up admiring David Copperfield. All acts were either, either cl- clearly staged or extremely obvious to the inner workings. Very disappointing. Saw several shows during our trip. This is the most expensive and had the least value, in my opinion. Yeah. He charges a lot of money, like Chris Angel, and delivers a terrible show. So, why? Why are they doing this? By the way, it's still going on. Like One of the reviews I'm looking at here was from December 28th. Another one is from January 5th, t- today. So he's still actively performing. If I had to guess, I would say that it might be an ego thing where he does not want to give up because it'll be conceding that he's too old to continue performing well that he was such a successful performer when he was younger, and he doesn't want to accept that he's 66 and unable to perform the way he once did. Now, I don't understand how you can just suddenly lose the ability to recite lines and act enthusiastic, but maybe he just won't accept that's what's really going on. Maybe he thinks that people are just unfairly criticizing him. But I'd have to think this must be like an ego thing. Like, if I walk away now, it's admitting I'm a broken-down old man. It's got to be something like that because there's no other explanation for how someone could not enjoy doing this and have so much money but want to keep doing this. It's it's the weirdest thing. Like if I got backstage passes, that's what I'd love to ask him. I'd love to ask him like it's so clear you don't want to be here. It's so clear that you don't enjoy reciting these lines. You don't enjoy this show. You have so much money. Why are you still doing this? I'd love to know the answer. Okay, so moving on. 
going to talk about an alleged scammer who has a bit different of a profile than the typical accused scammer in the poker community. The typical scammer you hear about in the poker community tends to be male, a degenerate type, someone who might have had some poker talent but has very poor bankroll management skills or might have an a minus EV gambling habit on top of the poker where they win, or somebody who just plays too high, or someone who just plays games where they're not as good, someone who has a tilt problem, someone who's had a bad run of luck and now doesn't have a bankroll anymore, and then they kind of feel trapped. They kind of feel like they want to get back in action at the games they used to play. They don't want to start at super low stakes and run it up because that's very tedious, so they think about, well, how do I get back in action if nobody will stake me? Okay, maybe I'll scam. That, that's how it usually goes. And as I said, it's usually a young to middle-aged male doing this. You don't see it that often with older males, occasionally, but usually it's young to middle-aged males doing this. What you really don't see much of are female scammers. And when you do, they tend to be accomplices of male scammers. Like maybe somebody's girlfriend or wife. But you don't see all that often a standalone female scammer. And the females that I have criticized on this show at times notice that uh, while their behavior has been rude or erratic, or they've said nasty things on Twitter that were inappropriate, whatever it might be, I have criticized females on the show who are in the poker world, but I don't recall the last time I criticized one for scamming. I guess maybe you could say Annie Duke, but hers was kind of different. It wasn't the traditional type of scamming in poker. It was more just, number one, being very unpleasant, and number two, having that epic poker league where she paid herself a very nice salary and screwed everybody. So that was kind of a, a business ripoff rather than a scam. But anyway, back to who I'm going to call out here. I've been following this thread for the last two and a half months on 2 Plus 2. And it was started by a person named Carnivore, who I don't know, but has been on the site since August 2008 and has almost 8,000 posts. So this was not some new burner account that was created to trash somebody. Because you always have to consider the source when allegations are made. Sometimes a new account on 2 Plus 2 making allegations is still alleging something that's true. But if it's an established user, you give them a lot more credit, even if it's someone you don't really know. So this carnivore, I'm not really familiar with him, but he's been around for, looks like, 14 and a half years, and I haven't seen any issues with him. So this is what he wrote on October 18th about a woman named Vanessa Alvarez, who's also known as Mamacita. A huge error in judgment. I made the mistake of using Mamacita... Vanessa Alvarez, as an agent on the Poker Bros app. This arrangement began in the spring of 2021. By the way, that's when Poker Bros was very big because uh, people were playing a lot on there in 2020 during COVID when all the rooms were shut down. So even though rooms were reopening in 21, Poker Bros is still very active. And the way agents work, we just mentioned the whole Poker Bros agent thing involving uh, Jordan Christos earlier. But the way it works, I've told you guys many times, I'll re remind you just in case, is where Poker Bros itself 
is just a venue for people to play poker games. Poker Bros doesn't handle any money. So everybody gets to run their own poker room on Poker Bros if they want. And the way you get a Poker Bros room going is first you start up a club on there and then you recruit people to come play in your club and it's like a private game that you give people access to and then you load chips on for them and you just handle the money offline. So someone will give you $5,000, you give them $5,000 worth of chips in the game. Then if they, let's say they win, then you cash out their chips for them. It's, it's all illegal, but that's how it's been working. And there have been problems over the last few years of Poker Bros because uh, along the fact that there's no security with Poker Bros, it's not really meant for this, but even aside from that, there's been people who've gotten screwed when these agents or the owners of these uh, poker clubs within Poker Bros screw people and run off with the money. Sometimes it's not even intentional. Sometimes what happens is they'll let a fish play on credit, then the fish will decide he was cheated, even if he wasn't, and he won't pay, and then they don't have any money to pay anyone who won, and the whole thing breaks down. So there's been a lot of problems with poker pros between shady agents, between people uh, not paying up on credit, between shady owners of the clubs there. So anyway, getting back to this, this guy, Carnivore, said that Mamacita, whose real name is Vanessa Alvarez, got him on Poker Bros, and she was his agent, meaning that she was the one who got him on, and she was handling all the deposits and cash-outs. So again, he said the arrangement began in the spring of 2021. He said, I've used many agents, and this is the only issue I've run into of being completely worried that my funds are gone. In November of 2021, I met Vanessa in person at the Win and Encore Poker Room to collect 5000 in cash that's in Las Vegas, by March of 2022, her communication was becoming less reliable and rake back for many weeks of play was failing to be deposited because uh, I guess she offered him rake back and she was not giving this to him offline. I guess she's supposed to give him a percentage of the rake separate from all this and she stopped giving him that too, according to him. I decided I wanted to cash out and be done with this agent. At the time, my balance with her was over 14000 and a close friend had 6000 that she wanted to collect. After weeks of not responding, she called me to say that she was the victim of some Bitcoin scammer and promised me we'd be paid. Since then, it's been mostly stalling and empty promises other than the occasional small payment. In seven months, I've managed to receive $3,000 in small payments, bringing the current balance for me down to just over 11000 My friend, remember the one who's owed 6000 has received nothing. A reminder to anyone out there using these agent-run apps to be very careful who you trust. So before we get into the allegations about Vanessa, let's talk about this agent thing. Like, why is he even using her if there's other agents he's used that are more reliable? Well, because remember, Poker Bros is not just one series of games. It's all these different clubs that you get access to through these agents. So probably what he's talking about is that there's other agents on Poker Bros that get him into other games that have always paid him and are totally fine, that the only one that has screwed him is Vanessa, is what he's trying to say. And he's saying a close friend also got screwed by her and that he's been slowly squeezing out very small payments from her, but that uh, still 11000 is owed to him and has been since uh, March. Then he showed communications with her. He's showing screenshots of discussions with her. He said to her on April 7th, this is 2022, I'm in Vegas now. I'd like to cash out. Can also take some Zelle if available. 
and then he didn't get a response. So next day, hi, Vanessa, this situation is not acceptable. If you do not get back to me by the end of tomorrow and make progress in the situation, I'll have to report you. Now, I don't know if he's referring to reporting her to the internet and ruining her reputation or reporting her to the person running that club and having them take away her agency. The funny thing was he actually then wrote to her in Spanish, which I don't understand because I, I know she speaks English. I, I know she's uh, Hispanic, but I don't know. I, I don't see why this is necessary. But he wrote, Hola, Vanessa. Estas situación no es aceptable. Si mañana no me contactas y avanzas en esta situación, tendré que reportarte. <laughs> I think that's funny. So I guess she responded to the Spanish. She said, hi, James. I guess carnivore's name must be James. Can I please call you in one hour? I just woke up. I'll call you in an hour. So he responded about 80 minutes later and said, hi, I just woke up. Yes, you can call. And she said about half an hour later, okay, I will give me 15 minutes. He said, okay. Well, I don't know what happened with the call. It does show that she called him. But then he shows another screenshot where he said, yes, that works. She said, send a Bitcoin address that is presumably to get paid. He said, one sec, I have a friend collecting for me. He'll message you now. Then he said, 500 received thanks. So I guess she sent 500. <laughs> so he said, so balance when I stopped playing was 14,073, plus still waiting for a rakeback update, minus 500 in Bitcoin leaves 13,573 plus rakeback, Minus 1000 on PayPal that's pending. I guess she sent him PayPal and he wasn't sure it was really going to go through. On May 10th, then he wrote, PayPal payment worked. Balance 12573 plus rake back anything available now. 13 days later, she did not answer. He said, hi, Vanessa, can we get any update on the situation? No answer. He said, you have until the end of the day to make some real progress. Everyone in the poker world and anyone who Google your name will know you as a criminal scammer. Is that the reputation you want? This is seriously disgusting. So then Vanessa said back, Hello, James. I understand your frustration. I'm very sorry it's taken so long to get you sorted. You'll be getting paid in full. I can assure you this. We'll come up with a payment plan ASAP to get you in order. Again, very sorry for this unfortunate circumstances you have dealt with. Mama Sita has not been an agent associated with Poker Bros in many months now, is unable to cover the balance right now in recovery mode. But rest assured you are top of the list and will get settled in a bundle and paid with interest for this. We'll let you know of it what's available this week. So that's weird because it says he's talking to Vanessa, yet this person responding is saying Mama Sita has not been an agent with Poker Bros in many months and can't cover the balance. So it's, it's almost like someone took over the communications here maybe the owner of the Poker Bros Club, and is basically saying that she screwed everybody and they're trying to make it right. Well, then get all the way to September now, which is four months later. He writes, so are you just stalling or what? Whoever this was, whether it's Mama Sita or the other person, wrote back, no, hey, James, sorry for the wait. Week tough. It was a mad Sunday. Dust is now settling. We'll make sure you're taken care of. Shoot me a Bitcoin address in the morning. Tomorrow you'll, receive, you'll be receiving something firstly. So then he said back on uh, September 26th, you can see in this conversation all communication and the amounts owed to me. This needs to be done ASAP. It will be very public. You're still advertising as an agent on your Instagram page while not paying or communicating with players that are owed large sums. This is not okay and has been left too long. The entire poker community deserves to know. Then he writes, 500 received on PayPal, 11,573 still owed. 
So I guess she sent him 500. So then I guess he got back from this, uh, whoever it was on uh, the account on Vanessa, sent him a screenshot of something from America's card room. And it says, we understand you have not seen your payout for September 27th. Please take a look in the Explorer for the fifth transaction. So is our payout. The amount must be different because of the exchange rate. We'd like to invite you to check out more information on this page, blah, blah, blah. Please let us know if there's anything we can do for you. So Vanessa or whoever's using her account said, was emailed this back. I'll let you know what's available after today's Sunday game. So it kind of looks like that Vanessa wrote to them at America's card room that they didn't get a payout. And then America's card room wrote back, no, we did pay you out. Look in the uh, the blockchain explorer to see that you really did get paid. <laughs> I, I think she believed that somehow this was showing that she didn't get paid, which isn't true. They're actually saying they did pay her. So then, of course, he got nothing. October 3rd, he said, any update? No answer. Four days later, any update happening here? No answer. 11 days later, so a complete disappearing act is all we get from you? You scamming us out of 17000 U.S. dollars? And that was the last he posted as far as uh, those screenshots. And then he was making these posts on October 18th, the day after. So that's when he had enough. Now, I haven't independently verified that any of this uh, really happened, but I would be very surprised if this is fabricated. And I've said before, you have to be careful with these agents. And Mama Sita, if you've ever seen her before, is a curvy Hispanic girl. She wears skimpy clothes. She has big cleavage out where you can see her big tits. So some people on 2 Plus 2 were saying that this guy may have been kind of sweet-talked by her. Now, he has other agents who are dudes, so it doesn't mean he needs female agents that he's attracted to, but... Maybe he signed up with her because she sweet-talked him, and maybe that's why he wasn't as aggressive with uh, collecting what was owed until it really became clear that she wasn't going to pay him. She is not responding in this thread. I don't know if she is aware of the thread, but she isn't responding. And what's interesting is that she is still playing on live streams. She was recently on Live at the Bike, someone found on uh, YouTube that she was on Live at the Bike just last week. So she's still not only playing on Live at the Bike, she was like the featured player on this video on the title card. Someone even posted a picture of Mamacita and Negranu in a photo together. Now, it doesn't look like Negranu is really associated with her. It just kind of looks like she saw him and said, hey, can I take a picture with you? And he obliged. But this picture pretty much says everything if you ignore the Negranu part. You can see that she's wearing a see-through top where you can see her big tits. Her nipples are sticking out, so you can see her nipples, too, through the top. It's like this sheer black top. And she's got on these ripped jeans that are showing even more skin. So she's really, really trying to put out a very uh, sexual persona to get dudes in poker to stare at her and uh, probably trust her. So this is an interesting profile here of a scammer because usually it's dudes. Now, it's possible, as I said, that there's another side to this story, but we haven't heard it yet. And from what I've seen of those screenshots, it looks authentic. 
when Carnivore was taking some heat on 2 plus 2 that he just trusted her because she was an attractive female, he said, yes, I made a mistake trusting someone who wasn't a real known friend. It's a business mistake, and I'm up over 300K on the poker apps, so it's just an annoying drop in the bucket for me. Having said that, I'm being screwed over and at the very least feel like it should be known. I was even okay with being patient. If I had consistently been receiving a few hundred every month with solid communication, I would have been chill. But poor communication and very few hundred every four months just doesn't sit well. By the way, I've said this to people over and over if they get into hot water and owe money to somebody. The worst thing you can do is just vanish on them. If you just set up something you can send them, even if it's small, and send it regularly, then usually people will be okay enough with that to not call you out. I'm not encouraging screwing people for money. I'm just saying that at the very least do that. At the very least set up a payment plan and stick to it. And not just like one or two times. I mean consistently until it's all paid off. Like even 100 a week or something people will accept because that knocks it out. 100 a week is 5K a year. So let's say you owe 20K and you just can't think of how you can come up with 20K because you're totally broke. Okay, agree to 100 a week. And then send 100 a week, and within less than four years, you'll have paid it off. Four years is a long time, but it's not like 40 years. And the person will be happy in the meantime. The the person will be at least semi-satisfied that you're doing the right thing. It shows that your intentions are in the right place. But when you just ignore them, and every so often you send a few hundred every time the person threatens to go public, that's showing that you really don't give a shit. So this person goes on to say, Whether Vanessa had poor intentions originally, I don't know. I think not. I wanted to be patient and give her a chance, but the situation currently is being handled poorly. Any payments will be updated here, and this thread will hopefully one day be deleted. I appreciate the people who understand. Many players who've been around a long time have experienced drops in the bucket like this. Cake Poker disappeared with 5K of my money back in 2013. One agent gave me a bunch of sob stories about how it would take him a while to pay me 30K, but his partner was... Confused and just paid me cash immediately. That was a separate story from Cake Poker. These apps are definitely a perfect setup for scamming. We all need to watch out, and anyone not paying up quickly needs to be known about. True. Anyone who is stalling with paying you on these apps, you need to call out. Do not give them a chance to rip everybody else off for months until you finally say something. To show you how delusional some people are, and I I think it might be because she's an attractive female. I think they see those tits and just can't use reason. They can't look at it the same way they would if it was just a dude. Some guy named Cordy wrote, has she been outright dishonest? She definitely is not committing criminal acts by not repaying. (laughs) So Carnivore said, is that even close to the point? Of course it's not criminal. Well, I, I don't know about that. I think it actually is. Aside from the fact that this whole app is criminal, even putting that aside, you could say it is. You could say that uh, this was intentional fraud. Of course it's not criminal, but if someone in poker does this, everyone in poker should know. It's about whether she will have a solid reputation or a tarnished one. And yes, it's been outright dishonest. I've been told numerous times payments would start moving and there would be a plan set up and it hasn't happened. I mean, anyone who reads that screenshot should be pretty convinced that this was dishonest. Unless this was made up, which I don't think it is. I'd have to see the screenshots on this guy's phone for sure to say 100%, but it's very, very rare that someone will just fabricate screenshots like this. And keep in mind, she has not defended herself anywhere. And I'm pretty sure she would have by now. I'm pretty sure the word of this thread got around. Pretty sure she knows this thread exists. So if 
this guy was bashing her since mid-October. I'm pretty sure by now she would have shown up and said, no, I don't owe this guy anything. He's crazy. But she has not said that. She's not said anything. So that speaks volumes. Cordy said back, yes, the point is obvious. I just don't have any sympathy for you. And so Carnivore says, who cares about your meaningless sympathy? Yeah, exactly. Then some other idiot says, are you paying taxes on the money you won from unregulated gaming websites? Who cares? That's between him and the IRS. Why should this guy, this is a different person, check, raise, draw. Why does check, raise, draw care about carnivore's taxes? That's not relevant here. What are you, an IRS agent? Are you paying taxes? Talk about irrelevant. Why are you even asking that? <sighs> I, I'm shocked. Well, I'm shocked and I'm not shocked that she's getting any kind of defense and that people are bashing this carnivore guy. This is very straightforward to me. It looks like this is a poker pros agent who owes him money and took the money that she was paid to give him and did I don't know what with. But she maybe she used it for her own poker play, what, whatever it was. It, it looks to me like she appropriated his funds and his friend's funds and who knows who else and screwed people and has been trying to keep him happy by shipping him a few hundred every so often. We've seen this exact situation with dudes and we didn't see the same defense of them. I've seen other dudes called out here for this exact same thing, and everybody says, oh, what a piece of shit. Here, because it's an attractive woman, you got these white knights trying to make Carnivore look like he's the problem or trying to tell him that nothing really that bad happened here. (laughs) Amazing. I think some of these 2 plus 2 members need to have sex. I think it's been too long, or maybe they never have. Anyway... It's been two and a half months. She hasn't made it right. I I didn't want to put this up immediately because it was like a dispute, like a one-on-one dispute. I don't find those to be super interesting. The only reason it was kind of interesting is because it was an attractive female. We don't see that very often. But I I did want to give at least some chance for her to respond and make this right. And it's been two and a half months, and it seems like she's neither responding nor making this right. So I'm putting it out here. Now, with that said, I will once again state that I don't know with 100% certainty that she's done anything wrong. I'm only going by what this carnivore guy says, which seems credible to me. He's been around for over 14 years with about 8,000 posts. He doesn't have a bad rep. The screenshots seem pretty incriminating, and Mama Sita has not refuted any of this in the two and a half months since the thread was made. So, Mama Sita, if you're listening to this, feel free to contact me if you'd like to rectify this. In fact, I could even be a middleman. I've done it before. I have been a middleman between two parties I have nothing to do with where they just really don't like each other and don't want to communicate with each other but one wants to pay the other and then I accept the money as a middleman and I, and I don't even charge any commission for it I'll, I'll do it for free so if you want to pay this guy feel free to get a hold of me and then I can tell him I'll pay him and I have a very good rep for this sort of thing I doubt you will Or if you want to refute this, if you want to say, no, I I don't owe him anything, he's lying, you can come on this show or send me a statement to read, and I'll do that too. I want to be very fair here. I don't know you. I don't know him. I have no idea who Carnivore is in real life. I'm not a friend of his. Nothing like that. But this does not look good to me, so I would recommend against using Mamacita as an agent or giving her money for anything at this time. Okay, let's talk about a different woman in poker. 
who's been part of some drama in recent times. Jamie LaFay is a female poker player, and it seems like a lot of times she gets involved in drama, even though she isn't very well known. Some people on Twitter know who she is, but she's not like a a very well-known player by any means. In fact, I wasn't really aware of her until last year. If you want to see her on Twitter, it is LaFay Jamie, L-A-F-A-Y-J-A-M-I, LaFay Jamie, and her name is Jamie LaFay. That is not her real last name. I have her real last name. I was nice enough not to publish it, even though she wasn't very polite with me. But you don't have to be polite with me, so that's fine. I'm not going to publish her real name for whatever reason she's trying to hide it. But she goes by Jamie LaFay. And I had only one communication with her prior to this recent drama. And that was someone threw me in a multiple person Twitter chat. So this was like DMs on Twitter with me, like two other people and her. And she was told to tell me about her story that she had a uh, sexual harassment complaint that occurred at the Aria and that maybe I could help. So I really hate getting involved in that sort of thing in a he said, she said situation. I think this is totally the type of thing where you should take this to management unless you have smoking gun proof. Because otherwise, who knows what happened? You know, like I, I'm, let's say she said such and such a dude sexually harassed her in the aria. How do I know if that happened? Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Now, if there were several witnesses to this that I could trust, then sure. But if she just says it, I, I can't just go out on Twitter and, and trash the guy not knowing what really happened. And also, even if she claims that uh, she did report it to the ARIA and they didn't do anything, I can't really trash them because I don't know the whole story. So I, I don't like getting involved in those things unless it's pretty clear what happened because you can end up looking like a fool when you're only told one side of the story and that side ends up not being completely correct. So she told some story about being sexually harassed at the ARIA and her calling the guy out and that she got thrown out of the room at 86 from the place and that management at the ARIA would never explain it to her, that the ARIA poker room management was just very, very difficult and unreasonable and blaming her because she was mad about some guy sexually harassing her. And I'm like, you know, that would be awful if true, but I don't know about this. Like, I, On one hand, maybe I could see it because there's a lot of favoritism in these poker rooms. So if it's like a regular that the management liked or a fish that they wanted to keep in the game, uh, I could see maybe something like that happening. But I could also see where there was a lot more to the story that she's not telling. And that, like, let, let's say I just took her claim at face value and started just attacking the Aria poker room. And then I found out later that there was a lot more I didn't know. I would look like a fool. So I don't like getting involved. So I, I, I just kind of let it go. I, I just didn't really say much there and the whole thing ended. I forgot what I even said. I, I didn't challenge her and say, I don't believe you or anything. I, I just kind of didn't say much, and, and the whole thing kind of went away from my perspective. 
she, I saw her still bringing it up on Twitter every so often, but whatever. It wasn't my fight. wasn't my problem. It was impossible to verify if it really happened this way. And the story was kind of strange because you know, everybody takes sexual harassment pretty seriously these days. So it's hard for me to believe that a, a guy would have been sexually harassing her in the Aria and that she'd be kicked out for it. But okay, that's not what this is about. That was just my only interaction with her. So again, I don't know what really happened at the Aria. Maybe she was the victim there. I, I don't know. But she was making a pretty big deal about it, and I just figured I'll let her make the big deal, and this really isn't my thing to say. Now, had I witnessed it, that would be a different story. If I was at the table and saw this happen, then I'd be very much in her corner and uh, calling out the aria for it. But I I didn't see it happen, nor did anybody else I could uh, trust as a witness. So anyway, back to what happened recently. This is what she tweeted on December 19th, and I didn't notice this until like five days later. She tweeted, a guy just sat down at my table and he smelled horrible. I asked for a table change. Then I asked if he was a tournament player. He said he was. Then I said, yeah, you smell like it. (laughs) What? (laughs) I didn't know tournament players smell worse than cash players. In fact, I think cash players would probably smell worse because they can play for longer sessions. There have been some cash players who just play days and days and days at a time. And they don't shower. They don't brush their teeth. What they do is uh, they'll catch little naps, sometimes actually at the table. Sometimes they'll just go to their car and, and sleep it off for two hours and come back. And those, they'll, having, they'll, they'll be playing there for days without ever washing it all or brushing their teeth. So they can really get to smell. Tournaments, they, they only go so long, and then you go back for the day, either to your room or your house, and then you can take a shower. So I don't, I don't know what she means by you smell like a tournament player. She said, I asked for a table change and stood up. Someone told me to sit down, and I said, no, he smells. (laughs) He got upset and said I had bad etiquette. I told him he had bad etiquette for coming to the table smelling like smelly cheese. (laughs) He left. I like how he just leaves at that point. She's like, you know, you're the one with bad etiquette. You smell like smelly cheese. He's like, yep, you got a point there. Okay, goodbye. (laughs) So he left. She says, well, okay, first called the floor, and they were like, I don't know. She's right. It is bad etiquette, LOL. I don't know if they really said that. So then a guy named Andy Ontel wrote back, and I'm sure you did it very discreetly so as to not embarrass the guy, right? And she said back, I was going for honesty. I did say it quiet at first. Then when it was so bad I couldn't sit down, I didn't care just like he didn't. So basically her point is, yeah, I was rude to him, but he was rude to come here smelling like that, so F him. Then a guy named Daniel. I haven't seen this Daniel guy before. It's not one of the known Daniels in poker. But this guy named Daniel said back, maybe take a bit of your own advice next time. No need to berate someone publicly. And he showed a screenshot of a 2019 tweet from Jamie saying, the way mental health is treated is certainly lacking in this country and many. We need higher standards and bluntly more concern. So he's basically calling her out saying maybe this guy had mental health issues, which made him not shower enough or whatever, and and you're mocking him in the room here and that you're not taking your own advice. So she writes back, where is your mother? I want to talk to her and ask her why she raised someone who thinks that being dirty is okay. (laughs) 
The first things we learn in life before math, reading, or anything is self-care and care of our environment. Time to grow up, buddy. A guy named Bootsy said to her, yeah, it seems like you should take your own advice. If you knew anything about mental health, you would know it for sure could lead to a lack of personal hygiene. Do you think depressed people are prioritizing showers? He may not be, but you don't know what people are dealing with. She says, I don't need to know. He needs to grow up. It's not my job to be his mommy. Terry Ticklestein. Wait a minute. Is this guy's name really Terry Ticklestein? (laughs) (laughs) Is that really his name? Terry Ticklestein? I know we have a listener here named Mr. Tickle, but that's not funny like Terry Ticklestein. It's the fact that his name starts with T, Terry Ticklestein. And, and by the way, Terry Ticklestein's name on Twitter is Terry the Tickler. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. So Terry the Tickler wrote, what if he had a congenital disorder that he couldn't help? Trimethylaminuria makes people stink no matter how much they shower. There are other disorders that cause uncontrollable body odor and or halitosis. If you had a medical problem like that, would you want to be called out? Okay, so Terry the Tickler kind of brings up a decent point there, that there are some people who just can't help smelling bad due to various disorders. There could be, uh, as he said, uh, bad breath disorders that they can't control, uh, stomach issues that they can't control, or this uh, condition, this trimethyl amoria, whatever that is that I've never heard of, but somehow makes people smell bad. That Maybe it's that, but from my experience with poker players, there's a lot who just have bad hygiene. There's a lot that just don't shower enough or spend days at a time in the poker room without ever going home to shower. So I would say it's more likely the guy just wasn't very hygienic and could control it. But you don't know for sure. I understand the tickler saying that. Anyway, Jamie said back, he said he didn't shower, quote, because the guys at the poker table don't care. Hashtag grow up. He was a gross person, not being respectful to himself or anyone else. Andy Robinson said back, can't believe people think this is okay. Want to say something to him, fine, but shaming someone like that is totally uncalled for. She said, shaming would be to call him a fat, smelly guy. I just stated the facts. <laughs> so, folks, it's not shaming if you just say he's a smelly guy who smells like stinky cheese. It's only shaming if you say he's fat and smelly. So just fat or just smelly is okay. But fat and smelly, that's crossing the line. Interesting. Interesting logic. Andy Robinson said back, nah, not cool in my book. And she said, take your book somewhere else then. So it went on and on and on and on. And there were very few supporters. There were a few who were defending her, saying, look, the guy was insensitive to show up smelling like that. It's about time someone stood up and said something. I'm so tired of sitting next to smelly people at the poker table who don't care, blah, blah, blah. But most people were like, no, Jamie, this is very rude. To just outwardly shame the guy instead of discreetly changing tables is pretty bad. So I decided not to get into the whole fray, especially because it had been five days. And I discovered this thread after the whole thing had kind of died down anyway. I wanted to comment about it. I decided just to make a joke. So you guys remember the story about Annie Duke and how she did not have very good hygiene herself. And there's this infamous picture 
of her bending forward where you can see her butt crack that's actually dirty and her tattoo that says, say yes when nobody asked. So Annie was accused by various people to be showing up to the table smelling bad. And then, as I said, there was that one picture with the dirty butt crack. So I decided to make a joke about this. I said, wow, how did I miss this thread? If only I could transport Jamie back to the mid-2000s and sit her next to Annie Duke. (laughs) And I put hashtag say yes when nobody asked. So she writes back, oh, thanks, but no thanks. Now, I'm not sure if she got the joke. I'm not sure if she was around back then and not sure if she knows the story. But I wasn't insulting Jamie there, right? I wasn't calling her names. I wasn't saying she was wrong. I wasn't saying anything negative about Jamie. All I was saying is that I wish I could transport her back to the 2000s and sit her next to Annie Duke. That's it. So what happened? Jamie LaFay decided to block me. And it was because of that tweet, because she blocked me like seconds later. Like I see the notification she responded, then I go look and I see she's blocked me. I have no idea why. So I actually went on my Dandruff Poker Twitter account that I usually use just for chip updates when I play tournaments. And I responded asking, why did you block me? I'm not sure if you understand this, but I wasn't trying to insult you. I wasn't making any kind of derogatory comment about you. I was making a joke about Annie Duke. Just like no answer. She didn't answer at all. So I have no idea what it was, but she wouldn't explain it, and she blocked me, which is fine. It's her right, but it's weird. Like, why block me for that? But now I am blocked by Jamie LaFay. She did not like my Annie Duke joke. So who is she? Who is Jamie LaFay? Jamie LaFay, as I said, that's not her real name. She's using a phony last name for whatever reason. But Jamie LaFay is a poker player from Vegas who is 43 years old and sometimes acts erratically as she kind of did with blocking me there. She has like 12,000 followers, but she is not particularly well-known. I'm not sure where all the followers came from, maybe just because she's a female. The pictures of her, like, it's kind of hard to tell what she really looks like because I've seen her look different in so many pictures, and it's all her. She's not posting fake pictures or anything, but I see a lot of different pictures of her, and they're not really, like, filtered or anything. Like, maybe some of them are, but I'm talking about pictures that are clearly not filtered or altered in any way. And there's just a lot of variance in how she looks. I'm not even completely sure what she looks like. Uh, I do have a picture posted in a thread I made about this in the Flying Stupidity Forum on Poker Fraud Alert. And I have a pretty clear, straightforward picture of her in The Win, which was taken fairly recently. And if you take a look at this picture, she's a fairly attractive 43-year-old female poker player. In my opinion, she's not like super hot, and she is 43 years old, so she's not going to be as attractive as the younger hot poker chicks. But for 43, she looks pretty good. I'll say that. And it varies from picture to picture, but as far as her looks go, she's uh, fairly pretty from what I can see, especially for her age. And I have to imagine that's why she has the 12,000 followers. I had no prior interaction with her other than that conversation about the sexual harassment at the Aria where I chose not to get involved. And she didn't seem to be angry about that. And she didn't block me back then. 
And she didn't hassle me about it or anything. It was actually not her idea to talk to me. Somebody who knew her that also knew me thought maybe I could help, and I, I kind of just didn't want to. But I was very polite about it, and I didn't really say much. I didn't want to make her feel worse if she felt she was sexually harassed there and nobody's helping her. I, I didn't want to rub any salt in and say, hey, you know, maybe you're not telling me the whole story. I, I just kind of backed away and uh, didn't get involved. So I don't think she's bitter about that. She probably doesn't remember. So something happened in my response there that got her angry. But I can tell you from looking at all her tweets that something's just not totally right with her. She seems like she's uh, a little bit off, a little bit uh, too uh, easily agitated and too histrionic and too overly emotional. And I kind of get the impression from looking at her tweets that a lot of people are kind of afraid to respond to her because they don't want to incur her crazy wrath. That's kind of what I'm getting when she posts things. Now, this whole thing about the smelly guy, some people couldn't help themselves. But I'm, talk- I'm talking about like her normal tweets. It, they get a lot less engagement than you'd expect for someone with 12K followers, especially a female with 12K followers. And I think some people are just kind of afraid to set her off. She just kind of gives me that vibe. It gives me that vibe of like a person who's just really going to go off if you piss them off slightly. And you kind of just say, you know what? I'm just not going to say anything. I, I just don't want to even start with them. I, that's kind of the vibe I get with her. So how do I feel, though, about the bottom line behind her actions there? Because you can see this from both sides. She is correct that there is some degree of rudeness to smell really bad and not care and show up at the poker table that you should have at least some awareness of this. But at the same time, at the same time, you have to have some tact when you're dealing with people like that because as uh, the tickler said, you don't know. You don't know what their situation is. It could be mental health. It could be that they're, they, they somehow aren't aware. It could be that they are aware but it's much worse than they think. It could be that they just don't know what to do and can't control it. And it's like either don't show up and play poker or show up not smelling good. There's a lot of different ways. Or it could just be someone who just doesn't give a crap and shows up smelling bad and doesn't care what you think. So it could be a lot of things. And uh, you, you shouldn't shame them and, and humiliate them in front of everybody. It's totally fine to change seats or change tables. And if they happen to hear you, then too bad. And uh, even if you want to quietly say to that person, you know, by the way, I'm changing tables because uh, you don't smell very good and it's really bothering me. I can't sit next to you. So could you please take care next time to show up cleaner and smelling better? And you you say it discreetly where the person is not humiliated in front of everybody else. If you want to call them away from the table to speak to them for the moment, uh, that's fine, too. But uh, to stand up and say, you smell, I'm moving tables because you smell. And the person says, hey, you're being rude. Oh, you're being rude for smelling bad. I, I don't think that's appropriate. I think she was overdoing it. So I can understand why she was pissed off and why she didn't like that the guy just showed up smelling that way because you don't know the whole situation. And even if you do, it's not a bad enough offense to where you should humiliate them. It's not like If he sexually harassed her there and she stood up and announced it, that's fine because that's the guy's behavior. That's the guy's direct behavior. But if he just smells bad, this, he's not doing it to harm her or harm anybody. He just, at worst, just doesn't care very much. Someone on the forum said, 
she seems like someone who often states, I don't like drama while constantly creating drama around her. 100% true. 100% that's exactly the way she is. That was a, a great line from Slow Roll on the forum. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, it's Desert Runner. Desert Runner, hello. What's going on? Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, hello. I'm at work. I'm getting ready to crash out, so I thought I'd take a chance to call in and say goodnight and enjoy the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you're uh, enjoying it so far. And uh, did you hear the, what I was just talking about with the yeah. woman calling out the guy for smelling bad? Who, who do you think was in the right there? I think, well, I, I was catching bits and pieces of it. I think everyone has an obligation to use proper hygiene and come at, you know, everyone should make an effort in general. And there should, to the point where there should be no question, but... If someone's foul, you know, you got to get move away. You got to do what you got to do to get away from the person. I hope I, I hope I answered the question there. Well, but she called the guy out very loudly about it. That's the question. There's no question it's okay for her to get away from him. Yeah, that, yeah I probably wouldn't call someone out very loudly like that. I, I wouldn't do that, but. Yeah, I wouldn't um, either. I like, would uh, take a maneuver. To, uh, yeah, that's what I would do. I would, I would yeah. switch and tables or. Or seats, but I, I wouldn't uh, call the person yeah. out loudly over it. Especially, this is a, like a one-time thing, too. She, it's not like she was encountering him every single time he smells terrible. This was like one time, so who knows? Uh, oh, also, I missed the first half of the show, so I'm looking forward to hearing the replay on Dave Lehrman. So yeah, yeah. You know, D- Desert Runner here I'm knew Dave Lehrman as well, and uh, he knew him for about the same amount of time I did. So yeah, I actually talked to him about him for yeah. about an hour. I just kept going on about that. So you will hear that in the archives, and yeah, I'm sure you'll be interested in that since you knew him personally. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, and I hope I hope you can do uh, the Mojave Air and Spaceport history sometime. That's where I'm calling you from right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I will uh, definitely try to uh, get that uh, on at some point here as a Mojave desert and Las Vegas history segment. All right. Thanks, buddy. Take care. All right. Thanks. Talk to you later. Desert runner who lives up to his name. He he really likes the desert and he sometimes requests segments for Mojave desert and Las Vegas history. He's even given me ideas on things to cover. So yeah, that's one of the requests of his for the uh, Mojave desert spaceport. And I will do that at some time in the future. It's actually a pretty well-liked segment. I had wondered when I was starting to do Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history if this would be boring and if people would say, who cares about this, especially people who don't live in California or Nevada. But people like it. People have actually enjoyed these segments and told me they look forward to those. So I'll do another one soon. Moving on, you never know what's going to happen at a poker room. And unfortunately... Sometimes very unstable people go to poker rooms and you can end up incurring their wrath. So you do have to watch out when you go to a poker room that if there's someone acting erratically or obnoxiously, uh, it may be very tempting to start up with them or talk trash back to them if they are rude to you and even confront them. But the problem is that you never know what that person's capable of, and they can end up 
harming you because they may be in a very, very bad state of mind and you never know what they're going to do. So this was definitely the case here with an individual in a Washington poker room. This is in Vancouver, Washington, which is neither in Washington, D.C. nor in Vancouver, B.C. The town of Vancouver, Washington is actually in the very southern part of Washington. You'd expect it to be northern Washington by Vancouver, B.C., but it is not. It is in southern Washington in the greater Portland area. I've actually been there before. And a man named Scott Robert Harmier, who is 41 years old, was at this poker room, which is a small poker room. It was called the Last Frontier Casino. And out of nowhere, he attacked four people with a knife and stabbed them for no apparent reason. So this wasn't even a situation where he was arguing with people and then pulled out a knife and stabbed them. He just stabbed them for no apparent reason. So like if that will happen, then you never know what someone will do if you start an argument with them in a poker room. So you shouldn't sit there terrified in a poker room, but at the same time, you you have to realize it's not always in your best interest to always get the last word or always act like a tough guy because things like this can happen. So what happened was that uh, out of nowhere, this guy, Scott Harmier, stabbed four different people, two males and two females. The two males were named uh, Bradley Harrington and Guao Liao, and the two females were Virginia Ruddy and Song Rang. And all of them suffered between two and five stab wounds each, and they were all hospitalized. All of them, except for Liao, were treated and released within a few hours, but Liao had a wound very near an artery, and they were worried if they released him that it could uh, bleed out and he could die, so they had to observe him for longer before releasing him and determining that he's okay. But they all got between two and five stab wounds, which uh, presumably are going to take a while to heal. And it had to be very, very uh, scary to have this happening, to some psycho attacking you out of nowhere. Harmier had numerous prior assault convictions, and he had 22 different bench warrants for his arrest. I'm not sure what they were for, but a bench warrant is where they are not actively looking for you, but that uh, it is in the system that if any police officer comes in contact with you and looks you up, that the order is to detain you. So there were 22 bench warrants for him, which is crazy. And that he also has been served with at least one restraining order in the past and has been cited on multiple occasions for illegal possession of a firearm because he... uh, presumably cannot own one due to his previous uh, assault convictions. The Last Frontier Casino has two table games rooms, and one of those two rooms is a poker room, and I guess the other has uh, other table games. But it was in the poker room where the attacks occurred. He is being charged with first-degree Class A felony assault, and it carries a sentence of up to life in prison and a fine of 50K. Now, I don't think he's going to get life in prison here, but given his past record and the fact that he just 
abruptly attacked two men and two women there for no apparent reason with a knife that is probably going to result in a stiff sentence. In addition, Harmier attempted to escape the police, so he was also charged with felony eluding. When the police were attempting to arrest him for this, he tried to drive away from them at speeds of over 100 miles per hour in order to get away from them. The police then put down spike strips in order to stop his car, but somehow these spike strips did not work, and he went over them, and somehow the tires didn't pop, so he continued driving in this reckless fashion. So they ended up finally getting him through a risky maneuver, which has been criticized by some people. It's called the PIT maneuver. It stands for Pursuit Immobilization Technique, and it's where the cop car comes up behind the car they're chasing and uh, bumps it at an angle to where the car spins out, and then they surround him and arrest him. The problem with the PIT maneuver is, number one, it can be hard to be able to perform without causing harm to the officer or the suspect or other vehicles around there. So you have to be especially careful that there aren't other vehicles around there that they'll slam into. But even if you know it's clear, uh, it's risky, as I said, to the law enforcement officer and also the victim can sometimes be killed if they have a harsh crash from it and then there can be uh, lawsuits about that. But they did the pit maneuver and it worked. The car spun out and they were able to take him into custody in a uh, northeast Vancouver suburb. So I have to imagine that Scott Harmier is not going to be seen in any poker rooms for quite some time. This incident occurred on December 12th. It was late at night, and he was using a hunting knife for the stabbings. A $1.5 million bond was set, and... Not surprisingly, he hasn't been able to meet the bond, nor does he have rich parents putting up their house to cover the bond, like SBF. So he is still sitting in jail. And I imagine that's where he's going to sit until his hearing that's going to be on February 2nd in Clark County, and not the Clark County you think, Clark County, Washington, for these five felonies that he's being charged with. That is for the stabbing of four people and the felony evading. So there's people like this that hang around poker rooms. You never know if they have any weapons on them, and you never know what might set them off. I do wonder if this guy should have even been on the streets. It's possible that he got out way too early on these prior assault convictions and should have still been in jail. And This is a big problem. This is a big problem, and unfortunately, a lot of people in the U.S. are not being realistic about violent crime, and how to prevent it. And one important fact that people need to know is that a large percentage of violent crime is committed by a small percentage of the population. And you have to look at that and say, okay, well, what do we do about this? And if removing this small violent percentage of the population from the streets is going to greatly bring down the violent crime then that's what we should do. And I'm not saying to imprison people for life for every violent conviction, 
but you need to have sensible sentences that leave them imprisoned for long enough, number one, to deter future crimes, and number two, to get them off the street. And it's fair because violent crime should be taken very seriously, and it causes irreparable harm to the victims. It's not just physical harm, it's also psychological harm. Some people never get over violent attacks. Some people have nightmares about it and anxiety and trauma for the rest of their lives. You can't just minimize it. You can't say, okay, well, the physical wounds have healed. They're fine. There's mental wounds that will be there for the rest of their lives in some people. And it is rare when you see a case like this that the person doesn't have a past. Occasionally, they don't have a past as far as violent crime, but usually they do. Usually, somebody who has been caught committing some kind of violent crime, you will see they have other violent crime they've committed. And then that makes you wonder, why was this person out in the first place? There are many who believe that we need to keep giving these people second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances to turn themselves around. But the problem is most of them don't, and then innocent people suffer for it. So while it's sad that somebody gets to this point and commits violent crimes and now is going to be locked away for a long time, it's something that needs to be done for the good of society. And if you don't do that, it's going to keep happening. And it all comes back to the fact that only a small percentage of the population commits violent crime. It just seems like a lot more because there's so much of it, because it's the same people doing it over and over. And by the way, I know we're kind of getting on a tangent here, but the communities that will benefit the most from locking away violent criminals longer will be the inner city minority communities. So if you really think black lives matter, if you really think Hispanic lives matter, if you really want to help poor people who live in neighborhoods that are very bad and dangerous, if you want to make their lives better, rather than constantly focusing on the police and complaining about them, I'm not saying the police are perfect, but uh, the much, much, much bigger problem are the repeat criminals that terrorize these neighborhoods. And if you get these repeat criminals off the streets, then the law-abiding people living there will have much, much nicer lives, much more pleasant lives, a much more pleasant and safer existence. So if you want to help those in the inner city, you should support people being imprisoned for longer who have a clear pattern of violent crime. If you don't, then you're just supporting these criminals terrorizing those communities. And if you're sitting there in a nice suburban neighborhood that doesn't have much crime, Yeah, it's easy to say, oh, we're locking up too many people. It's racist, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you're the one who doesn't need to live in the area where most of this crime is happening. And I know this particular crime we're talking about here in the poker room has nothing to do with that. I'm talking about in general. If you don't have to live with the consequences of letting these people out for the most part, then it's easier to say, oh, yeah, let's do it. Let's give them another chance. If you have to live in the neighborhoods where this crime tends to happen, then you're going to feel the consequences. So I'm always very skeptical of those who live away from most of the crime saying, yeah, we should give these violent criminals more chances. We should have shorter sentences. We should lock fewer of them up. We should have uh, no cash bail. Try living in one of those neighborhoods and then maybe you'll feel differently. 
Try putting yourself in the shoes of a law-abiding person who wants to just live life normally and safely and have their family live safely who lives in one of those neighborhoods. And tell me if you'd like to have a lot of these criminals walking around. I don't think you would. I don't think you'd want that for you or your family. So that's something you have to think about when it comes to crime and punishment. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox about this. But this Harmia guy, he, he, I think he should have been probably in uh, prison for what he did before. Now, maybe this was many, many years ago. Maybe these convictions were back 20 years ago. Then I'd say, okay, fine. If this guy was a repeat criminal 20 years ago and then calmed down and was a good citizen for the last 15 years, then okay, I understand why he's out. But it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like this guy is just a career criminal and uh, troublemaker and, and violent asshole. And, you know, maybe he does have mental health issues, but still, he's a danger to society. And yes, I understand that we do need to improve as a country in dealing with the mentally ill. And there's a lot that can be done with that that hasn't been done. And there really does need to be a lot of improvement with that. And I don't know why it hasn't been done. I don't know why the two parties can't get get together and figure out how to better deal with the mentally ill and maybe spend some money to deal with the problem, which seems to be just increasing. I'm not talking about people who are otherwise living normal lives but are experiencing anxiety and depression or other things like that. I'm talking about ones who are dangerous to society that are mentally ill or can't function normally because they're mentally ill and are homeless or whatever. I don't know if this guy was homeless. I assume he wasn't. I'm talking about the severely mentally ill who are a ticking time bomb. We do need to have a way to deal with them. And that is a problem that both parties need to solve. But at the same time, there are plenty of criminals who are not mentally ill and who are just violent, and they need to be off the street. Okay, moving on. The former site of the Stephen Paddock shooting that occurred during a country music concert that was near the Mandalay Bay has finally been sold. And it was sold to three Indian tribes. And presumably it's going to become an Indian casino. So MGM Resorts International has finally closed on the sale that's been discussed for about a year and a half. And this was for the 15-acre property that was near Mandalay Bay that was formerly owned by MGM Resorts, where that uh, Route 91 Harvest Festival concert took place on October 1st, 2017, when Stephen Paddock broke his hotel window and shot out with uh, automatic weapons that he had modified and killed 58 people and injured more than 850 more. Two others also died later from the injuries, and Paddock also killed himself before the police breached his room. And this was something that he carefully planned. This wasn't just a sudden idea to shoot people. This was something he'd been planning for a while, and he'd been scouting at different sites, including other cities and in Las Vegas, and he settled on this. So we've talked about that at length. We've never gotten a full profile of Stephen Paddock, which is kind of weird. But anyway... The site of 
the shooting has just been sitting empty ever since. They've never used it in the over five years that have passed. It's just been sitting empty. They just basically left an open lot there. In August of 2022, MGM Resorts donated two acres of the property to the county for a permanent memorial for those that were killed at the shooting. Clark County did a survey and asked county residents whether they felt that it was appropriate and desired to build some kind of memorial there. And overwhelmingly, people said yes. So at that point, MGM donated two acres of the property in the northeast corner of it. And the county then took control of it. And they've been planning for some reason uh, for years to do this. I don't know how long it takes to plan a memorial, but they've been planning this memorial for three years. And it's not even close to being done yet. They still are in the planning stages. They sold the rest of the property. The two acres that were donated are not part of the sale, but they sold the rest of the property to what's known as the three affiliated tribes of the Fort Birdhold Indian Reservation in central North Dakota. The three affiliated tribes includes the Mandan, Hidatsa, and the Arikara Nation. They're also known as the MHA Nation. So these are three different tribes, but they, for whatever reason, affiliate with one another, and they call the entire area the MHA Nation. So they bought those remaining acres that were not donated, the 15 out of the 17 acres that were not donated, and presumably they're going to start a casino there. That's why I would have to imagine that an Indian tribe or a group of three tribes would buy such a property. Otherwise, why would they want this? Why would a North Dakota Indian tribe want to buy 15 acres near Mandalay Bay? The exact terms of the sale are not known, but MGM did disclose that they have sold it and who they sold it to. It has not been said what's going to be done with the 15 acres, but again, I have to imagine it's going to be an Indian casino. There are other Indian casinos now in Las Vegas, including the former Palms, which is still called the Palms Casino Resort, but now is uh, Indian-owned. And also the Mohegan Casino, which is attached to the Virgin Hotel, which is the former Hard Rock. So those are the two existing Indian-owned hotels in Las Vegas, which are both fairly recent developments. The Palms, if you remember, was originally owned by the Maloof family, who also owned the uh, Sacramento Kings, but now is currently owned by the San Manuel Band of Mission Indians that also run the San Manuel Casino in Southern California. So this, I believe, will be the third Indian-owned casino if it goes up sometime soon. Otherwise, there probably will be others by the time it goes up. I'm not sure why MGM decided to sell the land. I I think probably because they felt it would be a bad look if they did anything to profit from the land going forward. So I think they just wanted to get rid of it after donating those two acres. It just would be a bad look if they 
put something there that's generating a profit. So this way they can sell it to another company that will then use it to make a profit, which to me doesn't make much difference. I think if you're going to use that land as the permanent memorial for the rest of time, then do it. And if you don't, then don't. I think it's nice that there's a two-acre plot that's going to be used for this memorial. I don't know why they can't speed this up, but I, I guess it's nice that it's going to be there eventually. But at the same time, if you're going to sell it to an Indian group to put a casino there, why not just use it yourself? I, I don't really see the difference. That's really a case where I think it's symbolism over substance. I'm fine with the symbolism if they just say, you know what, we're just going to leave this perpetually untouched. We're going to own it, but we're not going to do anything with it. Fine, but if it's between selling it to a company that's going to put up a casino there or using yourself for profit, then just use it yourself. I mean, who, who really cares who's doing it? Okay, time for an FTX update. The FTX situation is moving very quickly. Usually these type of things take a while prosecution-wise. But keep in mind, this entire development came to light in early November. And here we are less than two months later. And they've already got various people arrested and they already have people plea bargaining and they have the ringleader SBF in custody and he's being charged. So this has been very, very rapid. So this has been resulting in a lot of news about it happening quickly. Caroline Ellison, who I believe was probably the number two figure in the whole thing behind SBF, and we've talked about her at length, she went to New York and made a deal with the feds. And I had a feeling that was the case as soon as she was spotted in New York. Otherwise, why would she just voluntarily come to New York when she's in the Bahamas? So indeed, that's what had happened, and I discussed that on the last show. But what has come out since then is that Caroline had some testimony that she already gave regarding the situation that basically admits to everything and all that we have suspected was occurring there was. (laughs) And she's verifying it. So this looks pretty bad for SBF. She completely confessed to everything. She admitted that she knowingly engaged in illegal business tactics, that she knew the money that was received by Alameda was stolen. She and Gary Wang, who was another accomplice in the whole thing, who started FTX with SBF, uh, they have both pled guilty to a number of felony charges as part of a plea deal and expected they're going to get... Very, very reduced sentences. There's even some speculation that Caroline may not even spend any time in prison, which will be amazing, but uh, she may not. I think it's amazing because even with her cooperation, she still was very much involved in stealing $10 billion. So even if she was the number two person in the scheme and not number one, she was still very actively involved in it and knew what she was doing. So when $10 billion is stolen for them not to give at least a semi-stiff sentence for this to the number two person involved is crazy. Anyway, since they released her testimony, people have learned a lot of things that she has admitted to already. She said from in and around July 2022 
through at least October 2022, I agreed with Mr. Bankman-Fried and others to provide materially misleading financial statements to Alameda's lenders. Remember, Alameda Research was the company that she was the CEO of and that was receiving the stolen money, which is both uh, regular currency and cryptocurrency that came from FTX that was customer funds. She said, I was aware that Alameda was provided access to a borrowing facility on FTX, the cryptocurrency exchange run by Mr. Bankman-Fried. I understood that FTX executives had implemented special settings on Alameda's FTX account that permitted Alameda to maintain negative balances in various fiat currencies and cryptocurrencies. So what she's saying here is that Alameda's account on FTX had the ability to continue trading even when the balance was zero. That she basically could bring the balance negative and didn't have to cover it in any way. That she had unlimited money to continue trading with, which nobody else there did, of course. If you chunked off all your money on FTX with bad trades, then you'd be broke, you can continue. But she could. Alameda could. Alameda had a special status on there to where it could continue trading with negative balances, even if their actual assets there totaled 0.0. She said, in practical terms, this arrangement permitted Alameda access to an unlimited line of credit without being required to post collateral, without having to pay interest on negative balances, and without being subject to margin calls on FTX's liquidation protocols. I understood that if Alameda's FTX accounts had significant negative balances in any particular currency, it meant that Alameda was borrowing funds that FTX's customers had deposited onto the exchange. That's pretty significant there because she's admitting that if there were major negative balances on Alameda's accounts, that she knew that it was actually being funded by customer money. That it wasn't just that FTX was covering these balances out of its profits, She knew that if the losses were very large, that this would be covered by customer money. She then added, in furtherance of this agreement, for example, we prepared certain quarterly balance sheets that concealed the extent of Alameda's borrowing and the billions of dollars in loans that Alameda had made to FTX executives and to related parties. I understood that FTX had not disclosed to FTX's equity investors that Alameda could borrow a potentially unlimited amount from FTX, therefore putting customer assets at risk. So basically, she's admitting here as well that they defrauded investors, that they covered up the fact that Alameda had this unlimited credit line and could just keep taking out loans from FTX backed by customer money, and if that Alameda lost those funds, they'd be losing customer funds, which is what happened. She said, I agreed with Mr. Bankman-Fried and others not to publicly disclose the true nature of the relationship between Alameda and FTX, including Alameda's credit arrangement. She said that Bankman-Fried and others conducted investments using FTX customer funds in a way that would conceal the source of the nature of those funds. She also added, I'm truly sorry for what I did. I knew it was wrong, and I want to apologize for my actions to the affected customers of FTX, lenders of Alameda, and investors in FTX. Since Alameda and FTX collapsed, since Alameda and FTX collapsed in November 2022, 
I have worked hard to assist with the recovery of assets for the benefit of customers and to cooperate with the government's investigation. I'm here today to accept responsibility for my actions by pleading guilty. Mm. So she's basically copying to everything. Every allegation, keep in mind SBF was denying all this on Twitter for all this time, but every allegation that people have been making about what was going on at FTX, she's basically saying, yep, that happened. Yeah, that happened too. Yeah, that also happened. Yeah, this is also what happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we did all that. (laughs) There's like not even any denial. It's not even like, well, it looks like this happened. Let me tell the real story. It's not quite as bad. It, It wasn't that. She's just like, yeah, we did it. Yeah, we did this too. Yeah, we're guilty. So that's pretty strong coming from the number two figure in this whole thing. It's possible that SBF will try to use the defense that she is copping to all this to get a sweetheart deal from the government, and she's just basically saying whatever they want her to say, but she probably has records and she probably has proof she can provide to back all of this. So he may not be able to come with that defense. If he knows that she can bring out a lot of evidence that will back these assertions of hers, then he's going to have a hard time saying, no, she's making this up. She's lying. So it's not clear whether SBF is going to eventually turn around and plead guilty. At the moment, he has not. The only two to plead guilty are Gary Wang and Caroline Ellison. The government has warned that anyone involved in this scheme needs to come forward while plea deals are still possible. U.S. Attorney Damian Williams said that if you are participating in misconduct, now is the time to get ahead of it. We are moving quickly and our patience is not eternal. So basically they are saying, don't wait for us to come arrest you. Come to us like Caroline Ellison and Gary Wang did and confess to everything and give us all the info and we'll go a lot lighter on you. If we have to come get you, then we're not going to give you any deal. Very interesting. Very fast moving this entire situation. Now, what about SBF? What is his situation right now? I told you on the last show that He was arrested in the Bahamas. He was extradited to the U.S. He decided to allow them to extradite him. He decided not to fight it because Bahamas prisons suck and he didn't want to be stuck there. So he was back in the U.S. And I mentioned last time that even though he had a $250 million bond he had to put up, somehow his parents guaranteeing the whole thing against their house was enough, which is weird because their house is not worth $250 million. I don't even think it's worth $25 million. So it doesn't make sense how by them signing over their house as a guarantee why they would let him out, but they did. So you would think at that point with SBF being accused of being the ringleader of a $10 billion theft you would think that if they are going to release him to his parents' house, that at the very least there will be a condition that he can't get on the internet. Because it's not just about him getting on the internet and spouting off stupidity. Who knows what he would do on the internet? He could have cryptocurrency that he still needs to hide. And he may have a lot more assets than people think. 
And if he has access to a computer, he might be able to arrange the cryptocurrency being stored away somewhere that the government can't get to it. And then maybe he could even find a way to escape the country if he's got enough assets. I'm sure they they have some sort of monitoring on him. But, you know, if you have enough money, there's ways around that. So I'm pretty shocked that someone who would be such a flight risk, he's not like Caroline Ellison, who came in voluntarily. He did not come voluntarily. They grabbed him. And he knows he could be facing a very, very stiff sentence. They may be going for a life sentence with him. So to him, it might be worth it, especially if he has assets in crypto, to try to get out of the country and then go somewhere that they will not extradite him and then live on his cryptocurrency the rest of the time. That's what I said last time on this show. But I would say at the very least, to make him less of a flight risk, make one of the conditions of bail that he cannot access a computer. And by the way, that's a very common condition. They do that all the time when someone's accused of some sort of computer crime, whether it's a computer sex crime, like child porn, or just any other kind of computer crime, such as hacking or whatever. It is extremely common, both when out on bail and on probation, that you cannot use a computer. That's very common. You'd think the guy who is believed to have stolen $10 billion that when you let him out on bail that you would say, okay, SBF, you can't use computers. But nope, he's back on computers and he's tweeting again. So he wanted everybody to know, I'm sure his attorneys didn't want this, but nevertheless, he doesn't seem to listen. He wanted everybody to know on December 30th, this is after he was released and back to his parents on this $250 billion bond that really wasn't. Because some Alameda wallets became active again days after he was bailed out, which again is very suspicious that uh, very shortly after he was bailed out, all of a sudden that uh, there were funds transferred from Alameda wallets and were kind of washed to where it was hard to tell where they were going. And that's important because... If it was the government doing it, they wouldn't have to hide anything. They wouldn't have to try to mix the transactions in order to make it difficult to track. The government would just very straightforwardly send it to where it needs to go. So, for example, uh, 600 Ethereum moved out of a wallet that belonged to Alameda and was swapped to Tether and then... Other part of, parts of the transaction was sent to something called Change Now. Then some of the money was swapped for Bitcoin using decentralized exchanges. So clearly someone was accessing this who was trying to get these assets out of Alameda and not allow the government to access it because they knew the government would seize it to pay back victims. So someone was doing this, and this was after he was released on his $250 million bond that really wasn't a $250 million bond. So people, are, of course, were suspicious that SBF was doing this, and rightfully so. So he wanted everyone to know he didn't do this. He tweeted out, none of these are me. I'm not and couldn't be moving any of those funds. I don't have access to them anymore. Well, okay. SBF, we can trust you. 
You say you don't have access? Okay, case closed. He says he had no access, so obviously, guys, it wasn't him. (laughs) This is so strange. I'd like to think that maybe the government has a plan here. Maybe they think he can't help himself and he's going to incriminate himself further when they let him out. So maybe they do know this is him and they're just letting him do it to hang himself. But what the hell? Like, why are they giving him access to the Internet? Then he continued, I believe it is likely the case that various legit legs of FTX have the ability to access these funds. Hopefully that's what's happening here. If not, hopefully one steps in soon to do so. I'd be happy to help advise regulators on this if any want it. (laughs) You think regulators want the advice from one of the biggest financial criminals of all time? On the fraud he committed, he's happy to advise them. (laughs) You've got to be kidding me. So he tweeted those on uh, December 30th. This guy just doesn't learn. He doesn't learn. I don't know why he's even still tweeting. But someone's moving those funds out of Alameda, whatever remains there. They're, They're still moving things. And I don't think it's the government. And I think he knows this, too. He, he's acting like he's a dummy. He's like, oh, you know, I, I think it's probably legitimate legs of FTX. Like he's referring to the, the government who's taken over. No, no. Eh, they wouldn't be washing the funds. They wouldn't be mixing the funds to try to make it difficult to track. He knows that. The fact that he's actually saying that he thinks it's legitimate legs of FTX shows that he knows it's something shady and doesn't want to say so. So whether it's him or not, I don't know, but. Very suspicious. And yes, he could be dumb enough to think that he is going to hide this somehow. He may be thinking that he is smart enough to get out on bail and access these funds and ship them somewhere for later use. You'd think this is very dumb if he's the one doing it. But keep in mind, he's been tweeting about all this crap, all this time. He was going on Twitter spaces and podcasts and TV shows and everything else just spouting off. I mean, there's so much material for them to use against him. At least Caroline and Gary were smart enough to shut up. Everybody else was smart enough to shut up. He's the only one spouting off. All the way up to when they arrested him. And then they do arrest him. He goes out on bail. He spouts off again. So while this guy is a genius intellectually, it seems like from a common sense standpoint, he doesn't have a lot of it. (laughs) I don't know what he thinks he's doing, but I can really imagine that he's dumb enough common sense wise to think he can get away with this. Because something I've noticed with SBF is he believes he's smarter than everybody. He believes he can trick people into believing whatever he says because he got away with it before, right? He tricked everyone before to steal all this money, to trust him. So he thinks by going on Twitter and acting like this hapless, uh, innocent guy who didn't mean any harm by continuing to play that role, trying to play the helpful role at this point, that people say, oh, you know what? You seem like an okay guy. You're not a criminal. You're an okay guy. You just made some managerial mistakes. 
but nobody's buying it. Like you look at the comments, everyone just clobbers him. So nobody's even buying the act at this point. Everybody knows he stole the money. Well, I have another interesting element to talk about with this FTX thing. That is Daniel Friedberg. Remember I was talking about how former UB attorney Daniel Friedberg, who was the architect of the cover-up. We have him on tape. I've played it on this show before. We have him on tape discussing with Russ Hamilton and Greg Pearson and others how to underpay the victims of the UB cheating scandal and how to get away with not paying certain people at all and how to push a false narrative of what really happened and lie to everybody. We have him on tape being a complete snake in the grass, being a complete lying piece of shit doing this. And now he is a major figure in this FTX scandal because he was their compliance officer basically the entire way. And we've wondered... Is Daniel Friedberg finally going to get what's coming to him? And we were wondering, are we going to hear soon that he was arrested and charged? And I was really, really hoping that he was going to be arrested and charged because he really should have been over the UB stuff. He just wasn't. Nobody was charged in the UB stuff, unfortunately, except for the payment processors. and They weren't really the problem. Nobody was charged involving the cheating, but he definitely should have been. So I was hoping, at least for this, that Daniel Friedberg would be charged, but we hadn't heard anything about this. There was definitely a lot of talk of him in media. He deleted his LinkedIn. He was very obnoxious with NBC News and tried to say that he's only talking off the record. And they said, nope, it's not off the record. And then he just stopped talking to them. But people hadn't really known up until yesterday What was the situation with Daniel Friedberg regarding any kind of possible criminal prosecution? Well, we have more of an idea now. Some big news just came out, and this was on Reuters, published on uh, January 5th. Daniel Friedberg has been cooperating with federal prosecutors since the very beginning of the FTX scandal. Of course he is. He wants to save his own ass. He has no loyalty to anyone. The second this hit, he's like, oh shit, I better go to the feds and give them everything. So they promise not to charge me. FTX filed for bankruptcy on November 11th. On November 14th, Friedberg received a call from two FBI agents in New York. And he said, hold on, guys, hold on. Don't arrest me. I will tell you everything. But hang on a second. Remember, I'm the attorney for FTX, so I need to ask them to waive their attorney-client privilege so I can really tell you everything. So Friedberg wrote to FTX and said, hey, guys, um, I'd like to cooperate with prosecution against you. Can you waive your attorney-client privilege so I can do that? (laughs) well not surprisingly FDF said nope (laughs) what you actually want us to waive a privilege so you can help prosecute us he's like well yes it'll get me out of trouble and they're like nope 
not happening. So he went back to the FBI and said, well, uh, they're not waiving it, but I want to cooperate in all respects. So then the U.S. Attorney's Office, I believe in the Southern District of New York, which also busted the poker sites back in the day, set up a meeting where Friedberg signed what's known as proffer letters that was prepared for him by the SEC and other agencies. What is a proffer letter? Well, a proffer letter is something that describes a potential agreement between authorities and individuals who are either witnesses or subjects of an investigation. So, in short, they gave him a letter saying, if you cooperate completely and tell us everything you can, then we are in return offering such and such as far as not prosecuting you or as far as prosecuting you lightly. So it looks to me that they gave him this letter basically guaranteeing they're not going to prosecute him if he just gives up everything. And obviously he was very happy to get that. So he has not been arrested. He has not been charged. And he was not told that he was under a criminal investigation. He's expecting that he's going to be called as a government witness in SBF's October 2023 trial. So it looks like he's just going to be a witness. It looks like they are not looking to charge Friedberg, which is too bad. So the entire way since November, Friedberg has been helping the government. This article on Reuters, by the way, does mention the UB cheating and the cover-up. It says, according to an audio recording available on the website Poker News, which isn't true. It's, it's linked on Poker News, but it's actually on YouTube. It's also on the Poker Fraud Alert channel on YouTube. Friedberg and some other Ultimate Bet associates privately discussed that year how to handle the scandal and minimize the amount of refunds owed to players. Friedberg previously told NBC News that the audio was illegally recorded, but NBC's article did not say that Friedberg challenged its authenticity. Yeah, exactly. So Friedberg's not saying, hey, that wasn't me or it's out of context. He's like, "Uh, yeah, that wasn't legally recorded. Well, number one, I don't know about that. Number two, he hasn't raised any issue about this illegal recording despite knowing about it for nine years and actually about 10 years now. And number three, it was him and he was doing exactly what we heard. And he's a piece of shit. Friedberg was said to be involved with FTX from the very start. He first represented Sam Bankman-Fried in 2017 as outside counsel when he was with a law firm called Fenwick & West. And then eventually he left Fenwick & West and joined FTX as their chief regulatory officer. In a blog that FTX published in 2020, SBF wrote that Friedberg was FTX's legal advisor, quote, from the very beginning, and noted that he's been, quote, with us through thick and thin. Despite all that, it does look like Friedberg the snake is going to wriggle out of charges here, which makes me sad. Now, Friedberg's name is probably Mud, and I have to wonder if he can ever get work again. But I bet he has a bunch of money socked away somewhere. This guy totally belongs in a prison cell. I was so hoping that they were going to charge him and he'd plead out, of course, and 
get some prison time and have have to be disbarred. But I wonder that too. I wonder if he's going to get disbarred out of any kind of agreement. I don't know what he's agreed to, but I, I have to imagine that the number one consideration is that he doesn't want prison time. So it's possible he will agree to be disbarred and not challenge it. I don't know if the feds care about this because a lot of times they don't, but it's possible. Sometimes that is part of a plea agreement. If you remember, even uh, Bill Clinton was disbarred over his perjury. Not that he was going to practice as an attorney again after being president, but Bill Clinton was disbarred. So it's possible that Friedberg's going to be disbarred. I'd love to at least see that if he's not going to go to prison. This guy should not practice law ever again. This guy has a complete lack of respect for the U.S. legal system. He is beyond a shady attorney. So that's pretty big news as far as Friedberg, that he's been cooperating with the Fed since the start. And it looks like they're not going to charge him. We haven't seen this proffer letter. I don't think he would be talking this much if they said they're going to prosecute him and he was not informed that they're criminally investigating him. So to me, it kind of looks like that the Fed said to him, okay, you know, you weren't actively stealing from what we can see. It just looks like that you were their compliance officer who just was looking the other way, but you weren't actually doing any of the stealing or using the illicit funds. So since you just had knowledge of it, but weren't actually doing it, if you dump everything to us that was going on, then we won't prosecute you. And probably to Caroline Ellison and Gary Wang, who were involved in the theft and the usage of these funds, they're probably being told, okay, we're going to definitely prosecute you, but we're going to give you a much, much lighter sentence than we would if you weren't cooperating, if you tell us everything. And you'll be getting a slap on the wrist compared to what you'd be convicted of that we have you dead to right. So just tell us everything and it'll be pretty easy on you, but you're still going to have a criminal record. And then SBF is the big fish they're trying to get here. That's what it looks like to me. And I really hope there's some sort of end game with this weird way that he was kicked back to his parents' house. It really might be some sort of trap, and I hope so. Because the whole thing's so weird. This $250 million bond that was secured by a house and how he's allowed to go on the internet and how all of a sudden funds are moving out of Alameda. I hope it's a trap. That's all I can say. And I hope they're seriously going to prosecute SBF and give him a ton of jail time. Otherwise, this whole thing's a joke. It's already enough of a joke if Caroline Ellison and Gary Wang get slaps on the wrist for their part in this whole thing. Because these weren't just innocent people who kind of went along with it. They've admitted that they knew. They've admitted that they were using stolen funds. As far as I'm concerned, they were all involved in the stealing. SBF was the head of the whole thing. He's the one who should be the most culpable. He's the one who should see the most prison time. But the accomplices who were very happily taking these billions and billions of dollars and stealing it to trade with that SBF was providing them with. He's like, hey, here's some stolen money, guys. Okay, sure. We'll be happy to trade with that. 
that deserves real prison time when it's billions of dollars. You can't just say, well, SBF was actually the one who was doing the stealing or making the stealing available to us when they knew they were using customer funds here, when they knew they were stealing from customers with their trading, then they were very responsible too. And it shouldn't just be let these people off with barely any punishment so we can go after the very top guy. There can be some in-between. There can be, we're going to prosecute you and we're going to give you some serious jail time, but not as much as we otherwise could if you cooperate. Now, maybe that's what it's going to be, but I don't think so because it was so quick. I think if they were going to give them serious jail time that they would not have agreed so quickly. It seems like this is a very, very big sweetheart deal where they couldn't say no. Otherwise, why is she testifying so quickly and just spilling everything if she's going to get something like 10 years in prison? So I'm really doubting now she's going to get any kind of significant prison time because she could just say, wait, no, I'm, I want to negotiate. But it seems to me that an offer was on the table to the two of them, come back immediately and we'll arrest and charge you, but you're going to get a very light sentence if you tell us everything. And that's why they've been so eager to rush to the U.S. and spill their guts. So that's too bad because they were very, very involved in this and they knew what they were doing. It's not that they should have known. They did know. They admitted they do. And there's a lot of evidence against them. That's the whole thing. They, they didn't need these people necessarily. They could have easily prosecuted SBF without this. They could have easily prosecuted Caroline and Gary Wang without their cooperation. So it's not like they needed so many people to spill their guts. They, they already had Friedberg. It'd be great if they just prosecuted all of them and then offered them some reduction for giving information. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Well, now we're at the point of the show that we're going to talk about COVID. I haven't done a COVID segment in a while because COVID is now about three years old and most of what needs to be said about it has already been said. And not a whole lot has changed over the past year. Once Omicron took over, it's been pretty much the same. But there is a new variant that I want to talk about. And you've probably heard about it. But you may not understand it. There's been so many different variants they talk about. It's hard to keep track of them all or understand what they are. I wonder what percentage of Americans understand these variants at all. They, they know they exist, but if you ask, uh, what are these variants? What does it mean? What's the difference? I, I think most of them won't know because it's kind of complicated and difficult to follow. But I'm going to try to explain this and make it very easy to follow. So the current dominant variant in the U.S. as I speak here, early January 6th, 2023, is XBB 1.5, which is an Omicron variant. There's been three different major forms of COVID since it began. There was original COVID, which was from the beginning in late 2019 in China. It got to the U.S. probably in uh, January of 2020. And original COVID was the dominant COVID variant until mid-2021. So it was about uh, 18 months 
in the U.S., original COVID. Then Delta COVID took over. That was the first major variant that took over for original COVID. There were other variants, but they they never really took hold. I'm talking about major variants that became the primary source of infection. So Delta took over and eradicated original COVID because it was a lot more contagious. Delta had about the same deadliness as original COVID, but it was a lot more contagious. So it was even worse because you get it a lot more easily, but it's still just as deadly. Sometimes as they mutate, they get less deadly, but that hadn't happened yet with Delta. Then about five months later, there was a very, very important development, one that has saved a lot of lives. Millions of lives were saved by this development, and that was the mutation that became Omicron. And this isn't discussed enough. This is not discussed enough that Omicron was a blessing. Omicron was what we were waiting for. Aside from COVID disappearing entirely, which isn't happening and may never happen, Omicron was the best we could have hoped for because it was far, far, far less deadly than Delta and original COVID. But it was way more contagious, which was actually good. Why? Because it eradicated Delta pretty quickly. And within about a month, there was no more Delta. Delta was gone, and it was all Omicron. So Omicron took over that quickly. There's a huge wave of infections that happened at the time because it was so much more contagious. But this was good because it did away with Delta, and Delta was killing people at a very high rate. The two deadliest points of COVID were the winter of late 2020 and early 21 and the winter of late 21 and early 22. Why? Because it was original in the late 2020, early 2021 timeframe and then Delta about a year later. And people are catching it a lot more because they're indoors a lot more because it's winter and it's cold. So fortunately, this was interrupted in January 2022 by Omicron almost completely eradicating Delta. And Omicron was 10 times less deadly overall and probably more than 10 times less deadly, in fact, surely more than 10 times less deadly for people under 65. It was a tremendous difference for non-elderly people and elderly people too. But non-elderly people When all the smoke cleared, all of a sudden, non-elderly people were really not in danger from Omicron. It wasn't killing people who were under 65, except in very rare cases, very much like the flu. If you look at the flu, the flu we've always known, it just about exclusively kills elderly people. And then the second most vulnerable group are children, unfortunately talking about the flu, not COVID. And then people who are teenagers through middle age are pretty safe from the flu, where you have very few people dying of the flu who are healthy or semi-healthy teenagers through middle age, even late middle age. That's been the profile of the flu. That's why if you get the flu when you're 50, you don't go, oh my God, I might die. You think, okay, I have the flu, it sucks, but I'm going to get better. 
And that's how you feel all the way until you're old. And then you start to worry about the flu. So that's what Omicron basically became, except it's not killing children. Unlike the flu, which kills some children, Omicron's not. So if you're under 65, Omicron basically was not a threat to you. Even if you're unvaccinated, even if you have some health problems, even if you have major health problems. As I've mentioned on this show, we're down to like three out of every million population under 65 that are dying of COVID each month. Not each day, each month. So it's basically become deadly only to old people, COVID, and much, much less deadly than original and Delta. This is great. This is a blessing. Whatever caused that mutation saved a tremendous number of lives around the world. We need to be extremely thankful for the mutation to Omicron. And the good thing is viruses don't mutate back. Viruses do not go from deadly to less deadly to more deadly again. They get progressively less deadly or they stay the same. So now that we have jumped to Omicron, it is not going to become more deadly. It's very unlikely. So keep that in mind. When you hear this panic about such and such new variant, don't go, oh my God, I've got to watch out because it might kill me like original COVID might have two years ago or three years ago. Like, Don't think that because we're past that point. Omicron, all the forms of it, every mutation of Omicron has had about the same profile with deadliness or hospitalization in that it's much, much, much lower than previous COVID variants and people under 65 basically don't have to worry. So that's great. And I've told you this before. But what about this XBB 1.5? And why do I want to talk about it? Because we've had other mutations within Omicron and I haven't spent as much time talking about them. So why do I want to talk about XBB 1.5? Okay, so Let's quickly talk about the Omicron variants that were of note. We had original Omicron, which I just mentioned. Then it gave way to Omicron BA2. That was the next major variant, but it was within Omicron. So it was called a subvariant. Omicron BA2. So that was more contagious, but about equivalent virulence, meaning that it was not more deadly, it was not more harmful, it was just more contagious. So it replaced regular Omicron. And that was in the spring of 2022. It hung around through the spring. And then in June, and actually actually it was late May, it wasn't so much June, it was uh, May, that BA2 started to get replaced by even more contagious variants, BA4 and BA5. BA4 and BA5 were very closely related. And they kind of appeared on the scene around the same time. And they pretty much walloped BA2 into submission. So they took over for BA2. However, and this is important, BA2 didn't completely disappear. BA2 hung around. It just was not anywhere near a dominant variant. It was hanging around like 1% or 2% of all the cases. It also had some subvariants that spawned from it. But nothing ever really took hold. None of BA2's subvariants could beat BA4 and 5. Now, let's connect poker into this. The World Series of Poker began in late May 2022. And when it began, BA2 was the dominant variant. And BA4 and 5 were just beginning to show up. But 
Nevada was a bit ahead of most of the country with BA4 and 5. So BA4 and 5 was moving faster in Nevada than it was elsewhere. And when I got COVID and when a lot of people got COVID in early to mid-June at the World Series of Poker of 2022, it was unclear if we were getting BA2 or BA4 slash 5 because at that point in Nevada, it was about 50-50. BA4 and 5 were on the way to completely taking over, but they hadn't done it yet. So they were kind of in the process of knocking down BA2 but they were only about halfway there. So it was about 50-50 if you got COVID when I did in early to mid-June, whether you got BA4 or BA5 or BA2. Four and five are enough sim- similar to where you can almost consider them the same thing, but BA2 is different. So it's not clear which one we got and there's no way to test for it. And the earlier you got it in the series, the higher chance it is that you got BA2 versus BA4 and 5. By the time we're at the main event in July, it's probably BA4 and 5, especially 5, because 5 had strongly taken over by July. But early June, mid-June, 2 was still present. But 2 never completely went away. At the same time, they were developing a new vaccine to replace the old one. The vaccine they had been using, they didn't modify at all. So the vaccine you were getting in 2022 was still the same vaccine that people were getting at the end of 2020 and beginning of 21 that was designed for original COVID. This includes the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, even the Johnson & Johnson. All these vaccines were aimed at original COVID, which had been wiped out. So why were we still getting shots for original COVID when Omicron was the variant? Well, that's a good question. It was seen that this vaccine was still helping people avoid hospitalization and death. So it did have some value. However, there were more and more breakthrough cases because this vaccine just wasn't good enough at preventing Omicron, which had mutated enough to get around the vaccine that was developed for original COVID, which was dead. So we really, really needed an updated vaccine, and they were working on it. They were working on an an updated Pfizer, an updated Moderna, and they decided they're going to aim at BA4 and 5. And the thinking was that BA2 is on its way out, just like Delta was on its way out and gone, just like original COVID was on its way out and gone. BA2 wasn't quite gone, but BA4 and 5, especially 5, had taken over to such a large extent that two was pretty irrelevant, although not gone yet. In fact, by late July, this is when uh, Benjamin and Benjamin's mom caught COVID, it was like 82% of all cases in the U.S. were BA5. So BA2 was just about gone, but it still existed. It still had a, a, a few percentage points of infections, whether it's BA2 itself or some of its... Uh, offshoot variants that never really took hold, but were still kind of there. So they had a decision at this point, and they made the wrong one. The decision that they could have gone with was, since BA2 isn't completely dead, let's not ignore it. Let's make this vaccine a vaccine that focuses upon BA2, 4, and 5. So this way we cover the whole spectrum 
of possible mutations. Now, it's possible it'll keep mutating after this to where, again, the vaccine won't work well, but at least we're going to cover every type of COVID that you can get at the moment. BA2, 4, and 5. Now, yes, there were offshoots of BA2 and BA4 that were existent at that point, and soon there was going to be offshoots of BA5, which we got, which is BQ1 and BQ1.1. That was towards the very end of 2022. But when they were developing this bivalent vaccine, they made the decision to forget BA2. Just they assumed it's going to get wiped out completely just like Delta had. So why should we even bother? That was a gigantic mistake. Because the current dominant variant in 2023, XBB 1.5, is not a variant that came from BA4 or BA5. It came from BA2. Oops, that is a big problem because that means that this bivalent vaccine that they've been trumpeting all this time as something that is the solution to the vaccine not working very well anymore because it was made for original COVID. So now we have our updated vaccine that was available starting September 2022 that they've been encouraging everyone to get. Well, what do you know? The new dominant variant is not related to BA4 and BA5, making the bivalent vaccine mostly useless. Again, might be good at preventing hospitalization and severe cases, but vaccines you got a while ago are still effective for that. And previous COVID infections you've gotten and recovered from are good for that. So really, if you're getting the vaccine presently, you're getting a booster, you're getting like your fifth shot. The whole point of this is to make it so you don't get symptomatic infection, so you don't get sick from COVID. And that's why they made a special one here, this bivalent vaccine, which is a combination of protecting you from original COVID, which I I don't understand why they're leaving that in there. Maybe because they feel it's still protecting you from severe infection. They don't want to remove it. So they, they are leaving the original COVID portion of it in there, but they're also adding the protection for BA4 and 5. But lo and behold, guess what's going away? BA4 and 5 and their offshoots like BQ1 and BQ1.1. Those are going to be gone because it turns out that the new dominant variant, XBB1.5, is much more contagious than anything BA4 or BA5 has ever produced. So they're getting wiped out. XBB15 is taken over fast. It is the new COVID of 2023. Every day it is advancing. And BA4 and BA5 may not even survive. They may be completely wiped out by this. Now, why is it called XBB1.5? Well, XBB1.5 is a combination of two variants of Omicron. XBB Omicron, which we didn't see in the U.S. that began in Asia and made it over to the U.K., somehow never really made it over to the U.S., so that was never a problem here, and BA2. It's kind of like a child of those two. So it's a direct descendant of BA2. So that means if you previously had Omicron BA2, then you might be protected against XBB 1.5. So if you got it in the early World Series of Poker of 2022, 
good news, you may actually be protected from XBB 1.5. We don't know for sure, but the best chance you have of being protected against XBB 1.5 is if you had COVID BA2 or XBB, but that's unlikely because it didn't make it to the U.S. And even in the U.K., it was never a major variant. So really your best chance of having protection was if you had Omicron BA2, which I'd say was about 50-50 for me. It's funny because during the summer and fall, I was hoping I had BA4, so I would be protected against uh, BA5 and also its subvariants. <laughs> now I'm hoping the other way. It's kind of like in poker where you're hoping your opponent's on a draw when you've got a hand that can beat a draw but not much else, and then if the draw comes, you're like, okay, now I hope they didn't have a draw. <laughs> like, let's say your hand gets better, but the draw also comes. Like, you, you make a set on the river, but they make a flush, possibly. And then you go, well, now I hope they didn't have the flush draw. It's kind of like that here, too, where I'm like, okay, I hope I had BA4. I hope I had BA4. I'm like, up. Oh, I hope I didn't have BA4. I hope I didn't have BA4. That's where I sit right now. But it doesn't matter what I'm hoping. It matters what I actually had, and there's no way to tell. So if I had BA2, I probably won't be getting this XBB 1.5, but maybe I will because it has been seven months since I had COVID. And it's not known how long natural immunity lasts, but there is a theory that if you had BA2, you're not going to get XBB 1.5. And I'm hoping that's the case, and I'm hoping you, I had BA2 for that reason. I think XBB 1.5 will probably be around for some time. But if you had BA4, BA5, then you're vulnerable. It's bad news, but you're vulnerable. So if you had Omicron, if you had COVID since... I'd say July, and it's not super recent anymore. So if you just had it a few weeks ago, you don't have to worry. But let's say you had COVID four or more months ago, but your last COVID was sometime uh, after July. Then I hate to say it, but you're vulnerable once again. You could easily get COVID once again. Let's say you got the bivalent booster. Doesn't matter how recent. Even a few weeks ago, you are vulnerable to XBB 1.5 because they screwed up and did not make it to where it fights BA2, which they could have. They just chose not to. Huge mistake. I don't understand the mistake. It's a weird mistake. Like, why not do it? There wasn't a downside to doing it. That's what's so strange. Michael Josem, who's appeared on the show before, he tweeted something about this. He said, it's depressing that there's apparently yet another new variant of COVID, XBB 1.5 spreading, and despite having had the capacity to create a targeted vaccine for this since January 2020, there's no effort to produce one in any hurry. We are truly a joke of a civilization. Now, he doesn't mean that we've known about BA2 since January 2020. We did not. It didn't exist then. He's saying that when they we're developing these mRNA vaccines that one of the big features of them is that you can quickly change them. So he's wondering why we aren't quickly changing the vaccine to cover BA2 and XBB 1.5 for that matter. And I'm wondering why we didn't cover BA2 in the first place. First place meaning when, when they did this bivalent vaccine. If they're going to update the vaccine, why not cover every single variant that is infecting people at the moment because they just took it for granted. They just said, okay, well, you know, it's two, three percent of all cases. Yeah, that's not going to be the one to mutate. It's It's been pushed down by BA4 and 5. This is going to die. So we're not going to bother. Gigantic mistake. 
So if you got the bivalent vaccine, don't feel confident. It's pretty much a waste at this point. I'm so glad I didn't do that because I get sick from the vaccine. So it wouldn't have been worth it to me because I didn't get COVID again. I got it once. I got it in June. I haven't gotten it again. And now BA4 and 5 are on their way out and, and this XBB has taken over. And if I got the bivalent vaccine, it wouldn't be helping me because XBB is not an offshoot of those. So I'm so glad I didn't do that. And this is a problem with these vaccines is that by the time they are made and distributed, that a lot of times they're obsolete. Now, when it was available in the fall and BA5 was still the dominant variant by far, then yeah, it was worth getting if you were in a vulnerable group and if you were not getting side effects from it. But now at this point in January 2023, it's really not worth very much. If you've had past shots, you shouldn't bother, in my opinion, with the bivalent vaccine because it is not aimed at the right variants anymore. Master Scaler had COVID in October of 2020, original COVID, and I have received notification today via text message that he has it again. For whatever reason, I think because his phone is unreliable, he gave my number for them to text when his results are ready. I didn't even know he took a test, but I just got this result today that Master Scaler's result is positive. So he caught probably XBB 1.5, and I know where he caught it too. He went to a massive Jewish singles event on December 31st. So presumably on January 2nd, two days later, probably at night, he felt sick and then scheduled the test for the next day during the day on January 3rd. And that's exactly the time frame you'd expect. It's usually about two days from when you catch it that you start feeling it. So he went and took a test on January 3rd, put my phone number down, and then I got the text two days later on January 5th and said he was positive. So I, I can't even reach him to tell him he's positive. I texted him, but I don't know if he got the text because his phone's messed up, so who knows. But I know. I know he is positive, and it's probably XBB 1.5. Master Scaler is obsessed with vaccines. He has had five shots, including the bivalent booster. So you see how much good it did him. Why? Because his five shots have really not that much protection against Omicron BA2 or its offshoots. He had four original shots and one bivalent vaccine, which is for BA4 and 5. What's missing? BA2 and XBB 1.5 is a child of BA2. So he got COVID. He went to a very crowded place with a ton of people indoors for hours and that's exactly where you'll catch COVID just like the World Series of Poker just like indoor concerts these are all venues where it's very easy to catch COVID much easier than a restaurant or a bar or anything like that the worst setting to catch COVID is something with a ton of people with not much ventilation indoors for a long period of time so that's what he did on December 31st, and he has COVID. I assume he'll be okay. He's almost 53 with no major health problems. And as I said, this isn't killing people, but he had a pretty tough case of COVID back in October 2020. This is a different COVID, so maybe he won't hear, but 
he definitely didn't have a good time with that COVID. Now, maybe I'm not hearing from him because he's so sick he can't make any phone calls. But he's a perfect example of someone who got the bivalent vaccine and got COVID anyway. Now, what shall we say overall then about the vaccine? Should we say that the vaccine was a failure? Well, no. The vaccine did very well in preventing deaths of middle-aged and elderly people in 2021 and beyond. If you look at the death stats, you'll see a tremendous drop in the spring of 2021 and even in early 2021 because the elderly people were getting it earlier than the spring. But right after January, the death rates dropped tremendously because first the elderly got vaccinated and they're the ones dying at the highest rate by far. And then the middle age got vaccinated and it dropped even further. So you get to like June and the death numbers were a fraction of what they were in January of 2021. And it's exactly because of the vaccine. So you can hear all these comments about the vaccine killing people and all these young people dying suddenly and all these supposed heart attacks that were because of the vaccine. And I know there's a lot of talk about that NFL player who collapsed on the field with cardiac issues and fortunately looks like he's going to live, but people are already blaming the vaccine for that, which is stupid. But the truth is the vaccine helped far more than it hurt. It's true it did hurt some, it did kill some, It was not as safe as they were claiming. I didn't expect it would be as safe as they were claiming. I knew it was bullshit. But it was something where if you were middle-aged or older, it was the smart thing to do by the odds, by the numbers. There's no question. And people are playing with numbers and engaging in funny math to try to prove that it did more harm than good. That's a bunch of bullshit. It did way more good than harm, at least for middle-aged and older. For young people, that's debatable. But that's been my position the whole way, that middle-aged and older, it's obvious that to get the vaccine. And if you're younger, then it's questionable. But that was then, and this is now. That was the original COVID and Delta. Now that we've got Omicron, which isn't killing people who are under 65, even if they are unvaccinated, then there really isn't that much of a point to get it. And you'll say, well, maybe I don't want to get sick. Well, okay, great, but that's only if it works. And it's not working anymore to stop people from getting sick because they're not even aiming it at the right variant. So right now, if you have not gotten the bivalent vaccine, I'd say don't bother. If you've had some vaccination against COVID already, and you're old, that's pretty much all you need. I mean, if you're really old, you want to get a booster, fine. I'm just saying it's, it's, uh, I'm not sure if it's doing you much good, but if you're really old, you might want to anyway, just because you don't want to mess around at that age. If you're middle age, uh, don't bother with it. It's not even the right variant it's targeting at this point. Just don't bother. Especially if you have side effects from it, like I do. And the side effects I'm getting are not dangerous side effects. I I just get sick. I get sick for a few days. It sucks. I had a 103 fever for the last two shots I got. And I'm like, okay, that's it. I don't think I'm doing this again. Not for Omicron. It's not worth it. But boy, am I happy I didn't get myself sick another time just to have the wrong variant targeted. What a disaster. So they, they definitely made mistakes here. The initial vaccination effort was a success and it saved a lot of lives. And if you don't believe that, then you're a fool and you're not looking at the data. Currently, uh, unless you're really elderly 
or you have some sort of major, major pre-existing condition, the vaccine's not going to do a lot of good, especially boosters. And perhaps most importantly here, be aware that if you put yourself in a risky position for catching COVID, such as a concert, such as the World Series of Poker, such as a, a big indoor party that you're there for hours, or a super crowded large restaurant that you're there for a long time, then you may very well get this XBB 1.5 because it's very, very good at breaking through both protection from the vaccines and protection from natural immunity, except maybe if you already had COVID BA2, Omicron BA2, which you would have caught in the spring of 2022. So Matt the Rat, who called earlier, he got COVID about two days after I did. So he also may have had BA2. So Matt the Rat, good news, you may be immune to this XBB 1.5. But we don't know. I might be, you might be, but we also may have gotten BA4, in which case we're not immune to it. It's even possible if you had BA2, you can get XBB 1.5. I, I just have a feeling that if, you, if your body already fought BA2, you're probably good because they are pretty closely related. So I'm really hoping I got BA2. But yeah, if, if you didn't have BA2, which, which isn't a large portion of the population, because uh, keep in mind, most people who got Omicron in 2022 got either the original Omicron or BA4 and 5. BA2 just wasn't around long enough as the dominant variant for most people to get it. It's just the World Series of poker players in the beginning of the series, uh, a lot of them probably did get BA2. So that's the one thing you can hang your hat on. But most Americans are now vulnerable to BA or to, to uh, XBB 1.5. So really, just about everybody is now vulnerable to this, and we're going to see a lot of people catching it. There's going to be a lot of COVID illness out there. You're going to see a lot of positive cases, and the vaccine's not going to help you. Trader Ruski, hello. What's happening, Trough? So Trader Ruski has still not gotten COVID, right? Still haven't gotten it after this depressing segment. I think I'll be uh, masking up again. <laughs> yeah, this, uh, I hate to say it. It's probably going to come get you at some point. This is the most contagious one yet. And uh, and yeah, it, it is depressing that they didn't include the BA2 protection, which, which was a choice. The, in fact, there was a doctor on Twitter who was tweeting about this, and he was showing old tweets that he had made that he felt it was a mistake at the time they were developing the bivalent vaccine that they weren't also focusing on BA2. And he was going and doing his I told you so rounds on Twitter, showing his old tweets, going, ah, ah I told you guys. And the guy was right. The guy was right. If you're going to do the vaccine, you got to do it correctly. You can't, uh, can't leave out the variant you think is not going to be a problem because you never know ba2 it kind of hid in the background as like you know i'm not completely dead yet and i may not be the major variant now but you know what i can still have kids i may not be that relevant but i can still have kids and i'm going to have one and my kids can be better than me and that's basically what ba2 did ba2 had a, a, a son that was better than him and that's the variant of concern at the moment and it's it is going to take over it, it, it may already be more than 50 percent of the cases it does for sure already have a plurality of the cases, and I think it's already at the majority. If it's not, it will be this week, and I think by the end of January, it will probably be the vast, vast majority of new COVID cases, this XBB 1.5. So this is not just a, a guess or a theory or 
scare tactics. No, it, it, this is happening. This is going to happen for sure, and it's already uh, probably at majority status anyway. So I just wanted everybody to understand it. And uh, the good news, I do have a little bit of good news. It is not any more virulent than BA5. And in fact, it may be less. There is a belief that its ability to evade the antibodies and to get people ill and uh, that it's believed that this quality also makes it uh, less virulent and it's uh, possibly going to be killing even a smaller percentage of people than BA5 was. So it's possible this is going to be good in that way, but it's going to be bad in the way that a lot of people are going to get it again. So prepare for a lot of COVID cases in early 2023. And, oh, by the way, speaking of masking, since uh, Trader Ruski brought it up, uh, cloth masks are really not going to do any good here. Maybe they're better than nothing, but they're really not going to do much good. And even the CDC admitted this a year ago. So it's not just me saying it. The CDC even conceded that uh, with Omicron, the cloth mask is not going to do much good. And if you want to protect yourself from this XBB 1.5, you're going to need... uh, an N95, a KN95, and maybe a surgical mask can uh, help you somewhat. But an N95 or KN95, and I'm talking about a real one, not a counterfeit one, that's what you would need. And unfortunately, those are not very comfortable. So there's a trade-off here. I am not going to be wearing this stuff. I've taken the approach now that I'm just going to live life normally. And if I get it, I get it. And I've been playing live poker, and I will go to the World Series of Poker. I'm very aware at some point I will get it. I'm hoping I was fortunate enough to have had BA2 to where maybe I'll have uh, some more months of no more COVID because of uh, existing immunity to it. And hopefully, hopefully whenever I do get COVID again, it will be as mild as it was the first time around, which may not be the case, but I'm hoping that is the case but I'm not going to put myself through any vaccines that get me sick anymore. And I'm not going to panic about this since it is highly unlikely to kill me or do any major damage to me. And same with you, Trader Ruski, even being a few years older than me, you're also in pretty good shape without uh, not getting hospitalized or, or killed by the uh, new variant. Nice. Has any, where have you been playing mostly commerce or the bike or yeah, both. I, I've been going to both wherever the, game appears to be or what game I want to play at the moment and uh, yeah now the good thing is these are not super crowded especially when I go and I'm playing in a section that has fewer people so it's not like being at the World Series where you're crammed in with thousands of people in the same room literally thousands in the same room so while I am there for a long time and it is something that is uh I'd say semi-dangerous for catching COVID. It's nowhere near as dangerous as the World Series will be. It's not even a comparison. So that is at least one thing I can say. But could I catch COVID there? Yeah, very easily. If if I catch COVID, it probably would be a live card room. Because I really haven't been spending time indoors in any risky spots other than that for a large period of time. Not because I'm avoiding COVID, just because I just haven't been doing these things. 
but I've I've just taken the position that since this is not going to go away, I can't just avoid things I want to do forever. I was willing to do it for a year plus, knowing that I had decades ahead of me, presumably, to live. But I'm not willing to do this for the rest of my life. So I don't enjoy wearing masks. I don't want to stay away from doing things I want to do, like playing live poker or playing the World Series of Poker. So much like I risk getting a cold or flu when I do these things and have been my entire life when I do these things, COVID is just another thing to drop on top of it. And now that it's not something that's a a threat to kill me anymore, like the original and Delta were, especially before I had the vaccine, uh, it's a very, very different ballgame. And in 2020, I, I knew five people who were between 44 and 56 who died of COVID, who were not ones with major pre-existing conditions. Some had minor pre-existing conditions or mid-grade ones, but these were not people with cancer or something really, really major that you'd expect, okay, well, it makes sense. Now, these weren't people you thought were going to die anytime soon, and, and they died in 2020, five people I knew. So that uh, said to me that uh, I, I had to take this seriously, being in that age group. But this is a different COVID, so at least at least we've got that. At least we're uh, not concerned anymore. If you're under 65, you should not be concerned about it killing you, even if you're unvaccinated. And that and that's actually great news for the people who were just refusing to get the vaccine. That it used to be a huge difference what risk you had vaccinated versus unvaccinated if you're middle age. I mean, it's a huge difference. Like in, in the summer of 2021, if you were vaccinated, your chance of dying of COVID in middle age is pretty low. If you're unvaccinated, it was much, much higher. So that was the time that it was a tremendous difference, but now it's not anymore. Now, if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, you're probably going to have pretty similar results if you're under 65 regarding uh, symptomatic COVID. So that's why I, I'm not even bothering anymore. And, and keep in mind, it's not like the vaccines are completely gone out of my body. I, I've had four shots. I've had the real COVID. So I have some protection anyway. And whether I am protected from symptomatic infection probably has to do with whether I got BA2 or BA4. And there's no way to know. But yeah, Trader Risky's got a good streak going. Three years. Three years of no COVID. You outlasted Brandon, who finally got COVID late last year. And uh, Calwatt also is, uh, I believe he's going with no COVID. I think. I, I, know yeah, I thought kid- so. I thought you were right. I think you're right. Yeah, his, his, and, you know, I, I moved end of 2019. I moved from L.A. up to the Central Coast. And, I mean, that was a huge move, right? Because I, I, mean, I probably would have got it for sure if I was in L.A. But Yeah, that's true, that, that you were in a much less populated area and much less likely to be in big crowds for a long period of time. So that, that did really help a lot, probably. And, that, and that's why, like, totally. I, I'm not in, in an area that's, that's very densely populated. So I think that was also helping me. And that's why it took me going to the World Series in 2022 and sitting in that room with thousands of people to finally give it to me. Now, you, you did that, too, and you dodged it somehow. But that's the way it went. Me and uh, Matt the Rat weren't so lucky. Yeah, well, I think you guys had many more hours than I did in yeah. the poker room. But as I said on the last show, I, I'm not even disappointed that happened 
even though I missed some events and it sucked to sit in my room, I had such a mild case and then it prevented me from catching it later in the summer, such as when I took a trip, such as when I was around Benjamin, his mom, I was able to be the healthy one around everybody else who was sick and I knew I wouldn't get it. So it was kind of good. It was kind of a a good infection because it was so mild and then it prevented me from getting it for the rest of the summer. So that that was nice. And I had no fear of it for the rest of the summer. I I could I had Benjamin sleeping right in the bed with me, breathing in my face with his BA five and I didn't have to worry. And sure enough I didn't get it. So now I don't know. Like for example, I'm not gonna go visit Master Scaler. <laughs> I'll be staying away from him until he gets uh either a negative result or some time passes. I mean do you think he has a phone that doesn't accept text messages now? He has a phone that doesn't work well, and uh, it has power problems, and while it's powered off, it doesn't get all the text messages. You'd think he'd want to know. Like He knows he gave my phone number, so you'd think he'd want to know, and I texted him, so it's possible he just turned on his phone and it came through when I texted him and he just turned it back off. I don't know, but I haven't heard from him. So it's weird. Maybe he didn't get the text, but then I think, why doesn't he call me? It's very weird. Maybe he's like so exhausted because, as I said, he had a pretty hard time with the original COVID to the point I thought he might end up with lung damage, but he didn't. He was fortunate. The one thing that didn't happen was he didn't have breathing problems. And he likes walking around the San Fernando Valley. So I said, you know what? Once you feel up to it, try taking a walk around the valley. And if you don't have more difficulty than you used to, then you're fine. And then he did, and he was fine, and he didn't get any lung damage. So that was good for him. But he was pretty sick for like two weeks. And he was... Uh, not quite to the point where he's going to go to the hospital, but he was getting close. So he was, uh, and he had a very, very bad cough. So I don't know how he's going to experience it this time. But maybe he's just so sick right now that he doesn't really have the energy to turn on the phone other than maybe seeing that he's positive. But he's positive. And this is the guy who had five shots. Be aware. You know, you just, you just got to look at the data and, and know when you're in danger and what you're in danger of. And the truth is most Americans right now are in danger of getting XBB 1.5, no matter what their vaccination status is and no matter what their natural immunity status is, unless they just had COVID a short time ago. And I mean, really short time ago, like in October, November, December, anything before October, you're probably vulnerable. And if you had BA2, then maybe you're protected. But then again, BA2 was quite some time ago now. But I think the only two groups that can say they're probably okay at the moment with not getting it are either ones who had really recent COVID or ones who had BA2. That's my opinion here. And I think as time passes, I'll be proven right on both of those things. So I just wanted you guys to know this and just be realistic. And maybe you're okay. Maybe you're okay taking the risks that you get COVID. Maybe you, you want to go to concerts and go to crowded places. And if you get it, you get it. And you figure you're not over 65, so you'll be fine. You'll just be sick for a while. It'll kind of suck. And you'll get better like you do with the flu. If that's what you want to do, great. Then do it. I'm just telling you what to expect. I'm telling you this is very, very, very contagious. And if you're in a place for a while. And that, by the way, I, I just want to emphasize this before we, we shut down here. Because uh, we're, we're near the end here. But I I have to make it very clear that the real risk in catching COVID is being in a 
crowded place indoors for a long time. The longer you're there and the more people that are there, the higher chance it is that you will catch COVID. That's why the World Series is so terrible. Don't worry about surfaces. Don't worry about going to the grocery store for 15 minutes. I'm not saying you can't catch COVID in there. It's just not that likely. Where you're probably going to catch it is when you're indoor with a lot of people for a long time. That's where it's going to happen, probably. And most people I know who've caught COVID, I discuss with them what they did in the days before. And very often they went to a concert, they went to a bar, they went to a party. They went somewhere that met that description. Maybe they work somewhere that happens to be like that. That's basically where they would catch it. They could pinpoint something that was very likely that they got it. Now, if you have a lot of close contact with someone who has it, that's another problem. So if you're riding in a car and then you learn that the person had COVID and just didn't know it at the time, and you were in the car with the person for an hour, uh, that's pretty bad news for you. There's a good chance you're going to catch it. Like, for example, as I, I brought up the Benjamin example, he was spending a lot of time very close to me, even sleeping next to me while he was sick. And I didn't catch it. And that already made me think, uh-oh, I, I wonder if he has COVID because why am I not catching this? Him breathing right in my face, how am I not catching this? And the, the answer is because I, I just had COVID, so I was immune. So if you're in a closed space with someone who actually has COVID and you're fairly close with them, close meaning physically, then yeah, there's a good chance you're going to get it. But in like public places where you're not like right next to someone for a long period of time, then it really is a function of how many people are there and if you're indoors and how long you're there. So that's what you need to worry about. You don't need to worry so much about what you're touching or where you're walking into briefly or if you're standing in a line who's six feet away. That, that's not that important. It feels important, but it's not that important. The important thing is if you want to avoid it, stay out of places that are indoors where you're going to be there a long time with a lot of people. That's probably where you're going to get it. That's why I think the next time I get COVID will be from a, a poker room. And yes, as Trader Ruski brought up, if you live in an area that's less densely populated, then you're not as likely to be in a spot with a whole lot of people. So that helps you not get it. So I think Trader Ruski's on to something that moving to the central coast of California may have assisted him in not catching COVID in public places he's gone to. So that's just important. Some people still don't understand that where the real risk is and where it isn't. So I, I think I've covered everything. If you got any questions for me, you can text me at uh, 775-372-8355, and I will give you an answer. From the 773, we have a brag. Finally got to play the free roll. First place, bitches. Suck it. With all due respect. <laughs> okay. Well, congratulations from this person in the 773 area code who won the free roll. I guess he was having a hard time uh, finding time to play it when we were on live. This person is not in California or anywhere in the West, so it's not the most convenient time when we run the free roll, but he was able to play and he won. So, okay, very good. Tell me how you want the money, and I will send it to you. Was that the $1,000 free roll tonight, Jeff? Um, yeah, divided by 20. Okay, got it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, so, Trader Risky, what did you do for New Year's? New Year's, I just chilled. I was down at my dad's. My dad turned 83 on uh, the 30th, hmm. so I was down there for like uh, three days hanging out with him. And then I drove back on New Year's on the 31st, and it was like pouring the whole way. And then yes. by the time I got home, I'm just like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm chilling. <laughs> That was my attitude. So I, I I didn't go anywhere on that day, but I knew the weather was going to be bad. I knew there was going to be a lot of rain. And first of all, I was tossing around possibly going to Vegas because the rates dropped big time. I think partially because of the Southwest fiasco, but the rates dropped big time. And I was considering doing like a last minute trip there. But then I saw it was going to rain there and it may actually rain during the fireworks, which I think it did. And I was like, you know what? I, I want to deal with this. I, <laughs> no, I, I don't want to come right into the rain in Vegas. It, it's just, no. So I, I I didn't even bother asking the family if they wanted to go. I wasn't going to leave the families. I, they would have had to go with me. Otherwise, I wasn't going to go. But the funny thing was on the night of uh, New Year's Eve, Benjamin said, oh, we could have gone to Vegas. Why didn't we go? And he was kind of disappointed. But I told him, like, it's going to rain there and I didn't even think he was going to be interested in going, but it turns out he would have been. But we just spent it at home. I, I would have tried to look around here to see if there were some fireworks to go see or something. But with all, with all that rain, I was like, no, forget it. I, I don't want to go out anywhere. So I just stayed home. And we watched the recorded ball drop on ABC, as I've been doing since the 70s. And the fake Los Angeles party that they record weeks before I saw that too they had some weird Puerto Rican party that I think wasn't recorded weeks before I think that one was actually recorded live like with the East Coast feed Puerto Rico gets their New Year an hour before New York does but it looked like an authentic celebration there that was the first time I'd seen that but yeah we we just stayed at home and it partially was because of the rain the heavy rain in L.A. on December 1st. And, in fact, there has been rain since then as well. And a rainstorm is also coming on the 9th in L.A. So by the first half of January being concluded in 2023, L.A. will probably have had more rain in 2023 than it did in all of 2020. And I think this is going to be one of the good precipitation years for California, which is very important because of the big drought right now. And California gets most of its water from the snowpack in the Sierra Nevada mountains. So it's very important to get a lot of snow in the Sierras, which uh, then melt and run down the hill. And then... uh, they actually will pipe that water to northern and southern California. So it is very important to have a good snowpack in the Sierra Nevada, and so far they do. So far they've gotten a lot of snow in the Sierras, and plus a lot of water has been coming to all of California. So I think this is going to wipe out the drought. The way these droughts work is that they build up over the years from not enough rain and snow and 
as enough years like this happen, it gets worse and worse. But the good thing is it can be corrected very fast. And that was something that was learned about 30 years ago. 30 years ago, they were of the belief that it's going to take like an incredible number of heavy rainstorms in a row to correct the whole thing, like something you'd never get, like 40 rainstorms in a row. And no, it turned out it just took two. I'm not even kidding. I, I watched this occur in the early 90s. So it was learned then that all you really need is a good snowpack and in the areas that have reservoirs that get it from the rain, that all you need is the ground fully saturated and then another big storm following it, dumping a lot of rain, and then the water just all pours right out and fills the reservoirs again very quickly. So it's one of these things that can be corrected quickly with a good season, and we may have that with us here. So far, December and January have had above normal precipitation. So it's looking good. The forecast is looking good. And uh, Lake Mead may even uh, find itself getting refilled this winter. So we will have to see. Lake Mead is not getting its water from the Sierras. It gets it from the Rockies. And unfortunately, the Rockies have had not had uh, impressive precipitation so far. So Lake Mead may still be in trouble. But California won't be. California gets some of its water from the Colorado River. But a lot of it comes from the Sierras. So that's good news for California so far regarding the drought. And uh, more rain is coming. Be prepared. It's happening. Yeah, right now I'm looking where I am. There's going to be two inches on January 9th alone. That's a lot of rainfall going to come that day. By the way, somebody texted me. or actually uh, tweeted at me. Serious question, Todd. Are you done with the shots personally, or will you take a booster if you think it's needed? I've had three of your podcasts in queue and haven't had time to listen in a while. Yeah, well, good luck. It's going to take you like 24 hours to, <laughs> to listen to those back podcasts plus the one today. So you're doing a lot of listening here to catch up. It's been very long shows. Uh, yeah, I answered it before, but no, I, I'm done with the shots. I, I can't see a scenario with me getting another shot unless something really unexpected happens with COVID. It's just not worth it to me. Just I get too sick, it's just not worth it. But that's a good question for you, traders. Are you going to get any more shots, or are you done as well? No, I'll get one. You know, I mean, if they come out with one that's supposed to protect me, I don't have a bad reaction, so it's no big deal. Yeah, it's a big difference if you get no bad reaction. And I'll throw that in here before we shut down here. If if the shot isn't harming you at all, even on the short term, I don't think it's harming me long term. I think it just harms me short term where I get sick and it sucks. But if it's not really bothering you, if you can get it and you, d- you don't really feel much from it, then I can understand getting it because there's not much downside. And I wouldn't let all the reports about it scare you because if something was going to happen to you, it probably would have already. So if you've taken four shots or five shots already and nothing's happened to you, then another shot's not likely to make the difference as far as anything negative. You've pretty much shown that uh, you're fine. Your body's fine with it. And any damage it would have done probably would have already happened. Even if there's unknown damage that'll hurt you in the future, it's probably already happened. So it's one of these things where there's not much downside to getting another shot if you're not getting sick from it. So that's a a big difference as far as considering doing it or not 
if it's unpleasant for you, like it is for me, then there's a good reason not to do it. Whereas for Trey he doesn't really get sick from it, so it's a lot easier to go get it. And I, Cal Watt said the same thing. He doesn't get sick from it. it. It is funny how much sicker I got from the shot than from actual COVID. It's, it's not even a comparison. Did you get the shingles shot, uh, Jeff? I did not because I had the real shingles in 2010. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, you know, I, I had this discussion with the last doctor I saw, and I couldn't really get a straight answer because he mentioned that I'm 50, I can get the shingles shot now, and he recommends it. And I said, well, I normally would, but I actually had shingles, the actual uh, condition, in 2010. So, I, like, so it, what, didn't you get a straight answer? Did he say you should still get it, or was he kind of... Uh, well, he said, but, you know, you, you, could still, you could still get shingles again. And I said, yeah, but I, I had read that uh, there's only a 4% chance that I would get shingles a second time, and... I heard the shot is like 95% effective, so isn't that like the same thing? <laughs> so, so, so what I wasn't getting a straight answer about is if this gives me additional protection or if it's basically the same protection as previously having shingles. Right. So I, I, I still don't know the answer to this. And also the answer is, even if it is additional protection, when I'm 96% protected anyway, like do I even want to bother with any potential side effects from it? So I, I, I'm kind of thinking no. Because I, I already had it, and I'm probably not going to get it again. Uh, now, it, it would be worse if I got it again at a later age than when I first had it. I, I had it at 38, so the chance of getting permanent nerve damage from it, especially with jumping on it quickly and getting the treatment for it, w- was pretty low, and I did not get nerve damage, thankfully. Bottom line is, I, I don't think I'm going to get the shingles shot. Did you get it yet? Yeah, no, I got the first. Yeah, it's a two-shot uh, thing, and I did get the first one. And yeah, I didn't really feel much. Um, maybe tired that night. Went to bed early, and then I was good. Yeah, it's a it's a decent idea to get it when you're over fifty because it can cause permanent nerve damage that there's no way out of if you get shingles, especially if you're older. This is of greatest risk to those over 65, but there are people under 65 who get shingles and they get nerve damage that they have no way to ever correct. So it's bad news if that happens to you. And overall, it happens in about 10% of the cases, so it's not a tiny percentage. So it, it is a good vaccine to get if you have not had the real thing before. But I, I had the real thing before, so I, I don't feel the need to get it. Anyway, that's all. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Rest in peace, uh, Dave Learman, who unfortunately passed away on November 21st. Yeah, I saw that. Sorry, Josh. By the time I discovered it, I wasn't that surprised. He had not communicated with anyone or on social media in two and a half months by the time I verified it. So I had a feeling that's what I'd be finding. So it wasn't a total shock in that way. All right, well, Trader Ruski, I will uh, talk to you later. I hope you have a good uh, early start to this year. Absolutely. You too. Last week of NFL, so let's let's go out uh, strong. Yes, definitely. Where are you in the contest right now? Are you still leading? I'm in second. You're in second. One game. Okay. Uh, hopefully you can catch the guy. So, yeah, it'll come down to the last week, and you know, it should be good. So. Yep. We'll talk. I want to hear what you. I want to hear some of the wisdom. Yeah, I've I've got to come up with uh, with picks for this final week. All right. Well, uh, Trey Risky, I will. Talk to you later, and good luck on the NFL this week. Thank you. All right, bye.
Well, another one in the books. Another pretty long show, to be honest. It's funny because we had topics I didn't think were really long topics, but then I ended up with some long topics. I, I don't know how that happened. Like the last show, there were some topics I knew for sure were going to be long. Like the D Lucky thing, I knew it was going to be a long topic. And the Hustler Casino Live stuff, I knew would be a long topic. And the FTX stuff, I knew would be a long topic. So, like, there were things I knew I'd talk about that would be a long topic. This time, I didn't expect long topics, but we got a long topic out of the Jeremy Ausmus thing, the Dave Lerman thing, which I didn't expect to talk so long, the Negranu and Jordan Christos thing. Even the COVID thing ended up long. Huh. I did take kind of a long break, which you guys won't hear in the archives. That'll shorten it a bit. Anyway, watch out for XBB 1.5. I guarantee some of you will get that this month. Unfortunately, a lot of you will probably get that this month. So some of our listeners will get infected by XBB 1.5 in January 2023. It's, a, it's like an ironclad guarantee I'm giving you right now. I'm not saying you personally, but, but some of you listeners out there will have it. And not a trivial number. That's the way it is. You know, when a new variant shows up that people aren't immune to, then you get a lot of infections. This happened in January 2022 with original Omicron. Not a lot of people died from it, but a lot of people got infected. It's going to happen again. And people are indoors more often because it's winter time. Even L.A. has its winter. Even L.A. is getting a lot of rain. A lot of people staying indoors. And that is all. Shalom. Shalom.